everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 342. I'm your host, Chris Zona. Joined, as always, by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, it's just me and you this week, and we have a Patreon requested show to do, so those are always fun. Indeed, as we go back uh, 51 weeks earlier from the show we did last week. Yeah, basically, yes. And our Patreon, Patreon, Patron that requested this week's show is Andy Linton. Yes. And he wanted us to do this week, put the $25 down, which you can do that at patreon.com slash between the sheets. You go there and follow the protocol on the Patreon website and how to get this um, opportunity to have us do a show that you want to listen to. And uh, we will make it happen to the best of our uh, abilities. Of course, you all the stuff in the halftime segment will let you know what you need to do. And, uh, yeah, so you'll have your chance to get your name called out and get us to talk about what you want us to talk about. And Andy Linton wanted us to talk about 1996. So let's go to the week that was 1996. And this is one of those uh, deals here where we have a little bit extra as uh, I think we just have one extra day to add to the, to the week. As uh, we're discussing the week that was February 15th through the 22nd of 1996. So one extra day, really not a whole lot that day. That was like a midweek day. So you didn't, re- didn't really add much to the show, but still it, it uh, you know, ties it up on the timeline. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go to World Championship Wrestling to lead off with. It looks like WCW is going back into the house show business after doing a $216,000 run on three weekend dates, all headlined by Ric Flair defending against Macho Man Randy Savage. The February 17th show at the Baltimore Arena drew 11,000 fans, 8,000 paid with a $102,000 gate. It was the first legit $100,000 gate for a non-pay-per-view show in the history of the company. And Jim Crockett probably hadn't done one going back until 1988. The February 18th show in Norfolk drew 9,500 fans, 6487 paid with a 72,133 gate. The TV title changed hands twice over the weekend with Les Luger winning the title from Johnny B. Band Baltimore, but lost it back in Norfolk. The gates are doubly impressive because neither Hulk Hogan nor the Road Warriors won either show. And because WF had just run Baltimore with every big name in the promotion and drew 5,900 paid and $87,000 as well. The plan now is to run a major house show at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago in early April, which would set the stage for doing ang- local angles to build a slamboree in the same building on May 19th. <laughs> but this is the this is the, the Flair Savage feud and what it does to the house show business here at this time period. And uh, people were definitely into this whole this feud as it's reborn with the new element of a uh, the women being involved. Yeah. Okay. So I'm checking real quick. So okay, Super Brawl was just before or our week, right? It was, was the right. Week. Wait. Yes. Okay. So that's the 11. I'd really like to know what the walk up and late, you know, ticket sales were versus advance on these because I, I gotta think that that Liz turn was a huge deal as far as these shows doing so well. Oh, well, it's, I mean, these two have feuded the previous year and I mean, they're bringing it back again, but with this added element, it definitely gives it a different look and feel and drama and a heel Elizabeth. Yes, absolutely. I mean, never been done. 
so not like this so yeah yes uh it put a spark in the house shows as, as we go along and then you have uh you know, Luger and Jamie Bad, they have a t- title switching hands on the house shows here. You know, hot potato title changes. Which so is that, so that. weird because then Marrow's contract expires and he drops the belt on TV to Luger. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was something to give the house shows, you know, make them feel kind of important. I don't know. Yes, as, as they would later with the Benoit Booker switches on the house shows. These were never acknowledged on TV either. No, they were not. But um, but yeah. So, and let's talk about them more than how giant pin sting with a choke slam on the on the shows. So there's that sticker also splash the sh- into the choke slam finish. I'm guessing, probably. Also, Scott Norton replaced Brian Pillman in the six mans with Arn and Benoit against Kevin Sullivan, Hugh Morris, and Ming. Wound up with Norton getting pinned, and then all five men turned on him, left him laying. So he got set up as a baby face. Hmm. Torch has four four. Uh. February 17, Baltimore estimated 9,500. WCRN is the first of his two rare weekend house shows. In the opener, Alice Wright beat Disco Inferno, during which Disco is more concerned about his hair than wrestling the match. Don't touch my hair. Uh, Nasty Boys beat Public Enemy in a no-rose falls. Can anywhere match which include tables, chairs, and hockey stick. In the end, Nobs broke a table over Johnny Grunch's head. Luger over Jimmy Bad to capture the TV title. Although Bad beat Luger the next night, they regained the title and the change probably won't be national television. It was still an official title change. Luger put his feet on the wrist for leverage when pinning bad. During mission, they announced a Great American Bash would return to Baltimore on June 16th. Then we had the Mingy Morris, Kevin Sullivan, Arn, Benoit, Norton match. Um, Pillman, they told the fans that as reported on the WCW 900 line, Brian Pillman had been fired, which got applause from the fans. After the match, all five heels beat up on Norton. Not, giant pin sting with a choke slam, totally clean and decisive. And then Flair pin Savage after Arn interfered while Elizabeth distracted the referee. And the torch also has a quote from Mayor Bischoff in the Baltimore Sun, which ran a front page article on this in their entertainment section, where Bischoff said the WCW probably only come to Baltimore once or twice a year unless attendance showed the demand was great. Well, I think you got your uh, your demand here. Okay, and by the way, I assume that the third show that Dave didn't mention is the Nitro in Salisbury? Yes. Okay. Which, he's not uh, talking which, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He's talking Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah, we're going, yeah, we're about to get into that, yes. But, okay. Yes. Um, the Pillman thing is interesting, because I had completely forgotten about that. And I gotta think that lends credence to the idea that if... If the fake or fake real release or real fake release, however you want to put it, happened, I guess it, it this is when it would have happened to get this over and get the ECW thing because that's the same night actually, right? Mm-hmm. To get that over, but they never they never outright say on TV that he's fired. No. But he he's advertised on these shows. He's not advertised on television. If you had to guess, do you believe the Meltzer and Kim Wid version that it's around here, or the version from Liam O'Rourke's book that it's right around uncensored? Well, I mean, going when I did the notes for this, and it didn't have anything really to do with our wink, and we've already done the Pillman show. I mean, Wade Keller basically was saying, you know that. Brian got himself fired, but it's still an angle. Hmm. They fired him, 
but there's still an angle. So he's fired, but he's not fired. Do you think that's a nod towards the weird release? Yes. Okay. I mean, that's, yeah, that's basically what, what, what Way was, was saying is that, yeah, he's fired, but it's all the part of the angle. Now, I don't buy that unless he was just flaking out on um, meetings or something because of the state he was in. I still don't see how this fits in with the idea that he and Kim Wood worked Bischoff to get the release so he could negotiate with WWF. No. No. I I think it's I, I, that part doesn't make sense. The timeline doesn't make any sense. No, he we we, we talked about it on the Patreon show. No, he I never know. wanted to leave WCW. Well, that's the other thing. He never wanted to leave WCW. Well, he wanted the leverage though. Yeah, but he didn't want to leave. No, but still, if he can negotiate with WWF, he gets the leverage. So he still accomplishes the same theoretical goal. He only didn't go to WCW because he figured with the ankle being worse than he was letting on after the accident that the 90-day termination cycles, which Bischoff wouldn't take out, were, would eventually be used to cut him. And Vince, surprisingly, I guess, gave him a no-cut contract. You know? Unless Elliot Pollock didn't do as good a job as we were led to believe. Yeah. But... I don't understand why that's part of the narrative, though, when then it goes two, over two months before he signs anywhere. <sighs> yeah. Just doesn't make sense. I mean, sense. I, again, I don't think he wanted to leave WCW. Like I said. Mm, probably not. Um, by the way, would you like to know what the uh, headline for Kevin X uh, Baltimore Sun article was? What was it? Savage sportsmen are wrestling for fans. Wasn't that nice? And then the sub headline is main event world championship wrestling gains a toehold <laughs> as it grapples with the long dominant world wrestling federation. Now, especially at newspapers, um, reporters don't write headlines. Editors usually do. And I'm going to guess that's not a Kevin Eck headline because <laughs> Kevin Eck does not strike me as someone who would do your generic uh, got a toehold on. He's body slamming this kind of bullshit. Yeah. Also, the photo choices here. We've got the savage WWF pro promo photo that everyone's seen from late in his run. We've got a Bischoff, like, what looks to be Bischoff's official executive photo. And and some WCW photos. Well, no, excuse me. No, AP photos of a WCW guy. So it's an interesting mix here. Hmm. Now, there, I think there are more. Now, what was the Bischoff quote you read that they mentioned? I just thought about how, you know, if the demand warranted it, they would come once or twice a year. Oh, well, <laughs> there's more in there than that. I'll just read this one that jumped out at me all of a sudden. Uh, so X says, even with the Hulkster and the Macho Man, however, WCW continues to have an identity problem. When Hogan or Savage appear on a talk show or make a personal appearance, they're often are announced as WWF superstars. One of the things the WWF has done well over the past 10 years is brand itself, said Mr. Bischoff, who has been running WCW for a little over a year. It's two years, though. And then, <laughs> then Eric says, it's kind of like Xerox copiers. I've tried really hard over the past 12 to 18 months to begin to brand WCW so that when people think about wrestling, they also think about WCW. And that's something that's slowly beginning to happen. But branding is an effort that takes a long time. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Wrestling fans don't get that, though. Mm -hmm. A lot of them don't, so. 
but yeah, I mean, they're it's pretty successful here. So, and this is before NWO, folks. They were doing great house show work. I mean, their their buy rates and their TV ratings was not that far off. So, I mean, house that's a lot of were, that gets romanticized over yeah. the years about the NWO. The, the the NWO the creation of NWO you know changed WCW's business, not necessarily. I mean, WCW's business was doing really good before the NWO was created. Yes, they were doing solid on pay per view, good on TV, and the big gaps were in house shows, licensing, and merchandising. That's where they picked up at was mm-hmm. merchandise. Anything else? Oh, with the NWO? But, that, that's the one where you can probably chalk it up the most to the NWO, yes. And, and they, you know, they started having great attendance, too. Absolutely, they did. Even better. But still, they were not struggling. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Not with the Flair Savage feud, at least. All right, well, let's talk about Nitro. Nitro on February 19th in Salisbury, Maryland. Drew a cell of 4,700 fans. Paying $3,800, paying $41,000. As Arn Anderson beat Hulk Hogan by disqualification at 638. Hogan had Arn in the figure four, but Kevin Sullivan did a run in. Savage ran out for the save. Since Savage runs so much faster than Sullivan, he made it to the ring first. <laughs> the referee saw him, and even though he didn't <laughs> touch anyone, he DQ'd Hogan. Given Arn wins over Hogan two weeks in a row. The match was much worse than his ounce as Hogan's blows were missing by a mile, and Arn was selling them anyway. Guess he had no choice, Dave said. Negative one star. All right, let's watch this uh, this ending here. Let's see how selfless Hulk Hogan is. Oh. Is going to be one. Fans, you do not want to miss. Arn Anderson now with a big left hook going to the solar plexus. Irish whip coming out of the corner. Hulk Hogan! Oh, what the fuck was that? Oh. Arn threw him into the corner and I don't know what you call that. <laughs> Hogan, and we talked about this. We talked about this last time we did the '96 show. I think God Hogan looks so old here. Did he stumble? Did he? Arn throws a potty shop, whips him. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he stumbled. I think that's Hogan trying to be mannered and just doing like that. I don't know what the hell you call that. <sighs> he stops it... and starts. And then goes back again. He always had some weird fundamentals, but it's genuinely impressive how much worse he gets in the ring from like, I mean, it, his style changes in 86, but he's still able to do a good version of the Hogan match from like, in the in, what would you say, like 92 to 96? This <sighs> He just gets like, like weird bad. I don't think he cares. This stuff doesn't does matter, brother. He does in Japan. But, I mean, I, I don't think he cares here at all. You know what I'd be really curious to see? <laughs> You'd know this better than me, cause especially because you've watched more of that stuff recently. Did he do his vertical suplex in Japan? Uh, Yes. Did he do his weird right-handed vertical suplex, or did he do a normal vertical suplex? Uh, That one I don't remember, I don't remember for sure. Did it look like a weird Hulk Hogan vertical suplex, or did it look like a normal one? I mean, it, it looked kind of weirdish in a way. Okay, so it was probably his right-handed vertical suplex. But this I mean, but just... you're getting cross cross arm breaker Hogan. You're getting a spin over arm, you know, arm bar oh, takedown. Who Hogan. cares? But it's like it's 
he just I mean, you're, seem you're, to... getting, you're, you're getting the work rate Hogan in Japan, but you don't get shit here. But I'm not even talking about work rate. I'm talking about competence and giving a shit. Anyway. This is the kind of wrestling match I love to death. These guys are just brutalizing each other, and it's all for pride. Oh, no. Arn Anderson attempting the DDT, and this is the second time in this contest. They did the fake punch into DDT spot, and Hogan just kind of, I don't even know how he was supposed to have blocked it, but Arn just went down without him. Yeah. Also, Hogan from is about to Hulk up from not selling. <laughs> what is happening here? Hulk Hogan has outsmarted one of the cagiest ring veterans in the sport today. And now it is Hulk Hogan. I'll say it is. Play possum. This time he slipped the DDT. <laughs> and a big boot to the oh, head. No, no, no. Do go ahead. One, two, three. Get it over with, Hogan. Don't let any outside interference ruin this for you, my friend. Drop it on him and get him counted out. I do believe tonight will be Hogan and Savage's night. Something is in the air. There is a figure four. He's he's rubbing it into the horseman, baby. That's it. Beat him with their signature hole. Yeah. Now look at Iron Anderson. He's fighting to stay alive. He's telling the referee. I think he's telling him. It's over. No, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan tried to break up the Macho Man Randy Savage doing a sprint that would get him a berth on the Olympic team. Savage never touched anyone in the ring other than Sullivan. Yep. Horrible. Oh, the referee didn't see what precipitated the Macho Man's actions. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That means he's holds two victories over Hulk Hogan. Unprecedented. There's got to be a ruling on this. I don't... This can't happen. Well, it happened. It happened, football man, pigskin pal. Take a look at what happened here. That bites. That bites. Hogan goes to by one. This is brought to you by 1-800-COLLECT. The way to save on collect calls is down 1-800-COLLECT from any phone to any phone and save. Take it, Bobby. Hogan's got that figure four slapped on. Taskmaster comes in the ring. Referee doesn't see him, but he notices Savage in that ring. That warrants the disqualification. And if Savage had stayed in the dressing room and minded his own business, maybe his little friend in a yellow suit would be a lot better off. There's your loser, Hulk Hogan. Arn Anderson, two to zip. Unbelievable. Arn Anderson beats Hulk Hogan twice here on Nitro. Unprecedented. Oh, man. What a hot one we have got here, and we have got a lot more action. Okay, I think Dave is wrong about what happened with Savage and Sullivan, though. I think Savage was supposed to slide in the perpendicular side to Sullivan first, or at least do it in a way where he knocked out knock Sullivan out of the ring before Nick Patrick sees him. So I think Savage getting in the ring first might have actually been by design. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, but that, still, what a cluster. And this is, I mean, this era, oh my God, there's so much of this stupid shit. Well, well, okay, so also, we've said this before, I think when we did the last 96 show several weeks back, Hogan, for a guy that Vince is on TV basically accusing of doing steroids with impunity. Hogan does not look particularly gassed up. No. He looks old. Right. Now, Savage, Savage obviously had his tells about how he was dressing differently and stuff since he's been back in, excuse me, being in WCW. But Hogan doesn't look that much bigger or more cut than he did when he got to WCW and was still 
basically skinny Hogan. No, he looks old. Yeah, it's NWO Hogan where he gets huge. Yes. You know, so that's also interesting to track, but uh, what a... And, like, this was how... These weird, like, interference and DQ losses to Arn and Flair, I feel like it did get covered in the newsletters that it was Hogan trying to pretend to be magnanimous and do jobs, right? Yes, yes. Even if it's not outright being said in our week. Here. Yes. Yeah, but I'm saying, it, 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 yeah, but it's, it's not, he's not doing jobs to make them look good. No. <laughs> it's silly DQ bullshit finishes. Or the women choose. And... Oh, God. Well, we're, we'll, have, we'll have to talk about that in a second. I just realized so, something. That's how Hogan could have gotten his win back against Tony Atlas in this era. <laughs> Tell him he, he'll bring him in and he gets to do the women's shoe finish. Hulk will hit him with a women's shoe as much as he wants him to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's automatic. Yeah. Amazing. All right. So, uh, yeah. All right. So next we get Steve Grissom. Interview yeah. By, you know, who drove the WCW race car to victory at the Goodies 300 in Daytona Beach on February 17th. That is the uh, used to be called the Bush Circuit. That's the AAA circuit of NASCAR. Um, Harlem Heat, Sting, and Lex Luger were working the pit crew. Kind of funny to see the four guys who are feuding with each other in the pit co- crew and holding them up in the winner's circle after the race. me savvy, everybody. Grissom goes off as a nice guy, but they devoted far too much time to this. Grissom, driving a Turner Network car, came back and finished 27th in the Daytona 500 next day. Which wasn't mentioned. Of course not. I mean, 27th is. Nah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the worst in the world because there's you know, 40 cars in Daytona 500, but still, they're right home about. But they got to win. So that's what you want to mention the win. So there's that. Next. Well, wait. How co- I mean, because you know this much better than me. How common is it that someone will have a car? On two, that will have two different cars and teams across different classes of competition like that. Um, a lot, uh, quite a few of the NASCAR guys drive on on that circuit, but they don't drive their same car. That's what I'm saying, though. It, They'll it, drive a different car, but it's but it, and, and it's not always it's not the same teams all the time either. They have their have a separate figure. team. Yeah, hmm. it's just the way it is. Dale Jr. He would have a, a he had his own crew he had a crew chief when he drove in the the bus circuit and he had his crew chief and then in the regular circuit so that's just the way it worked. Yes. Also interesting and not surprising for obvious reasons, just how much better WCW was able to work out with NASCAR crossovers than WWF was. Oh, you think? <laughs> you think? I would hope so. But anyway. All right, so next we get Lot Ness over Alex Wright in 222 with the diving elbow. Wright did about as good a job as possible in this situation. Dud. Next we get the Belfast bruiser, David Finley, meeting Brad Armstrong at 649 with a power slam. For two such good workers, this never got going. Star on a quarter. And then finally, and the only good match on the show, is our long Nitro, Riff Flair retained the title, beating Randy Savage in 1128, three and a half stars. 
Both had their working boots on in this match until the finish. So let's go to the finish, shall we? Well, are you getting it back set up again, Biggs? Because we lost the picture here. Yeah, I'm having to do my network bullshit. But I, 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 I noticed where it was. Uh, I made sure to note the timestamp before I did anything. So, All right, so let's go to the finish where, uh, yes, of course, the devilish women get involved. Yes. As much as the Macho Man wants the World Heavyweight title, based on his actions... I know, I'm turning up the volume. This has gone way beyond the world title. This is more than a little bit personal. Does Bischoff have a cold? And over! Hey, and look at that. Every Sam, ounce of strength. Savage barely had enough strength to get him over, and he's still fighting. Well, when, when, when two giants of the wrestling world go at each other like this, you better believe fatigue is setting in. But you never know about Flair. If he's pacing himself, if he's playing possum. Why are you talking about it? It's a war, and it's usually the case. Get the most off. desperate man. What was that? The battle that will never win the Somebody war. Somebody threw a high heel to Flair, and, and Savage intercepted it. He caught it. He caught it. One, two. No, no. He didn't get it. He didn't, he didn't get, get it. it. No. He didn't get it. Hulk Hogan out. Woman with one shoe missing. Oh! On Anderson with a DDT. The referee did not see it. He's out there. Hogan is out there. Oh, no. no, 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 no. Yes. No, no, no. no. on Anderson Never. again. I cannot believe this. The Macho Man Randy Savage caught the high heel. We thought the Macho Man was going to get revenge. Sullivan out. Hogan out. Anderson DDT rolls Flair over on him, and the Nature Boy Ric Flair and Kevin Sullivan and Arn Anderson just they're working over Hogan now. Who is this in the ring? The heck is that? Well, that's good. Hogan, Hogan and Savage need to get him some help against this this gaggle of dudes. What is going on here? This is not what we expected at all. Well, whoever he is, he's raising havoc, baby. Well, someone's got to get Flair and Iron Anderson. they got to get out of there. Wait they got the win. Wait a minute. I want to know what in the world. Wait a minute. He's going after Sullivan. Sullivan wants no part of it. In the meantime, the macho man, Randy Savage, he took one look at Liz. He froze up. I mean... Well, there's Hulk Hogan. He's bending over Macho Man Randy Savage, trying to explain to him what happened. But I'll tell you something. Savage didn't get the job done. He fought. He stood there toe-to-toe with Flair. But too many women were involved in this one. They want to play that way, Savage. You better get yourself some troops in order. They mean business, pal. And by the way, since we haven't been talking over this, uh, the person who ran in who we'll be hearing more about in a moment is one Edward Harrison Leslie. <laughs> yes, and uh, Dave has a lot to say about this. So as he should, and but I think we'll be hearing from, if not him, then at least Hogan in a moment as well. But, yeah, yeah, you know, they'll explain on the air. But yes, there's a, there's a lot to say here. Also, I need to make a note to take a screenshot without the thing over it of Mongo guarding um, Pepe with it. <laughs> With his life as Flair menaces them. <laughs> yes. And Elizabeth is wearing an outfit that uh, 
Vince Russo would probably be uh, extremely proud of. All leather, wearing hot hot pants. Miniskirt, yeah. Well, I think it was more hot pants than miniskirt. No, it was a miniskirt. You sure? Okay. That was a tainted, that was a tainted victory. I don't care what you say. Hogan never just went down for the second time. Because of the enforcer. Look at the new kids on the block. It is. You kids. I have had it. I have had it. Wait a minute. That's it, brother. Clean house. Clean house. I have had it. This is not a war zone. This is not a war zone. That's on the other channel. Not yet. Did Hogan just almost knock Heenan down? Are you surprised? Okay, let's see that again. Also, Hogan has put a new shirt on for some reason. Uh, Hulk Hogan turned himself to piss off. No. Okay, no, that's that's Heenan being Heenan. Okay. We talk about Flair, Arn Anderson, and Sullivan. The booty man brothers can get it done. Oh, yeah, dudes. Next week, six-man tag, Macho Man. Booty, booty, booty man. If he can't get it done, nobody can be cheap. Did you see them run from the booty man? Ogerlin runs in trying to be this wonderful professional to save the day, and then no one remembers to turn his mic on. <laughs> Tell me <to> say, everybody. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Poor Bischoff is there trying to hold his headset out to Hogan. Hogan isn't <laughs> grabbing it to use himself for some reason, not even to put on, even to hold. He's not. Okerlin sees what is happening, runs over with his, you know, regular stick mic or whatever you want to call it. And it's not on. Because <laughs> this is the only time I can think of that Okerlin ends up at the desk. So this must be Okerlin trying to save the day. Yes. Man, it's not yours, man. What are you talking about? I want it to be yours. Oh, not you well. Okay, so what's also happening now is that it appears that someone turned Bischoff's mic off, so this is all being heard through Mongo's mic feet several feet away. <laughs> Be right? Because if Bischoff's yeah. mic was on, that would have been much louder just then, because Bischoff was still kind of wearing the headset. Oh my god. Let me tell you something, brother. We've tried everything to keep the mega powers together. Now with now Gene's on. Now me and the on. macho man are bonded, brother. But big booty man, brother... He's back on track, Jack. And if he can't kick your can, nobody can, brother. Okay. Did you see him run for the I, I booty saw. man? Let, let, let's get this the all booty. sorted out here and try set the table. Eric Bischoff, uh, Steve McMichael, gentlemen. Hogan put a bandana on, too. Are you saying that you, the Macho <laughs> Man, and this booty man want to take on Anderson, Flair, and the Taskmaster? Right next here week? on Monday Nitro, Monday brother. It's going to be the real war to settle really the score. This man, this man is six man, brother. We'll line them all up. I heard that booty man will take it. Booty, 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 booty man. I know how you feel. Booty man's back on track. If he can't do it, nobody can. Booty man's gonna tear him apart, brother. Monday Nitro. Speaking of steroids. Yeah, it is jacked. Can we get that put together? Can somebody give us an answer? We'll get it done. You want it done? We'll get it done. Oh, now Eric's mic is back on. Thank you, Eric. I'm going to give it back to you, and let me see if I can get back here and get some words. All right. We will get it done. That six-man coming your way next week here on Nitro. Sullivan, Flair, Anderson, 
Hogan, Savage, and the Booty Man. What is the Booty Man, he said he'd get it done, brother. That's just what I've been saying all along. Hogan needs to get him some more troops because there's too many of the Dungeon of Doom and the Horseman, baby. You got to get out, and he's got it now. All right, for the missing Bobby the Brain Heenan, Steve, Mongo, and Michael, I'm Eric Bischoff. We'll see you here. Six-man tag team action coming your way live Nitro next week. Also, Flair forgot to take the belt with him when Booty Man chased him off. So just <laughs> sitting there the whole time. Well, Savage wanted to take it with him, but Bischoff said he can't do it. So. Well, that too. Also, it's very... Like, even if we didn't know that at this point it's still the original belt, it's very obvious because just sitting there, it's clearly the one that has the bent center plate. Yeah. Um. Okay, before we get to what an absolute clusterfuck of a piece of television that was... <laughs> Was this match advertised on the previous week's Nitro? I don't know. Do you get where I'm going with this? No. It's a weird match to put on TV. Again, after all, everything the last few weeks and now this house show run, I think, I'm guessing there was not a great walk-up for the house shows. People learn about the Liz angle on Nitro. If they already advertise the match, they advertise it for next week, not realizing how well the house shows are going to do. And then they have this match that they just use as a house show draw on free TV. Because even though it's WCW, I'm not sure they would have booked it that way otherwise. Yeah, but it's not a clean finish and it's set up it's, a, it's set up an angle for the next week. So. I know. That said, what the fuck was that? <laughs> this is the, that this it's era, it's Hogan Creative Control era mm-hmm. that is just a complete nightmare. Um, let's, and, let's... and we should say, too, like, for whatever anyone wants to say about, like, how much was was this Hogan stuff, like, none of this looks like Kevin Sullivan booked television when nope. Hogan's in segments. Nope. No, it doesn't. it's creative control. It's Hogan's creative control. All right, this is what Dave said. He talked about the match. So Ed Leslie, under his latest ring name called The Booty Man, made to say to set up a six-man tag on February 26th in Knoxville, where The Booty Man will team with Hogan and Savage and Flair Arn and Sullivan. They never acknowledged Leslie was Zodiac just one week ago and acted as if he was just another newcomer pretending to be the ultimate warrior. This was probably the worst Nitro since the beginning. And I guess it's the next week's Nitro where Hogan does... They still don't say he's Zodiac, but I, I guess it's the next week when Hogan does the promo saying that Booty Man was his spy. Yes, yeah, something like that. Okay. It's very weird that no one ever says it, even though they've been teasing it for weeks. Yes. I mean, this was nothing new. I think we talked about it on the last show. Yes. I'm checking. Okay, so how many weeks ago was that that we listed in 1996? January. Okay, so that was 3.36. So that was, okay, so six weeks ago, a month and a half earlier, was when they started the end goal. December 95, yeah. No, 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 no. I think the one we did last time was when they started the Zodiac thing. Well, whatever. So, but that's my point. That like, Okay, did they do other teases or did they drop it for a few weeks, though? They did the teases. Okay, so why, if the, uh, clearly this was planned for at least a month and a half, so why did they never actually say that's the Zodiac? I have no idea. I can't explain it. I can't explain the stupidity. Mm. 
<laughs> it's WCW. That's all you need to know. I wonder how much of this can even just be chalked up to Hogan makes his changes to things and no one makes a new format or something like that. No, I'm sure that was a, a role in it. You know, just simple bullshit like that. Hogan doing Hogan things. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that's all I can chalk it up to. Lord have mercy. Uh, this is so... Ugh. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible era. All right, Eric Bischoff announced they were doing a cruiserweight tournament on two continents, theoretically in Japan as well. I mentioned Brad Armstrong, as great a worker as he is. Everyone can see him, has seen him job so often, and he jobbed again in his first Nitro appearance. That putting his name in title contention only makes a new title like all the other lighter, other lightweight, lighterweight titles they've tried and failed to get over because fans see them as world jobber champions. Chris Benoit, a category he shouldn't be in since he has top potential. Eddie Guerrero, Johnny B. Bad, Dean Malenko, Shinjiro Otani, and Jushin Liger. He also make, mentioned making a deal with Antonio Pena, AAA, and to expect the top stars from Mexico. He never mentioned the two TV title switches, which only makes the fans that attend those shows live think they're ripped off with fake switches. Nor mentioned the big crowds in Baltimore, Norfolk. I'm sure Antonio Pena thought that was news that he signed a deal with Eric Bischoff. Because <laughs> that never happened. Yes, because the whole time the deal was through Conan. Yes. That's why everyone goes to promo with Conan. Yes. Um... Okay, the Cruiserweight Tournament. As we've discussed many times, Benoit being quote-unquote announced as being in the tournament and being the person that Otani beats in the quote-unquote finals, really just a decision match. Other than that, he's never a Cruiserweight. No. Ever. He he never wrestles a match where he is billed as a Cruiserweight in WCW. No. Just the one match where he's back in New Japan. Yeah. Like, they... It means they clearly saw something different in him as a bigger player, but it also means they thought it would devalue him to be a cruiserweight. Mm. Yeah, I mean that—that's your sign right there. Yeah, I don't mean to take away from Malenko, and I think based on who was there at the time, he probably made sense to be the first quote-unquote real champion. Since, you know, Otani just won- wins the belt on New Japan show, on the New Japan show, brings it around for the rest of the tour, and then goes to Orlando to lose it to Malenko. Ray coming in and then winning the title for Malenko was what made the division work, I think. Yes. Yes. Well, adding that element made it work. Yes. The lucha element. And also... <sighs> having a guy that small, who's even smaller than most other cruiserweights, win with his speed and his technique and be the second, well, third champion, but second, you know, again, real champion for all intents and purposes, I think also just helped get over the idea that you have a functioning division of wrestlers who may not be as big and as a result, may not always be able to compete with the heavyweights, but are just as skilled, if not more. You know, this is not, and this is not to slight either of these guys as workers, but still, this is not doing Danny Brown versus Gary Royal and talking about how these guys are actually m- much more skilled than all the heavyweights. Well, so, I mean, it's also not putting, and the guy knows as much as I love Brad Armstrong, one of my all time favorites. I mean, you put Brad Armstrong in there, anytime Brad Armstrong is put in there in this type of era, I mean, the, the fans, not, 
have seen Brad Armstrong drop so much. I mean, that's what Dave's saying here. Well, just how they book Brad. He still gets the first pay per view title shot. Yeah. So now I'm curious. Do we have any kind of bullshit bracket? Because I I don't think this is even like the '99 tag title tournament. No, I'm pretty no, sure no, there no, isn't no. one. Yeah, like it's just it's just a made up tournament. There are a few matches on WCW TV. They claim it's double elimination. You know, like nothing really happened. Like there's no, you can't even try to build a bracket like Jason Campbell did for that 99 tag title tournament, which I still kind of can't believe that he actually was able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like I remember at the time people seeing, oh, wow, he put a bracket together for that. I can't believe he made sense of this. So I try to imagine trying to put a bracket together in some of those Mid-South TV title tournament deals where they had the poster board. Oh, round 10 or whatever. Yes. <laughs> All right. To clarify a situation, Johnny Grunge was in the car with Hugh Morris when he was pulled over in Florida. Kevin Sullivan here, Bishop, put the rib on Grunge while in Florida and had a guy who pretended to be a cop pretend to arrest him. Oh, that's what great. a rib. <laughs> that's hilarious. All matches involving Brian Pillman and syndication were erased from upcoming shows with new ones put in their places. Okay. I guess that's just going along with the regular angle because... Yeah. They're not... You know, they never try to... They never try to admit that these are old matches or anything, so... If it's current, you can't be on there if you're getting the angle over. Mm-hmm. It's weird that they never tried to do this previously with anything. You know... Instead, we just try to patch stuff up in commentary. You know, the obvious one I can think of being how, you know, before the all the Hogan stuff got sealed and Sherry was going to manage Flair, you know, she, they still had weeks of Worldwides where she was going to be managed, uh, not managing, she was still going to be scouting people. And I think also managing, at least at one point, you know, the Sullivans. And I remember seeing... um there's a Pillman squash where she comes out to scout him, but this is airing at least like a week or two, if not more, after the turn to join Flair and on commentary, you know, Tony and Heenan are like, oh, well, I don't know what Ric Flair will think of this. Like, why didn't you just do something like that there? Is It's just weird that they finally decided to start may thinking, ah, maybe we should air all the stuff from the Orlando tapings around this time. Quality control. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Why did they start to have quality control? <laughs> well, they didn't start. Yeah, it's because there's a lot of quality control issues after this. So You know what I mean, though. But anyway. This one was something that they kind of, I mean, they had to sell that angle. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Not sure what the future is for WCW Saturday Night Tapings. Center stage was sold to new owners. And Dave guesses there'll be either immediately or very shortly be no more wrestling. Reports we got is that Saturday night show would be moved to on a rotation basis to Georgia cities like Gainesville, Albany, and Macon. Oh, that is a confirmed. Yeah, center stage is sold. That, I mean, that's the reason why they quit running a center stage. No, yeah. I mean that is it. For people that are, were curious about why they tape, why they quit taping there, that's why. And then, I mean, it started out, you know, mainly in like Dalton and other Georgia cities, and then. They decided to tape in a, you know, market that you know, after the Nitro tapings, you know, it's close to there. So they wouldn't have that far to go. Yeah. And you get some interesting Saturday night taping locations as well. Yeah, I'm looking they- now. Okay, so the first one is in Gainesville on February 28th. 
Yeah. Macon Coliseum, March 6th. Dalton, March 13th. Um, Augusta, March 20th. Uh, Rome, March 27th. Are they doing one show a week or that? Yeah, I guess they are for the most part. And some, you know, syn- you know, B show or syndication exclusives at the same tapings too. Boutwell in Birmingham on uh, April tenth, Montgomery May fifteenth, back to Dalton May twenty ninth. I'm try- I'm curious when they go outside of the southeast though, like when they start running, you know, along you know in the same general area as Nitro, uh, Disney in the summer, Montgomery. So I guess it's not till 97, at least, that they start running, like, you know, if we're in Colorado, we run a smaller Colorado market kind of thing. Yeah. Which, I gotta say, honestly, they had outgrown center stage, and this ended up being for the best. It did. Especially once they started really going on the road with them. Like, yeah, you know, and it was cool, because, like, you'd get these hot relatively hot crowds in places like well colorado springs would be nitro so where would like if you're in colorado springs for nitro where would saturday night be like pueblo or something something like that you know these are places they were not running tv tapings otherwise and they generally had hot crowds for it you know i'm seeing some of these other places they still stay in the south for a while but they move around more you know johnson city a salisbury wcw saturday night they were they ran a Saturday night taping, it doesn't say paid versus paper, in May 97 at UTC Arena that drew 3,800 fans. Hmm. And okay, yeah, the first one that's outside of the Southeast, really, is uh, Colorado Springs, it looks like. in uh, So it was Colorado Springs. I guess it would have been Denver or whatever. Um, August 12th, 97. You know, they were in Madison, hmm. Wisconsin, and like you see too, their their business must be really good because we're when we have crowds for these, they appear to be packing whatever the buildings can hold or close to it. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. All right, so let's continue. The July batch of the Beach Review Show has been moved from Lake Tahoe to Daytona Beach. Wow. Think about how different. That is, mm-hmm. if they don't have Bash at the Beach in Daytona Beach. That needed to be in a Hogan babyface market. Like, a, a somewhere where you would not think he would be booed coming out. Because the turn doesn't work nearly as well. Otherwise. Yeah. But just think, I mean, that, that is crazy to think about. Because I think that being in Daytona Beach... You know, that makes the Hogan thing happen because mm-hmm. how can they babysit Hulk Hogan? How could Kevin Sullivan convince Hulk Hogan to do this thing and have him stay at his house and everything if it's in fucking Lake Tahoe? Mm-hmm. Boy, oh, specifically that, that, that it's Daytona, too. Yeah, I didn't think about that part. That changes a lot. So, And that yeah. can only happen because it's specifically Daytona Beach. Pretty much, yeah. That changes a lot as the future. Yeah. And by so, the way, I'm not going to give all the specifics, but yeah, here's how hot WCW is in 98. They're consistently drawing like three to 4,000 fans paid for these small market Saturday night tapings. Well, yeah. You know, like Beaumont, Texas, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 
um, Portland, Maine, you know, Amherst, yeah. Mass. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, a tent pay per view show in 1996 was added for August. Hog Wild. Mm-hmm. The future Road Wild. Negotiations to bring in Basil DeVito, the former Titan vice president, fell through. Does that happen Basil? twice? Yes. So when was it that we talked about previously that they thought about bringing him in to replace Herd? Was it around the end of Herd's run, or was it earlier? Or? It would have been in that era, yeah. And here's a second time, Two. and no Basil DeVito. Nope. What does that do to Bischoff if Basil DeVito comes in? What is Basil DeVito doing? When yeah. they had tried to get this guy to run the company. Yeah. I'm curious to see if he has a LinkedIn or something that says what he would have been doing at a given time. You have his bio on his Hero Ventures, because he is a member of the board right now. Uh, his tenure with the company began in 1985. President of the XFL. Yeah, it doesn't say when he left originally and then when he got back in the mix or anything, at least where I'm looking right now. Um, he's a member of their board and executive committee, served as senior advisor business strategy since 03. So he's been completely back in the mix as an advisor since 03. And I guess it's from when he leaves the first time, which is like, what, 92, 93? 91. Is it 91? Gotta be. Okay. So it's. Between then and 03, I guess, he's not really in the company at all? Pretty much, yeah. Ten, over 10 years. That would be an interesting thing to hear more of the story behind. All right. Uh, WC Weekend numbers for February 17th weekend. So on Saturday, I did a 2.7. Sunday, we did a 1.8. Pro did a phenomenal 1.8. Yeah. Strong TV ratings as well. Pro is... Still Saturday morning at this time? Oh, excuse me, Saturday morning. Yeah, Saturday morning's pro main events on Sunday. Yeah, so 1.8 for a show that aired at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. Hmm. Yeah. Good. All right, speaking of WCW Saturday night, Hulk Hogan does a pre-taped interview here, and uh, Hogan and Sandy's in full force in this era, so we had to play this. So let's listen to the Hulkster go off on a tirade. About what? And he's in a jail cell or something. Yes. Well, you know something, Hulkamaniacs? Everybody out there knows that you're going to train, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, and ride your Harley Davidson on the right side of the road, brother. But when you spend time together with somebody, like I've been spending time with the Macho Man behind Lock and Key, you really get to know somebody, man. You know, Macho Man is like my brother. Macho Man is like my blood, and we're fighting for the same thing, the top of the ladder. But we'll never cut each other's throats, brother. And now that I've been in the cell with the Macho Man, he's digging like a gopher behind my back, creating a tunnel just in case our plan foils and we can't sneak out of here. We'll have a way out of here. But also, when you spend time with people, you find out the dark side of them. What I'm talking about is when we brought Miss Liz back into our fold, when we bonded her as an adhesive that would hold the mega powers together, we found out that we could trust her, that we could depend on her. No way, brothers. Behind closed doors, I even heard Liz say to the macho man, four years after their divorce, that Randy, I still love you. Yeah, macho. 
She would love to take more of your money. She would love to take more of your property, <laughs> more of your cars, and more of your heart. So like I said before, boys, <laughs> Nature Boy and Arn Anderson, an eye for an eye and a high heel for a high heel. I know that Macho is going to take care of the Nature Boy and win the WCW title back. But as far as you go, Arn Anderson, on Nitro, brother, when I get you in the ring, when the largest arms in the world look like oak trees in front of your face, and as your neck snaps and you're crawling on your belly, I just want you to know that Hulk rules, and what you gonna do when the power of the pythons destroys you? What you gonna do? In what? <laughs> Obviously, this is before Nitro, but good God Almighty! What the hell? Spend time with me. <sighs> okay, is it me? Or, and this is just spitballing, because I can't tell what the hell he's talking about. I don't understand why he's in a jail cell in front of spooky, smoky clouds. I don't understand why he's mentioning the dark side after they blew that off. This feels like Terry Bollea wanting to reassure Randy Poffo that he's not going to screw things up between him and Liz again in real life. <laughs> Doesn't it? I have no idea what, what that was. And also, you can't save Mega Powers, you idiot. He's, no, they've been saying it. They've been saying it. Oh, it's they have been? been? Okay. Yes. He said, oh, Nitro just now. We can play the Nitro okay, clip. Okay, I didn't he notice it earlier. Uh, so when, do they, yeah. when does he start calling the Monster Maniacs or whatever? That was the year before. Oh, okay. In fact, he was calling them. I mean, we when we did the 94, when we did the show we just did, what, 95, 94-ish? Mm-hmm. We did the show recently. He calls them. I mean, one one of them calls slips up and says, "Mega powers in." Okay. <laughs> I'm curious if it was ever trademarked by Titan, and if so, if it was still active. It it was, but they probably were scared. To, they probably were scared. But they keep saying it. WCW was scared. One to two. Um. Uh, there might not be a single trademark for Mega Powers. Well, there you go. Just Mega Power. Wait, am I... Is this... Okay, there's more than one page here. Okay. Wait, how do I go to the second page? And you can keep going in the meantime. I'm just trying to figure out if it... Uh, I feel like it would have come up first, though, since I put in Mega Powers. So... There might not actually be a trademark there. And that's why they're calling themselves the Mega Powers, but maybe they're not merchandising it just to be safe. Well, whatever. All right, on the February 17th episode Saturday night, Torch talks about uh, how the mud was flying, where Tony Schiavone said that the WCW hotline has been around for years, but it wasn't until Gene Okerlund arrived that it took off. That was a direct shot of Jim Ross, used to host Saturday night segments. And speaking of, the gag order and talking about WF got bigger over the past week as WCW's hotline people were told they couldn't mention WF for anything in or about the WWF. The order came from the Turner lawyers, not WCW lawyers, who don't want anyone seeing anything until after the merger goes through. Hey, well, uh, Time Warner merger. The ban was somewhat rescinded and that they were allowed to give straight match results of the pay-per-view show. <laughs> In other words, everything ends up being Mark Matten's fault. <laughs> well, I mean, 
Smart madness, smart madness. People are finding out more and more on Twitter these days. Yes. Okay, so this is very interesting, Chris, what I just found. Look on the trademark search. There end up being... Do these have the same serial numbers? Okay, no, they have two different serial numbers. I'm guessing they're for different uses. Two trademarks filed by the same entity for mega powers as one word. That's why it wasn't the top result, I guess, because I searched for mega space powers. Would you like to guess who filed for these and when? No idea. So, originally filed in October 91, and uh, published for opposition May 92, and eventually abandoned February 93, by Terry Balea of Northridge, California. Hmm. Which, A, I don't think I realized he had a California home at the time, but not surprising. So why is he applying for this on his own and not using... Okay, so that's also probably how Hogan figures out that they can start calling themselves the Mega Powers because it was his trademark application. Yeah. And they knew... That also means they probably... He knew. So why didn't he say that in the first place? Why I have no mega... idea, Bex. I don't know. I don't know. It's I a rhetorical know. question. but I don't anyway. know. Don't know. Oh, yeah. All right. Hey. Stand with the tourists. New Japan's booking the U.S. talent exclusively through WCW. That means anyone working for New Japan regularly may not be able to do so if they lose their job at WCW. Bam Bam Bigelow, who is looking at touring with New Japan regularly, would apparently have to get a job with WCW to get booked with New Japan. Hmm. We'll have more on Bam Bam Bigelow later on the show regarding this as well. So, I mean, that's their partner, you know? I mean, yeah, I kind of see why. New Japan is going exclusively with WCW. Well, remember, what did Masa Saito say to Benoit, Malenko, Guerrero, and maybe Sabu last summer? We consider WCW New Japan West. Yeah, exactly. And that's one reason why the Road Warriors come back. That's one reason why the Steiners come back. The possibility of going back to New Japan. Which both of them do. Yes. Now, I wonder why Bigelow doesn't come in. Well, we'll have more on that later. Uh, All right. Uh, to the torch again. Razor Ramon and 123 Kids shouldn't feel too bad about their diaper match. Sting and Lex Luger took out a full-page ad for their gym in Atlanta Weekly. Probably creative loafing. Uh, the ad read, Stop babying yourself and featured a photo of Luger and Sting naked except for diapers. Luger had a pacifier in his mouth, and Sting, without makeup, was hugging a teddy bear and sucking on a baby bottle. Another ad picture Sting and Lex in the likeness of Beavis and Butthead, where Sting was Beavis. I wish this was online. Uh, I have always wanted to see these, and yeah. I never have. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in Creative Loafing. That's what it sounds like, which is kind of like, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a weekly Atlanta rag um, that I mean, you can find. Basically, it was, it's Atlanta's alt-weekly. Yeah, pretty much. You know, to your, you know, your various cities, new times, your village voice, etc. Yeah, I mean, at one point in time, it was like the go-to for their, like, the best in Atlanta ratings and stuff like that. Yep. Like, best restaurants in Atlanta, so forth and so on. So, yeah, I I never saw them, so I wish I could see them, too. I don't think creative loafing is in any like databases scans of it or anything, right? No. I've never seen it. So No. 
No, not at all. All right, uh, and to close out, we've heard conflicting stories regarding the debut of Mongo Man Michael in the ring. One is that he'll debut on WCW show in Chicago May 19th. Man, with my, with my dick in his corner. We should get a decent amount of national and tons of local pub if they were to do it. The other is that the debut was about the June in Baltimore, and Michael will form a tag team with Kevin Green, where the latter story was given to the Observer with more credits, but the former makes far more sense. Well, the latter is what happens. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history with that one. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. Is he, the, is he the best athlete that translated worst in the ring? Um, Otis Sistrunk was pretty bad. I was going to say, it's him or Otis Sistrunk, right? Yeah, I mean, that would be two of the ones that come off the top of my head. Ernie Holmes wasn't that good either. Um... Yeah. It's mainly football players. Yeah, if we're talking like NFL and Olympic caliber athletes, it would be Mongo, Otis Sistrunk. Would you go with any of like the Judicas or anyone? Is it Judica or Judoka? Well, it's just Ernie both, right? But I'm just thinking like any of the people like in Japan, like would you say like a Willem Ruska or Anton Giesenk or anyone would fit that bill or not? I haven't seen enough. I haven't really seen enough of them to judge. Okay. Uh, I can't really say. But there you go. WC, everybody. All right, now let's go to the Ultimate Fighting Championships. And uh, had quite the uh, show this week. And we still go with Dave here. All week long, there was some question whether the ninth Ultimate Fighting Pay-Per-View would take place in Puerto Rico. In midweek, things were not going USC's way after a Puerto Rican government ordered a ban of the show combined with one of the major cable systems in the United States to decide not to carry the event. The ruling in Puerto Rico was overturned during the day before the show was scheduled at their federal court fight, and USC 9 went on its schedule at Ramon Rodriguez Arena in Bayamon near San Juan. However, despite USC officials scoring their biggest win to date in the day leading up to the show, they also suffered their greatest economic loss. Cablevision Systems Corporation, facing political and religious pressure, particularly in their home base in Connecticut, Canceled airing of the USC and all the systems two days before the scheduled event, along with the scheduled replay showings. In a statement to consumers, the company said they expect to never air USC or similar type of events in their future. In response, before Entertainment Group, the parent company USC took out a full-page ad on the day of the show in the Long Island Daily newspaper Newsday, explaining that the show wouldn't be available on pay-per-view in the area and who to call to voice their complaints. Reported the switchboards at Cablevision's main office were flooded with irate callers all day Friday and Saturday. The ban of USC from approximately 1.5 million addressable homes covered nationwide by Cablevision, which is strongest in the Northeast and represents 7% of total pay potential audience, became a major topic of discussion the next day on the Howard Stern Show. Stern is both a fan of UFC and SEG has bought advertising for this card on his show. His show was also sponsored by Extreme Fighting before its pay-per-view show, and Stern show basically served as the main venue for getting information out on extreme fighting when it was in the midst of controversy in New York area and had to move their show to North Carolina last minute. Stern called the decision by Cablevision Gestapo tactics and said the only problem was he could, he could see with USC is that it's not tele- on television more often. Stern, whose home is part of Cablevision's coverage, threatened to cancel his cable coverage and buy a satellite dish because he was so mad at the company's decision. Campbell McLaren of SEG, who was the co-executive producer of Vincent, the SEG hadn't signed a contract with Cablevision. 
which the group did the form them, they're going to violate until the day for the event. Much of the pressure on cable vision is from based in Norwalk, Connecticut, in which it averaged a 0.9 buy rate for US events 1995, came due to pressure from Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal. Bix, you want to talk about who Richard Blumenthal is? He's the one who beat Linda for the Senate the second time? Or was it the first? He's the senator now. Well, no, because it was Dodd who she ran against first, right? Yeah. And then Blumenthal second. Yeah. So, huh. Yeah. Also, the douchebag, did he lie about— He was the one who lied about serving in Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. Lied about serving in Vietnam and won Senate. Which— What is the Senate? Wasn't that a crime at some point? Yes. About serving in Vietnam. Yes, and he and now he's a senator. I know Linda McMahon's no saint. I know, but, but good, I mean, good Lord. Lord, does that show how just how much those people did not want to vote for Linda McMahon? Yeah, they lied about a guy who lied about his military service. Jesus, here uh. he is here. Anyway, Reverend Thomas Styler Styers of Greenwich, Connecticut, led the local protest collecting more than 300 signatures to petition against support of the area's Council of Churches and Synagogues and use that pressure to get Blumenthal and U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman uh, all comes together. to join forces with them. Blumenthal sent letters to every cable system in the state asking them to follow Cablevision's lead and not air the event. I'm quite troubled by the senseless violence that this contest promotes. Aggression and cruelty has formed entertainment with promises of bloody matches. Blumenthal wrote in his letters to cable companies. Blumenthal followed it up with a press conference the day before the event where he called USC inherently despicable programming and claimed he encouraged violent behavior in our society. TCI, the largest and most profitable cable conglomerate in the United States, was quoted in trade journal Multi-Channel News as not expecting his company to follow the lead. It's fairly controversial programming. We're going to continue to look at it, but we don't think there's any cause to censor it in the company. In the company, said Rick Bilkey, the company's peer-review manager. Cox Cable in Hartford, Connecticut, also decided against pressure from the Attorney General, saying that responsible viewers will make the decision as to what they want to watch. Well, good for these people. The Connecticut Civil Liberties Union publicly criticized the opponents of USC, claiming their intent to get the event not shown constituted coercive censorship. The cable company should tell Blumenthal to get lost. He's not no right. He's got no right to tell the public what they can and cannot watch, said CCLU Director Joe Grabars. Grabars was not against the religious protest event, but differentiated that in Blumenthal's actions, claiming cable companies may feel undue pressure from Blumenthal because they are government-licensed public utilities and may be afraid to hang their high-ranking government or authority figure. Intermedia Partners, a smaller cable system, has also decided in January, based on pressure from political opponents of the show, not to carry future UFC or EFC events on pay-per-view. So, all right, what we got here is uh, you found the image. Tell Cablevision I want my UFC. Cablevision does not think you should watch on fighting championships on pay review. Call Jim Dolan. Well, the name the names just get better and better. At Cablevision five one six three nine three fifteen ten to find out why. Then call a friend who has Direct TV or satellite dish or visit your fa- local favorite sports bar. They have a choice. Placed by SEG Sports Corporation. And by the way, you can tell they had to throw this thing together last second because there was no sense of, like, layout or design to it. No. Well, shit. 
<laughs> what day was it that it went down? It's a... The day before the show. So there you go. Well, good for them for having at least enough time to do this, I guess. I don't... Ugh. And at the time... Okay. I had not bought any of them on pay-per-view yet. But I remember there have only been seven so far. And I'm a child. I mean, my parents will rent the videos and stuff. But still, like, I would have had to figure out one that either... You're, hey, you're the audience they don't want watching this show, Bix. Chris? Your child. Okay, but Chris, who 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 was responsible for me seeing my first UFC? My dad bringing home a screener of UFC 2 from work. <laughs> well, you, hey, your parents are not responsible. That's what Dick Blumenthal would have said. I mean, I, I have been thinking about recently. Wait, didn't I bring this up already? How... <laughs> They did buy me some toys uh, when I was like two or three years old that I think pro were probably labeled for five and up. So there is that. Um, it was I. The fact that it's happening in such an isolated way after so relatively little pressure too. At the t it was just so weird, you know. Like this is who you're giving it up over. I mean, have the has the Larry King episode and stuff even happened here? Or does that happen as a result of this? Oh, I don't know timeline. But I'm saying we're like we're so early into the opposition, and that boy did Cablevision fold. You know, TCI at least it seems like Leo Hendry personally did not want it on there. Yeah. You know, this is well, this is just straight up folding to pressure. <laughs> yeah. And minimal pressure at that. Um, now, is this the end of the controversy with the pay-per-view and the Observer and stuff and Torch here, or do we have more? Um, this is, this is basically it as far as that. Okay, because there, I mean, I'm seeing, I mean, I'm actually searched on ProQuest first, because sometimes it's isolated down to the article, not just the pages. Um, I mean, I'm seeing a few Hartford Current articles, with the last one being... From the end of our week, the 22nd, with the headline, Cable Show May Sue for Lost Revenue. Uh, That's not... I mean... I don't know. Uh, okay. Well, I'll read this quickly. Uh, I won't read the whole thing. In a February 16th letter to Blumenthal, an attorney for the UFC said he would seek damages from Blumenthal and the state for any losses his client incurred after Blumenthal called on cable systems not to broadcast Ultimate Fighting Championship uh, 8. Uh, he has no power to do it. Uh, oh, <laughs> I didn't realize Bob Marowitz's brother or cousin was the lawyer because David H. Marowitz is their is UFC's lawyer. Um, he argued that the attorney general's letter to cable systems on a state letterhead constituted a veiled threat to conform to Blumenthal's witches or be punished. You know, um, talks about pancreation in the ancient Olympics, blah, blah, blah. Um... Blumenthal released a statement Wednesday saying it, it is part of his job to protect Connecticut citizens and children in particular against senseless violence. Quote, I will not allow purveyors and profiteers of violence to gag me and stifle an important public debate that has implications for Connecticut and the nation. Um, hold them for liable for losses, cables and blah, blah, blah. Community protest. Uh, do we have a David Isaacs quote? Um, he said they lost a substantial amount because Cablevision dropped the broadcast from its systems throughout the country. He said about 300,000 U.S. households ordered the event. So this would have been an incredibly successful show with Cablevision on board. Because yeah. 300,000 is, if not their 
best at this point, it's close to it. So, you know, that's probably at least a 325000 buy show with Cablevision. So, uh, I, I just don't get buckling to this. I mean, I get, I get the Blumenthal thing to a point, but you know what? If I'm a fucking cable company, don't you want to fight the attorney general of the state doing this? <laughs> are you worried? Are you worried that he's going to play real hardball and like go after licensure and stuff? I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to deal with. Because I mean, also, I mean, let's be realistic. Like from this perspective, especially talking about it being aired on cable on pay per view, this is not something someone in a public office should be doing in this way. Like. <sighs> McCain, for whatever you want to say about him, like, did he ever do anything like this? Was he writing to cable companies on Senate letterhead? No. That's what I'm saying. He was, like, he was using his pulpit, but I don't, like, I don't remember him using the office the way that Lumenthal did here. Do you? He wasn't going out and trying to force them to... To force people to do things. I mean, I don't even remember. Did he? I don't even remember if he was specifically lobbying to cable companies or if he was just saying generally that he didn't think this was right. It was more of that, yeah, right? It's more of that, yes. So, like this, this is pretty extreme and messed up on Blumenthal's part. Well, I mean, it don't surprise me. Mm. You know, I mean, that's. I mean, he lied about serving in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just that's just the mo of some politicians. You know, they want to force their their agendas on people you know so yeah just don't surprise me yeah i'm curious if there are any cable vision quotes um <laughs> did we have any cable vision quotes in the observer coverage because there is an amazing one here in newsday no this, this is an event devoted to people beating the life out of each other said peter lowe vice president of programming for the woodbury based cable operator yeah you don't carry any of those <laughs> By the way, are we assuming that's either Jim Dolan's home number or office direct line? It's probably office line. Because that's yeah, not that because like I have the old Cablevision phone number memorized from back then and it is not that. Jim Dolan of course is James Dolan, the same guy that owns the New York Knicks now. So well, Cablevision was his thing before he eventually divested it to uh Suddenlink. Yeah. But yeah, so that's your backdrop to the show. But there's other things to talk about. Despite major concern until the court filing that day before the event as to whether or not the show would take place in a scheduled site, so they had that going on too. Yeah, it, it drew a rabid and borderline out of control crowd of 5,500 fans, easing the wildest crowd to attend a USC event to date. Not a shock. Although the overall caliber of the competitors was not the level of the previous shows, it was from the response here. The most entertaining USC to date, gaining an almost unheard of 100% thumbs up in the poll. Several matches went back and forth, and without overpowering wrestlers like Dan Severn involved, striking, in particular punching and elbows, were able to be used effectively as brutal finishers. The size and strength differences actually, in most cases, worked in favor of making matches both more competitive and more entertaining. Also, and I'm surprised Dave isn't mentioning this here, it's not a tournament show, so everyone is fresh. Well, yeah, maybe I haven't mentioned it yet. Well, sure, but this is the first non-tournament show. However, because of all the political and religious group pressure, 
Subway caused by a negative piece on ABC's 2020 one week before the show. There we go. SCG was noticeably leery about its own product. The announcers, in particular former kickboxing legend Don the Dragon Wilson. Wait a second, Dan, Chris. Say it correctly. Kickboxing. Thank you. Continually made references to USC being both safer and more entertaining than boxing or kickboxing, saying it's much better if their injuries did not have injuries to the brain. The latter two sports are known for, in which USC provides a much smaller risk of. And point out that the nature of USC, because of the smaller serious injury rate, as compared with boxing and kickboxing, provides for the opportunity for the fighters to have longer careers. The show had two legitimate knockouts, one from punches, another from elbows. You know, Jeff Blatnick pointed out that the first knockout was exactly the same as any boxing knockout. The cameras were focused on crowd shots rather than a fallen competitor being helped up by the medical crew. So, uh, yeah, they had their version of Kevin Dunn there. Uh, later, after the event, even more be- brutal finish was led to a second knockout finish. Not only did the cameras go again to the crowd shots rather than show the fallen competitor being worked on, but the finish was so brutal, they didn't even show a replay. In both cases, the fallen competitors were able to get up, leave the ring on their own power. At press time, we were able to get information in regards to what injuries, if any, were suffered during the show, but it was said during the broadcast that Paul Barlins suffered a broken bone in his foot during his winning effort in the first round and was unable to advance in the tournament. Oh, wait a second. This is a tournament. I, mean, I was thinking UFC 9. Carry on. <laughs> Ken Shamrock made chemo submit in 424 to a knee bar in a super fight, while former Arizona State and Oklahoma State University wrestler Don Fry. The Protege Dan Severn captured the David versus Goliath tournament to highlight the show. And from Bayamon on February 16th, since the show was so universally well received, Dan would like to start off with a few negative comments regarding UFC. As has been mentioned many times in interviews with competitors in martial arts magazines, even mentioned UFC's own press kit in an interview with Dan Severn, there needs to be drug testing. It's not a cure all, but it's a small step that at this point needs to be taken. There needs to be HIV testing. Perhaps more not to allow the sports critics any unneeded ammunition. And if there's a legit threat of the disease spreading, then definitely if this is sport, which it is, rather than legalized street fights, drugs that have competitive advantage, and days only referring to steroids, certainly including steroids, bastardize the competitive aspects of the sport. The other change has to do with time limits. Obviously, time limits in a pay-per-view event are a necessity, and we've all seen why in the past. However, on this show, the latest shortening of the time limits could have been a negative, although on this show it turned out to be a positive. Time limits for the first round and the semifinals were shortened to 10 minutes, with both the tournament, championship, and super fight title to be shortened from 30 to 21, of which would be a regulation of 15 and two minute, two three minute overtimes. It had a little effect on this event, it's only one match with the time limit, and quite frankly, it was better off considering the way the match was going, that time limit was 10 minutes. Time had to balance three aspects, the buying and viewing publics wanting to see a legitimate winner, not boring the public with lengthy matches that don't make first sight television, and the time constraints of doing the show. After the pay-per-view events, a few things come to buy. The most exciting match in the history of UFC was Oleg Tartarov against Take Abbott, which was a little over 18 minutes, the way they do the time now. It was 17.47 then, but now they keep clock running during the restarts. By the current rules, that match probably would have gone the time limit because Abbott would have gotten a momentary breather of 15 minutes and 18 minutes, which may have been enough for him to last the distance. And by today's standards, it would have resulted in a draw, and Abbott would have won the decision, and with the fight and the fight would have been neither as exciting nor memorable had that occurred. The Hoist Gracie Dan Severn match, where Gracie's thrilling and memorable victory may have also ended in the same manner under a shorter time limit. 
and judges' decision rules that it's a finished game after the 15 minute mark. At the same time, none of the 30 36 minute matches in USC history, Severin Tartaroff, Tartaroff Shamrock, Shamrock Gracie, would have been hurt. One iota had they been cut back on time. None of the three were great spectator matches, although the crowd live enjoyed Severin Tartaroff a lot more than the live crowd enjoyed the other two. Partially because it could see more action, and also because the audience itself is getting smarter. Daysville's track record shows you need at least 18 minutes, 30 seconds without a break for the main event. Dave would suggest a time in that 24 to 25 minute range. It's more than enough time that viewers aren't cheating enough of a finish with guys who actually would go to finish and any longer worse against the match. So Dave would suggest a 20 minute time limit with about a four or five minute overtime for the super fight and championship matches. For the prelims, he'd link in a time from 10 to 15. But because when you have a sport with major size differentials, when the advantage of smaller men have often is conditioning, which plays more of a part to the time as it goes on. In many people's eyes, the most exciting fight in this show was Scott Barroso against Jerry Bolander, which ended with less than one minute left on the time limit with a smaller man winning. That fight would have been far less exciting to remember if they had gone to the time limit, and they nearly did. It was evidence that 10 minutes is too short. Scott Barroso fought Jerry Bolander. <laughs> there is a size difference there. A big one. I mean, those are basically the two biggest possible opposites you can get in the UFC in this era is those two guys. Pretty much. So what are your thoughts on what Dave's saying here, Bix? I kind of want to reserve some of it for as we go fight by fight because, I mean, one of the big things is that I think as Goodridge Paul Herrera proves, even though no one really thought about it that way at the time, this is probably the show where we start to see in certain cases, size and power beating technique. Yeah. So I feel like I can expand on some of these thoughts more as we get to the actual fights. As far as the time limits, well, the 25-minute idea sure ended up working right long-term. Yeah. But it's just tricky because, you know, you don't have the Gracies in the mix anymore, but you also know that based on where jiu-jitsu and related grappling arts are in this era that the guys need time and you don't want to betray that and i think that's probably at the center of the time limit discussion at this time you know Mm-hmm. all right so um the show itself drew probably five thousand fans to the ruben rodriguez arena which is set up for about 7500 probably four thousand was paid we don't have a gate estimate, but it wasn't as high as past UFC shows that have drawn crowds in the same paid range. Tickets were scaled from $15 up through $350. However, we were told the vast majority of the fans have paid either $15 and $25, and expense tickets were larger than once papered. Having said all that, the show was excellent. Most of the newcomers appear to be skilled enough with the exception of Thomas Ramirez. Shamrock Akimo was the most exciting in the Super Bowl today, and also saw Shamrock actually on his back taking punch for the first time in his UFC career before showing his submission skills in the finish. All right, first fight. Wait, wait, wait. He thinks Ferrozo was skilled? Okay. <laughs> Let's huh? I'm what saying, if, if, if he's saying everyone but Thomas Ramirez was skilled, he's saying Ferrozo was skilled. Was Scott Ferrozo a newcomer on the show? Okay, yeah, I'm not sure if this is the first one. All right. So, anyway. Don Fry, who bossed professionally in Mexico and wrestled collegiately while he was at Arizona State, 
when the coaches were Severin. He was one of Severin's training partners for the Ultimate Ultimate December. Billed at 206, although lifted about 195. Docked out. Thomas Ramirez of Bayamon in 10 seconds with a punch inside the jaw. Ramirez was built at 410 pounds and looked every bit of it. But he was 41 years old and terribly out of shape. He was a hometown favorite and appeared to have been a ticket seller. But he was the one competitor who looked to have had no business being there. So basically, he was the uh, Rockshaw 337 of USC. How about that? <laughs> I love that of all the USA Pro ticket sellers you brought up, you brought up Rockshaw 337. <laughs> so yeah they i mean they they got a guy found on here doing it basically a ticket seller gimmick amazing I, that happens in mma now i know um I'm, and by the way i am pulling up don fry's box rec entry which also i didn't realize that box rec was now requiring a login to see stuff for some reason yes i know that what do you think don <laughs> fry's pro, uh, pro boxing record is uh, no idea Two, five, and one, all but one of the wins and losses being KOs. The only fight he had, so he had two, only two of the eight fights were not KOs. One loss and the draw. Well, how about that? Yes. And, uh, it's, well, okay. If he had more fights in Mexico, that could be a question mark because. He could have found an suit name. He could have. There's only one Mexican fight listed. Most of his fights are at uh, the original home of the Herb Abrams UWF TV tapings, the Reseda Country Club in beautiful Reseda, California. How about that? Yes. So anyway, he beat the shit out of Thomas. Yes. Paul Barlins, six foot eight, three and twenty-five ish, won a unanimous judge decision in what would have to be classified as a major upset over Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner Joe Moriera, a Gracie student originally from Brazil, who was managed by Alan Goas who had now a legendary pancreas match last year with Frank Shamrock going to a draw, but having his ankle broken in the process. This is Paul uh, 1-10-12 with a 10-minute time limit. Moreira was billed as 5-11-205, looked to be about 5-9-200, and was dwarfed. Based on rep and experience, he was considered as the pre-show favorite. The match was terrible, in that Moreira appeared to be intimidated with Varlins of size and mainly danced away. Occasionally locking up, throwing a punch while breaking the lockup and dancing some more. Varlins didn't want to go to the mat with a submission expert. Moreira didn't want to try to take down a mountain, which resulted in a dancing stalemate. Varlins was moving forward, so he was the aggressor and got in a flurry towards the end, which probably spelled the difference in the decision. However, Varlins could continue in the tournament, reportedly due to a broken bone in his foot, so perhaps when Moreira stomped on his foot. Moreira was unimpressive, and at this point, the show did not look promising. Ah, uh, yes, the injuries. And, uh, yeah. Hey, if you got a broken bone in your foot, I don't think you were going to find any more. Yeah. I, think about all the fights we've seen where a broken toe messed someone up badly, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I think back to, no one thinks of it this way anymore, and I know this is after you stop watching MMA, but still. One of these days, uh, people, if you are a UFC fan, go back and watch Mark Hunt versus Junior Dos Santos. And note how until Mark Hunt breaks his toe, he is beating the shit out of him. <laughs> like, it's right after he breaks his toe that Dos Santos knocks him down and the fight turns towards his direction. So, yeah. It makes a difference. Yes. 
Jerry Bolander, a student in Camp Shamrock uh, from Lawford, California, built a 511-200, but looks to be more like 185-190, overcame a huge size power disadvantage and winning with the winner of a choke over 5'10", 330-pound Scott Ferrozo, Las Vegas, 905. Ferrozo used his size to outpower Bolander, who never panicked even when Ferrozo was on top of him with all his weight, throwing headbutts. Ferrozo bled early, and at one point they stopped the match to check cuts, but doctors ruled they were superficial. Eventually, Bolander used Ferrozo's own ring outfit, twisted his straps around his neck, and started choking him down, and eventually won with a choke. This was an exciting back-and-forth match. Good lord, Scott Ferrozo. Got choked up by your own gear. Yeah, he Andre got Andre the Giant, but in reverse, I guess. Basically, yeah. Gary Goodrich, a six foot three hundred fifty eight pound arm wrestler, strong man, amateur boxer, and Colt Sulwan practitioner from Barrie, Ontario, destroyed Paul Herrera, five foot nine hundred eighty five pounder, uh, former college wrestler at the University of Nebraska, who was seconded by Tank Abbott in thirteen seconds. Herrera went in for the takedown, but the larger Goodrich ran to stretch him, leaving his head wide open for barrage of eight devastating elbow strikes to the jaw and cheekbone. Herrera was not out by the first blow, and Goodrich managed to get many more in before John McCarthy could jump in and stop it. One of the most brutal finishing sequences in UFC history. You know we need to watch this. Yeah. With how short it is and how easy it is to find. So. Colorado and Canada. One thing you don't see, Bruce, underneath that key is a set of arms that is huge. He clearly is way more powerful than Paul Herrera. And quickly, Herrera shoots the leg. And Herrera's a very good grappler here. Oh. Oh, my. Elbows <laughs> in number by Goodridge, and that is it. Goodridge went pounding to Herrera's head with those elbows. Boy, that was fast. Wow. That was short and sweet. That was explosive. I'm not sure which one took him out. Uh, they were so quick in such rapid succession. I think John got in there as quick as he could. But um, he looks to be all right. He's moving. Uh, he's talking to the doctor. Don Wilson sounds like he thinks he's going to get arrested at any moment. <laughs> um, he's scared. Okay. <laughs> As we say every time we talk about Gary Goodrich, look, Paul Herrera was an excellent collegiate wrestler. Mm -hmm. Even with the size difference, you would expect him to, if not have his way with Goodrich, who it's not clear actually had any martial arts experience, more on that in a minute. But this Cooksville One Academy that gave him a black belt if he'd represent their academy in the UFC. I don't know if it's that, or I don't know if it's whatever street fights he had been in. Because, again, he's basically just an arm wrestler at this point. Sprawls beautifully on the takedown attempt. Locks Herrera into a cru crucifix. And murders him with elbows. <laughs> Like, oh, it just destroyed him. Think about it this way. In early UFC, how many other times have we even seen a sprawl close to as good as what Goodridge hit to stuff to the takedown here? It's very well done. Like, he is a guy who was just a natural at this. Yeah. Like we say every time, modern with modern training, that guy is probably UFC heavyweight champion. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, Herrera, again, though, like, we cannot stress enough. Herrera was an excellent wrestler. He sticks around MMA for a long time as a wrestling coach. He was not a schlub. And yet he still falls victim to a guy who has ne- who had either no martial arts experience or very little, who just, besides being big and strong and fast, also took very well to this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it also shows, as I was saying, this is the first time you really see skill, especially grappling skill, not be able to just run through a bigger, stronger guy. You know, like, I, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't say Taktarov Abbott counts, even forgetting that Taktarov wins, because, you know, Abbott was, as much as he kayfaved it, Abbott was a really good, you know, high school and I think maybe also college wrestler, you know, he tried to hide it because of the gimmick. So, it takes time before this happens more, but this is really a very important fight in UFC history, if you think about it that way. Yeah, Goodrich had the had the ability, but just it never fully transitioned into the the matches. Yeah. Also, I don't know if you saw the gif of the elbows from Saturday's UFC as we're recording this. No. Um, possibly the most brutal elbow finish in UFC. You know, Grand Pound elbows in UFC history since this. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So with Paul Barlins out. Don Fry's second-round opponent was 30-year-old retired pro boxer Sam Atkins, much larger, 6'3", 270 pounds, from Houston. Former sparring partner of Tommy Morrison. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Of all the weeks. Yeah, we'll have more Tommy Morrison as we go along, but yes, of but, all the weeks, yes. Wow, I did not realize that. Yes. Uh, Fry, also 30, had bots pro. Atkins, if you going to try boxing, but fanning him out. And went for a single leg take down, land on top of him, threw punch at the punch on Atkins, splitting his head open before the match was stopped at 47 seconds. That's another thing that doesn't really get talked about, that Fry is the first guy to really have any kind of well-rounded skill set. You know, I feel like Vitor gets credited with it more, even though you have Fry here a year earlier as a guy who's a grappler with boxing. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't just a grappler that was, you know, throwing strikes. I mean, he was a guy who had boxing training. Yeah. All right, Gary Goodrich beat Jerry Bolander. That's another size difference at 534. Goodrich got Bolander in a front face lock immediately, but Bolander managed to escape. The two went back and forth with Goodrich using his pure power, while Bolander used his skill from amateur wrestling and technique from the lion's den training. As Bolander was going for the ankle, Goodrich held onto the cage key from being taken down, threw a punch straight down, and knocked Bolander silly. And McCarthy quickly jumped in to stop the match. So power save Goodrich there. Ken Shamrock over Chemo in 424. Shamrock immediately landed a quick punch, took Chemo down. Shamrock worked positioning from the top, finally got Chemo to turn over, exposing his throat. As he went for the show, Chemo managed to reverse the position on Shamrock and went up on top. Kimo threw a few headbutts. He got this punch in, which opened a mouse into Shamrock's eye. As he went for a second punch, he didn't hit nothing but the mat, allowing Shamrock to hook his ankle. Kimo kept getting out of Shamrock's, uh, trying to get out of Shamrock's guard, but Shamrock kept going back until they finally got the knee, knee bar in, and Kimo submitted. A big super fight there with Shamrock and Kimo. Yeah, and it's the reason it's 
most exciting super fight so far, really, is that it's the first one that's not particularly evenly matched. No. Oh, Fry beat Gary Goodrich at 215 to capture the tournament. This was a back-and-forth match as Fry had the better roster skill, however, Goodrich, even though he had less wrestling background, managed to take Fry down twice with pure power. Fry escaped with a backdoor move and went up on top of Goodrich and began throwing punches until Goodrich tapped out. Now, Goodrich goes to his memorable knockout in the first round, exciting fights in the second, third round, combined with a great personable post-match interview, probably came out of the show stronger as a drawing card than even Don Fry. Goodrich said his weakness was conditioning. Although Fry's skill, both standing and wrestling, appeared from the first moment to be too much for him. Oh, yes, yeah, so another thing, too. Gary Goodrich on a microphone. You know, I mean, he he could talk. You know, he's a yeah, witty guy, too. Yeah. Yeah. So he would be around the, the major MMA scene for quite a few years after this. So this is his breakout, yeah, so to speak. And also think about it this way, though. And this is at a time where he is not a striker. So he doesn't have, like, that extra layer to kind of distract Fry with and set up takedowns with. And he still takes down Fry twice. Yeah. Like, so, ridiculously uh, impressive. And then, if you know, it's the next UFC, and the, he I, I think it's the next UFC, right, where he fights Mark Schultz, Goodrich does? Yeah, UFC mm -hmm. 9. And it takes a Mark Schultz a big Olympic wrestler who's also really good at jiu-jitsu to actually physically handle him in any way. And even yeah. then, he gives him a long fight. So, uh, I, I mean, the biggest shame of it is that, though, he was never a particularly good kickboxer. He, was, he wasn't bad, but they're putting him in with the best heavyweight kickboxers in the world. And... That appears to be what really did the damage with him more than his MMA career. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> All right, but the big some of the big news from this show took place well not inside the octagon per se. The unscheduled brawl after the Shamrock Kimo match was confirmed as being between Tank Abbott and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu expert Alan Goez, best known for wrestling circles for his amazing draw and shoot match on Pancreas Show against Frank Shamrock last May. Goez, who managed Joe Moreira on the show, described as a Brazilian version of Tank Abbott, but with more <laughs> skill, was, according to Abbott, challenging him, making face to him at various times, denied the show. After the main event, Tank, who was at the show to work Paul Herrera's corner, reportedly pulled out his false teeth <laughs> and charged after Goez in a brawl in the aisleway that had to be broken up by security and had to take Abbott back to the hotel. The announcers, when the cameras was on the brawl briefly, and the fan threw a chair, which hit one of the officials trying to break it up, talked it up as if it was another example of fan violence that unfortunately takes place at all sporting events. <sighs> and of all places to do this is in Puerto Rico, where, you know, fans have a reputation in Puerto Rico. We've seen it on Puerto Rico wrestling trip on videos and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when they're upset, they're not afraid to express their anger. They should be glad there weren't more uh, used diapers or anything around. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, it's crazy fans sometimes, in, you know, in these places. And uh, this is, it, 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 I'm sure it's definitely more interesting considering that, you know, this is actual shoot fighting going on here. You know, not that fake pro wrestling stuff. So, I mean, they get shoot stuff now. Anyway, um, during the show, they announced this review from Kobo Arena in Detroit on May 17th. The matches are official, but it's made clear that they want to put a Shamrock Seven main event. We'll put that on top. 
Severin did a color during the Super Biden after the show, which ended early. And a wrap up of the idea that being next man, the next man event was talked about in the detail. The show would consist of six singles matches with three of them most likely being Tank Abbott against Dave Benito, Ola Tatarf against King of the Streets Marco Huas, and Koji Katow against Mark Hall, who beat Howard, Harold Howard in an upset in Buffalo before losing to Orleans. In the ultimate David Goliath match, this Hall's probably 185 pounds, and uh, Coach Katow was well over 300 pounds. Yes. So, how about that Tank Abbott Alan Goez, huh? False teeth, huh? Yeah. Okay. You know, this is <laughs> it's it's quite the visual. I wish we could see that too. Tanking his dentures. <laughs> I'm shocked no one suggested they do an angle with it in WCW. I know. Dentures on the pole. They also put the Pancrase review on April thirteenth, which why show Matsukasfanaki in the audience to explain who he was. They really didn't do a good job explaining what Pancrase was other than becoming the hottest martial arts event in Japan. And Don Wilson, who attended the last Pancreas card set, was similar to UFC when it comes to rules. It came out the most as similar for the plus WCW did when from Triple H's pay-per-view in 1994. I could get where Dave's coming from there with that. Hmm. But these Pancreas shows... The WCW Triple A stuff it just came off as weird. I was going to say foreign, but not in the foreign country way. It just... It, it felt very divorced from everything, whereas these... These Tay Pancrase shows were theoretically being offered more specifically as like this is a complement to the UFC with a very similar sport. Yeah, uh, and and we also got more on the Tank Abbott thing after the Shamrock Kimo match. It was a major fight in the aisle. We've heard different reports on exactly what happened, but at one point after a promo piece, they came back and you could see mayhem, including a fan throwing a chair and hitting what appeared to be a security guard. It was acknowledged there was a fight in the in the stands, and Dan Wilson said it was. Don Wilson, excuse me. So it was similar to any sports event where there are fights in the stands, while Bruce Beck, who gets better and better each show, and is sort of an excellent commentator for this event, although Dave gets a comparison with most wrestling commentators, anyone would look good. And Chef Blatnick said there was no place for action like that. Apparently, they started in the aisle with a brawl involving who else would take Abbott. Reports varied either Abbott would have to remember the Shadrout Lions did as they were leaving to survive, or Abbott went after Alan Goh as a well-respected jiu-jitsu practitioner. Referee John McCarthy and former UFC competitor Gary Harris, who handled security in that UFC events, broke the fight up. Yeah, so here's uh, more on that, on the Tank Abbott-Alan Goh situation here. And, yeah, Bruce Beck, I thoroughly enjoyed Bruce Beck as an announcer for UFC. Yes. He was the guy from before Mike Goldberg, folks. And boy, did he love Jerry Bolander. <laughs> Just the way he said his name. Jerry Bolander! He was excited. Yes. Also, I'm guessing you were like me when Mike Goldberg first showed up at Ultimate Japan. Like, where did they get this guy who, and keep in mind, this is earlier Mike Goldberg, not his style later. Where did they get this guy who sounds just like Bruce Beck? Well, I had, I mean, I was watching Mike Goldberg uh, here for a while. He was, he was the host of uh, Countdown the Signing Day. Um, replacing Bob Fasella on Sports South, which was the uh, show that spotlighted the upcoming college high school seniors going to college football. He was the host for um, at the same time. I mean, at same, he was hosting that show and doing UFC at the same time. Yeah. But he had already been hosting that show before he started in UFC. Yeah. But That's yeah, I, I, I knew Mike Goldberg, so I had experience with him. But he... 
they did go and find the person who sounded most like Bruce Beck, though. Well, yeah. Based I think on it was by how design. his voice and style were at the time. I think it's by design, too. Yes. I, I've never heard why Beck left, though. Well, he had, a, he had his main job, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Mm. You know, of, of being an anchor. Um, in fact, Broadcasting Cable named him the top local sports anchor in America, Bix, last year. He's at WNBC. He's their lead sports guy. Been that way since 1997. Oh yeah, which is that. which is when which is when he quit UFC. That's right. Okay, I forgot that it went that far back. That he's the weekend sports guy. Okay, he might be doing weeknights now too. But um, also, I'm not reading. He, yeah, he's lead sports anchor now. He's been lead sports anchor since 2009, Bix. Okay, but yeah, Bruce Beck had been around a long time. He called boxing in the 80s. I remember that. You know, he did. Uh, he he called he did him he was MSG's Boston announcer, so he's been around a long time. Yeah. Also, um, I'm not gonna read or anything. I'm guessing it at least hit subscribers, if not in our week, then even a little earlier. But uh, the Tank Abbott Esquire profile comes out in the March '96 issue, so that is presumably out and maybe even on newsstands by the time uh, we're in our week here. It's it's the one that features the story of uh, Tank and friends going, trying to find a bar and deciding to go to a gay bar and telling the reporter, we're not gay, we just don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to have a good time, I guess. I mean, then again, though, I mean, there are eyewitness accounts of him tongue-kissing men, so... <laughs> Well, I mean, maybe Tank was the guy, one of the, one of those guys that uh, that lived up to that moniker. Uh, it's not gay unless you make eye contact. Oh, he seems like someone who would definitely live up to that mantra. <laughs> mantra, yes, not moniker. Um, and, w- and in the wake of what I me said and mantra. Was, I see, yeah, I know, I said moniker. Oh, so okay. I, I was correcting myself. Okay. Um, and what in the wake of what me and calling the most USC to date? From Biomonda events for the next show on May 17th in Kobo and Detroit, headlined by Shamrock and Severn, is at a record setting clip. The show sold 4,000 tickets on February 17th. It's dead to preview. The first day tickets were on sale. Arena, which was scaled for 10,000 or less. By the end of the week, all $350, $250 seats have been sold. The only tickets priced at $125 and $15. So even with you know, all these issues they're having, I mean, they put on a hot show and it mm-hmm. is paying paying off them at the gates. So yeah, that's good for them. Yeah. All right, the current working plans and Dave Lindsay's matches have been verbally agreed to, but not all contractual finalists. We either for a six seven fight card on this show. It'll be the first year to be without a tournament picks. Well, we said that already, but yes. Besides the main event, other matches planned are who lost Tatarov, uh, Dave Benito against Abbott, Coach Cub Marcall. Uh, an expert named Batetti, I guess Joe Charles, and one or two a little more likely matches like in some form involving Don Fryer, Gary Goodrich. Okay, and that ends up being uh, Don Fry, Amiri Batesh, Mark Hall, Koji Katow, Mark Schultz, uh, Gary Goodrich, and then even that, that was, I forgot, that was a cut stoppage. That was not a TKO to strikes. Uh, I'm assuming this was a dark match there during the pay-per-view, because uh, I don't remember this. Rafael Carino uh, and Matt Anderson, Cal Worsham, Zane Frazier, 
Steve Mel Steve Nelmark type out in and the uh Severn Shamrock uh famously bad half hour fight. That's one way to put it. Famously bad. What was the oh what was the nickname that some people eventually gave that fight? Because it, it, I feel like it was a rhyming thing, but I can't think what was it. I feel like it was like the dance and the something, but I can't think of what they would have rhymed with dance. Like it wasn't. They, I don't think they rhymed anything with Kobo or Hall or Detroit. But anyway, it was something. It was something. Yes. Oh, was, right, it, uh, was it the stare down in Motown or something like that? Possibly. Well, the live showing at USC appears to have done approximately a point eight buy rate. And it's made 176,000 buys, $1.58 million gross. In an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, USC officials said the break even on the shows was about $1 million. In comparison to the two pro wrestling events held during the same nine-day time span, it looks like all three events did in the 0.6.8 range. That's pretty damn good that three pay-per-views in nine days all do that well. That all do at least 150,000 buys or so. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I figures from third party sources on all three shows, WS sources are claiming a 0. 0.77, 185,000 buys, 1.66 million, or 0.8 buy rate for In Your House. More on that later. Saying it was the highest rating In Your House shows the first one, and that's the first time In Your House buy rate has increased over the previous one since the start of the series. Ironically, WS officials, when there reports of buy rates in the 0. 0.4 range for two In Your House shows, claim the shows were doing in the 0. 0.85 range at the time. <laughs> are you kidding me? The show combined having a strongest box office main event, Britain Deeds in the Cage, was coming at a time when interest has picked up pro wrestling greatly. Again, before the NWO. Yes. Others that said WF buy rate was along the same lines as WCW's for Super Brawl, 0.6.7. Other three shows, WCW, because it was priced at 2795 as opposed to 1995 for USC and WWE, WF, will probably grow the most money because USC traditionally does a great business on replays compared with uh, traditional wrestling. And you and your house had no replay. You'll probably wind up with having the most actual buys and the highest buy rate in three shows. If WF's announced figures are accurate, they may have had more actual buys on the first show in USC because USC wasn't available in as many homes due to Cablevision's blackout of the show. In a sense, it's a feather that kept USC since they drew the buy rate without having any television, and this show had, with the exception of the 2020 piece, no national mainstream promotion the week leading to the show. It shows USC has developed a strong core audience that will watch this product even without most of the biggest names on the show. WCW, with their two cage matches, one which is Hogan and Giant, was only one of the three companies presenting what would be a blow-away show. UFC and WS shows are basically shows designed and built to the next show. Both were built into shows that would be considered major events, with UFC using the show to introduce new fighters that could be marketable down the line, and WF used the show to set up angles for WrestleMania, given all the factors involved. All three shows have to be labeled as successes financially. Uh, yes. And, Again, uh, I guess I Oh, go ahead. Like I said, the wrestling thing is pre-NWO. Yep. And with UFC, I did see in Newsday as we were talking here, they were claiming that cable, uh, SEG was claiming the cable vision would have probably, based on where the show was trending, accounted for like another ten to 15,000 buys. Which seems right based on the percentages and how many buys Dave is predicting here, or estimating. Yeah, they could have, it's very possible they could end up with over 200,000. Yeah, so that 300,000 number earlier seems like it was total bullshit, but still. Oh, still, like, this is really, I, the pay-per-view thing that all three of these shows did so well is really fascinating, and also, very good point Dave has also about the In Your House. 
Brett Diesel in a cage, especially with how the house shows has been doing, is by far the biggest match they've had main event in your house to date. Well, yeah. I mean, let's let's go over it real quick. Sid Diesel. Sid Diesel lumberjack match. Diesel and Sean versus Owen and Yoko with the, you know, all the titles on the line. Um, Diesel Davey. Brett Davey. And then this. Mm-hmm. Like, it, knowing that what suddenly picked up house shows in a big way was Diesel versus Brett versus Undertaker. Yeah, of course this is going to do the best so far. Yep. All right, let's go international now. Land of the Rising Sun, All Japan Pro Wrestling. The new tour opened up with sellouts on February 17th and 18th at Cork and Hall. Bobby Bradley from Southern California debuted in this tour as Rob Van Dam's tag partner. Loses to Cesaro Osaka on the opener the first night, and with Van Dam losing to Dan Croft and Doug Furness the second night. Bradley and Van Dam have formed a tag team with the Funt NWC out of Las Vegas. Usual opening match wrestlers Katara Shiga and Monokia Mossman got to work high on the card the first night as Mossman and Junakayama beat Katara Shiga and Toshiko Kawada. First night, Mavis saw Mitsuharu Masaki and Kabashi and Timon Honda go over Stan and Hansen, Gary Albright, and Rob Van Dam in 24-4 when Honda pinned Van Dam. Full results of this show, Masako over Bobby Bradley, Abdul Butcher and Kamala 2 over Masao Inoue and Yoshinarigawa, Can-Ams over Dorfman Jr. and Shoshikuchi, Jack Baba, Mitsuo Moto, Roshikamura over Ruka Ega, Masafuchi and Rikaku Izumita, Junakayama, Maki Amosman over Katarashi Yutoshikawada, Johnny Ace and the Patriot over Akira Tawa and Takao Mori, and then Kobashi Masao and Honda over Albright, Van Dam and Hansen. Now the next night, Akiyama and Takao Mori retained their all-Asian tag titles, beating Rikaku Izumita and Timon Honda 27-21, and Monokai Masman is only 20 years old, again we're tying the card, teaming with Gary Albright, losing to Johnny Ace and the Patriot. Man on this show is typical six-man with Kawada, Tawe, and Kikuchi over Masao, Kobashi, and Asako, and 24-02 when Osaka was pinned. Results of this show, Yoshinagawa over Kentaro Shiga. Dory Fun Jr. over Mighty Inoue. Haruka Egan and Masafuchi over Mitsuo Moto and Rush Kimura. Can-Ams over Bobby Bradley and Rob Van Dam. Akayama and Amor retain all these tag titles over Izumina and Honda. Bob and Hanson over Ab- Abdullah and Kamala 2. And then Tawe Kawana Kikuchi over Kabashi Masao and Asako in your main event. Any thoughts on the Corkin shows, Bix? Is this Bradley's only tour? I think so. Guessing he did not impress. Mm, probably not. And Van Dam probably got you know got the favor to get him in, and uh, he didn't uh, hold up his end of the bargain, I guess. No, and now Sabu ends up coming in eventually later in the year. Yeah, well, Sabu had already had a name in Japan, so they know what they get him. Yes, but he also work ends up working out better as uh, Van Dam's partner too for a bit. Well, naturally. Yeah. Although he has the the weird Al- Albright team too, but um, I guess really one of the more important things here is that we're seeing Ace and Patriot as a regular tag team, which is means this is the early stage of the short-lived Get Stable led by Kabashi with those two. Yes, which does not last long because Patriot ends up getting hurt and leaving and going to WWF while getting a fake doctor's note that says he's no longer hurt. Yes, from Dr. Yankum. Well, Dr. Joel Hackett, but close enough. <laughs> All right, so uh, two days later, Toshiko Kawada and Akira Tawe regained the double tag titles for Stan Hansen and Gary Albright on February 20th 
in Morioka when Tommy Pan Hansen after the Nodawatoshi choke slam in 2053 before 2950 fans. This sets up uh, Kawada Tawe's first defense on March 2nd in Budokan against Kabashi Nakayama. Which, given all the dynamics, every new push for Akiyama, who like to put on a show for eventually doing the job, may be a match of the year candidate. Kabashi Nakayama beat Miss Harabasawa to a Honda in the semi-main event when Akiyama pinned Honda in 2034. Results of this show showed Shiyoshi Kikuchi over Bobby Bradley, Rob Van Dam over Masao Inoue, Guitar Shigan Satoru Saka over Monokia Mosman Yoshinarigawa, Egan Fuchi and Mighty Inoue over Baba, Momoda, and Kimura. Abby and Kamala too over Tor- Dorian uh, Amori. Dorian Amori. Uh, Ace and Patriot over the Can-Ams. Akiyama Kabashi over Masao Honda. And then the tag title change there. So Was Akiyama in get or is he just teaming with Kabashi? He's just teaming with Kabashi at this point. I don't okay. think I don't actually think get is a thing yet. The thing, though, with that, though, is I don't think I've ever seen Get listed as a group in cage match results. So I don't think no. we have it here anyway. Um, but, okay, you might know this better than me, because you were, I mean, you were seeing more of it in real-ish time. Um, I forget, was was there a specific, like, storyline or anything that moved Akiyama from being a Kabashi partner to a Misawa partner? And then Ace replacing... Misawa and to an extent Akiyama as Kabashi's partner. Just a shift. I guess to freshen things up. Yeah. I mean, it's not like all Japan really ran angles. No, I mean, this is the company that when Jumbo got sick, like the official storyline reason for everyone shifting was that Baba ordered them to. And they yeah. still did great business. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah mix it, mixing it up. Yes, is that the worst heel turn that did the best business, Kawada? <laughs> yeah, probably so. Because like, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he actually becomes a heel, that he turns heel, he just doesn't have a turn, really. And he ends up being a great heel, but... He's aggressive, I would say, Bix. Chris, watch the June 95 match. I know, but... He's pointing and laughing as as Tawei chokeslams Masawa onto Kabashi's bandaged knee. He's a heel. Well, yeah, but still, in Japan, that's a different thing. Sure. You know, Riki Choshu was supposed to be a heel. That never happened. Well, he was the most popular wrestler in the country when he came in. So, of course, he, that was going to be tricky. Um... Also, no, I'm saying in New Japan. Mm. Okay. You know when he when he turned. I mean, it took. A, I mean, it did take a while, and but he wasn't really booed per se. Because I just watched all this stuff not long ago. Oh, you're talking about the original uh, yeah, Gun Fuji- versus oh, Ishin yeah. Gundam. Yeah. Well, Fuji- well, I mean, he wasn't. I mean, that was one of those deals on the turn where you watch it on TV and you're like, well, you understand why Choshu's pissed off, and. Um, yeah, I mean, so it was one of those type of deals. So I forget. I mean, when he does the turn, does he have the long hair and stuff yet, or does he do that? No, as no, a consequence of the out. turn. It, okay, it grows out. Yeah, he grows it out. Okay, going from the short I mean, curlier I mean, hair not, to the long straight hair. Yeah, I mean, he's not. It's not as short as it was early in '82. He definitely had grown his hair some. Yeah, but yeah, it's not as long as it would be in '83. No, and then he straightens it, and yeah, um, yeah. All, other question before we move on. 
how often did all Japan and New Japan run northeastern Japan? Since one of the things with Mishinoku Pro was that it seemed like it was an underserved area. Um, I mean, they went there on, on tours. They had their set times of the year they would go to places. I mean, I, I don't know if, that, if that's still the thing. But, I mean, yeah, every year was set on where they were going. Every year. Because for those who don't know, Morioka is Great Sasuke's hometown. Yes. All Japan would run more north in the first part of the year. The coldest time to run northeast Japan. Mm, yeah. Fun. But, I mean, like I said, they, you know, they always had their dates in their major arenas, you know, set up. You know, same yeah. time every year. So, All right, New Japan. Well, nothing's been announced publicly. New Japan's working on a show for April 29th in Tokyo Dome, which will be headlined by Nobuhiko Takada, defending the IWGP title against Shinya Hashimoto, and what would likely be a title switch. There's speculation the show would be include part of WCW's Cruiserweight Tournament, and they're working on getting a big-name USC competitor such as Kimo to face Keiji Muto. Well, they don't get anyone who's been in the UFC, but they do get a legit MMA fighter because he ends up ends up wrestling the Pedro. Yes, we we've done that show. <laughs> the Pedro. The Pedro Otavio. Yes. Yes. All right, so uh, they ran a show at Mount Aragami City Gym on February fifteenth for twenty four hundred fans. TV, one of the TV tapings for the week. Tatsuya Iwa over Yuji Nagata. Dean Malenko and Osama Kido over Black Cat and El Samurai. Heisei Shigun's Kengo Kamura and Kunio Kobayashi over Akira Nagami and Tadao Yasuda. Osama Nishimura over Akito Saino. Black Tiger and Justin Liger. So that's Eddie. Eddie and Liger over Kuj Kanamoto and Shinjiro Otani. That didn't suck, I'm sure. Uh, Choshu and Kojima over Ohara and Shiro Junji Arana Shinashimoto over Hirosato and Hiroshi Tenzan. And Keijimuno Keiji and Kensuke Sasaki over Kazu Yamazaki and Takashi Izuka. So there's that TV. Now, three days later, it appears they're going to turn to Kira Nagami heel and have him join Heisei Ishigun. On the February team show at Cork and Hall in the main event, Nagami, Junji Arana, and Hashimoto were facing Shiroko Shinaka, Keiko Kamura, and Kunakabayashi. Hashimoto had Kamura in trouble and was going for DT when Nagami turned on him and broke it up. Alama Kamura to hit the uh, Hash hit Hashimoto with an Inazuma leg lariat for the pin. Hashimoto Nogami after the match, Nogami simply walked away. At the show on February 19th in Shizuoka, Hashimoto said he met with Nogami, but their differences weren't resolved. Nogami beat Kobayashi in a hair versus hair match two weeks ago, and it appears they'll turn the two into a regular tag team. A battle of respect. So they're doing like the Sabu Rob Van Dam thing here, in a way. Interesting. But before that. Yeah. Cork and Hall, 2100 fans. This is not a TV taping, but a Vallis taping or Home whatever video. you call it. Yeah. On video taping. We have Tati Takeo over Yutaki Yoshie. Black Cat and Team Malenko over Black Tiger and No Samurai. Takashi Zuka over Tao Yasuda. Osama Kido over Grand Hamada. Kensuke, Coach Kanamoto, and Shinjiro Tani over Kazuya Mazaki, Tokamichi Izazawa, and Yuji Nagata. Osama Nishimura and Sashkojima over Akutoshido and Shoshihara. Hiroshito and Hiroshi Tenzan over Justin Alang and Kijimuto. And Kim Kamara Kunakubayashi Shirokoshinaka over Kiran Nagami, Junji Ron, and Shin Yashimoto. And real quick, with the high station gun group dominating top of the cards, the highlight matches every night are junior heavyweight mid-card wrestlers mid-card matches with Eliza Black Tiger, Dean Malenko, Jushin Liger, Shinjiro Tani, Coach Kanemoto, etc. Nobody tell anyone at Segunda Kaida that he said that. 
Um, and I mean, I've I, I, I mean, I've watched this era in New Japan Heavyweights, and I've said it, said it before. You know, it's good. I mean, there is a lot of good stuff there, especially in the multi-man tag matches. Mm-hmm. And the heated, you know, angles with Isaiah and Gun. Oh, ever heated and all that. Yeah. Um, that said, brewing on these undercards too in those junior matches because we see who we have teaming up in some of these, although not every time yet, but we have. We have some guys who hadn't necessarily been regular teams before, like Liger and Eddie and Samurai and Eddie. This is the beginning of what would become more clear in March, when Benoit's over, of the short-lived but very memorable uh, Junior Four Horsemen angle. Yeah. Where those four, like, I guess with the idea that Benoit is a horseman and they are affiliates, become the Junior Four Horsemen. And... It's kind of a cool thing where, you know, until Otani goes back to the States and drops the WCW title, you have this thing where all but Eddie really have a rival that they are feuding with a belt, feuding with over a belt, you know, IWGP, UWA, and WCW. But it does not last long because Benoit and Eddie stop coming over for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, and yet yeah, New Japan's uh, like I said, a lot of a lot of heated stuff here, angle wise and fun multi man matches. And the one thing New Japan does here that you know we we all Japan's trying to do in a way is mix it mix their younger guys in, you know, in the in the top of the cards. So not the same bunch of guys always yeah. in on the man. They, they must have known from early on with Akiyama at the dojo that he was going to be something special because now granted they don't fast track him as much as do you think from how good his first few matches are, but still here he is now, you know, less than three and a half years in that he's being brought up to main event level when his contemporaries don't get nearly as fast tracked. Oh no, no. Definitely how, how good he was. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, War. They've been drawing poor crowds throughout this tour they're on, which has been headlined by a junior heavyweight tag tournament. The group also banned weekly pro wrestling from press credentials at events, so don't expect any knowledge in that magazine. This group even insists. Again? Yeah, there's a lot of talk that the group's in trouble, as since Tenuka Nichiro stopped working on the spot shows, attendance on the road has gotten poor. Not that it was great to begin with. That's not the smartest move on Tenru's part for the health of the promotion. To stop working spot shows when it's known that what draws on Japanese spot shows is to have the big former network television name there and signing autographs and everything and seeing them in person. I mean, all you need to do is work a six-man tag, for God's sake. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, he doesn't need to be taking tons of bumps or anything. He just needs to be there. Yeah, I don't know what, what, what changed at this point in time, but something did. But anyway. Especially all right, since War at- goes on to have a pretty good year still. They were last really strong here. Yeah. All right, well, let's look at this show. Sua Japan on February 20th. We have Carol Midori and Kiko Ono over Mizuki Endo and Norio Tateno. Looks like a bunch of Zuki over Chota Sishi Battle Ranger. Grand Naniwa over Takashi's ok- Okamura, the president. Lion R, Chris Jericho over Kamikaze. Kokitahara over Shinichi Nakano, Jado, Gato, and Hiromichi Fuyuki over Arashi, Nobutaka Araya, and Osamu Taitoko. 
Tachikari. And in your main event, Ultimo Dragon and Negro Casas over Lance Storm and Yuji Yashiroka. That's an interesting match. Yeah, but like I said, Tenru's sorely missing from this show. Yes. I don't think I realized Negro Casas did any war tours. Yeah, he did. When was his last New Japan tour before this? I know he works J-Crown later in the year. I wouldn't know the timeline on that. Okay. All right, but- Battle Arts. Minoru Tanaka and Daisuke Akeda Battle Arts promotions will be going to South Africa for a March tour in conjunction with several Canadian wrestlers. I'm guessing these are Canadian wrestlers who are working for Tony Candelo at the time? Based I on guess who would so. tour that part of the world in that era? Yeah, I would guess so. So does that mean there's a chance that somewhere out there, someone in South Africa has a video of Minoru Tanaka or Daisuke Akeda versus Champagne Jerry Morrow? It's very possible. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling and FMW will have boost out of action for a long time after series operations. On this tour, they did an angle where Ricky Fuji's group and regular FMW group joined together a few with the Wayne group, headed by Mr. Danger, Mitsuru Matsunaga. Well, let's look at some shows here. February 15th, a soccer professional gym number two for 1,520 fans. We have Koryo Nakayama over Aki Kambayashi. Megumi Kudo over Yukari Shikura. Takamichinoku and Shinichi Funaki over Koji Nakagawa and Wild Shooter. Sharshashuya and Bad Nurse Nakamura. Com- uh, B. Combat Toyota and Yuki Nabeno. Super Lather, Wing Kanamura, Hido, and Hideki Asaka. Beat Masato Tanaka, Kestoshi Niyama, Tetsuya Kuroda, and Goshaka Goshikawara. Hmm, what a match. Deathmatch, Mr. Pogo over Jason the Terrible. And a No Rose Barbed Wire Street Fight Deathmatch, Mr. Danger, Mr. Matsunaga beat Horace Boulder. Now, on the 16th, in an Aichi Professional Gym from a 2230, we have Yukari Shakura over Aki Kambayashi. Jason the Terrible and Hideki Asaka over Tetsuya Kuroda and Gosaka Gashikawara. Taka and Funaki over Kojinagawa Wild Shooter. Street Fight, Shashi and Brandon Sarkamura over Megumi Kudo and Kuri Nakayama. Mr. Pogo over Ricky Fuji. And No Rose Barbar Street Fight Deathmatch. Mr. Danger, Mr. Masanaga, Super Leather, Wing Kanemura. Tina to beat Masato Tanaka, Kestoshi Niyama, and Horace Boulder. I did not remember that Horace was still here this late. Yeah. So these are some shows. <laughs> it's your talent mixture on these shows. Yeah. And also, uh, looking at Cage Match, as far as the Negro Casas question, he has not worked for New Japan since the J-Cup in 94. Um, he had not toured for them since G1 93. And had been working some shots, and then at least one full tour, it looks like, for war um, in 95. I forgot. He wrestles uh, Sean Waltman on the junior tournament show in 95, Battle Angel. And at least through this tag tournament tour, he's only been touring for war the previous year, year and a half. But well, it's a New Japan, Japan affiliate, so it's not like he's going to get heat. Well, 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 who's New Japan working with? In a sense. CML out. Tri- tri- no. They are? Not, not this time. AAA. You're right. Because, well, I'm trying to think who even go, who, but who's in there around this time? Okay, so like when Super Juniors comes around, is are Viana 4 and those guys in AAA at the time? I mean, they had to deal the 94 that went in, in, in early 95. 
but I'm not sure how long that last. So when does the CMLL deal start? In like ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, that's okay. when 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 Wagner you know goes goes over there and stuff. Okay. So that's yeah, that's when the deal comes back into fruition. I'm real quick. I'm curious to refresh my memory on who's in Super Junior in '96. Uh, as far as other luchadors. Okay, no, because yeah, I don't think this person's in AAA. Your luchadors in Super Junior '96 are just Emilio Charles Jr. in the A block and Viano Four in the B block. Emilio's on AAA. That's what I'm saying. So the CMLL relationship appears to have started around this time. Okay, <clears throat> but it 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 becomes more of a give and take full time partnership as the next year or two go on. Yeah. All right, SPWF. They're going to show it at Sasaki City Civic Gym on February nineteenth for seven hundred twenty eight fans. We have Hiroshi Osumi over Phantom Funakoshi by knockout. Yes. It's exciting Yoshida over Yuki Nishino. Asian Cougar over Asian Condor. American Ninja over Dangerous Uchida. And then Osama Ternishi and Yoshikiyasu over Ichiro Yaguchi and Demurderer in your main event. Okay, so just for the record, on one show, we have Phantom Funakoshi, Exciting Yoshida, mm -hmm. Asian Cougar, Asian Condor, American Ninja, Dangerous Ushida, Ichiro Yaguchi, and The Murderer. Mm -hmm. That's indie right there. Now, do you remember what The Murderer looks like? Yeah. He's basically just a dude in a Halloween mask. Pretty much. Love me some social progress, Wrestling Federation. Yes. Cool. So there's there's your SPWS show for a week. All right. Uh, Joshi, All Japan Women. Kumoto City Gym on February 20th for a 2140. Oh, God. I see what the first match is. That's it. I'm done. Have a good night. Mary Mogami, Masai Watanabe, and Yumi Fukawa over Keo Nomi, Mina Taniyama, and Nobuendo. No. <laughs> Wait, who, oh, who's Mari Mogami? Uh, I mean, I do not recognize that name. Did she just quit after a few matches? Or probably, probably one of the young girls that didn't last very long. Um, so yeah, there's your future Neo competitors there. Yeah, Chaprita Sara, Marika Yoshida over Kumiko Mikawa and Yoshika Tamura, Tamra, Sakai Shigawa over Yukashina, Kyoko Inoue over Kaorito. Manami Toyota over Tomoko Watanabe. And Mima Shimoda, Reggie Bennett, Takako Inoue, teamed up to beat Kyoko Inoue, Toshi Yamada, and Yumiko Hota. Your main event. Not a bad sounded main event there. Um, okay, I just checked. At least from what cage match has, Mari Mogami starts in October of 95, and she goes through March 27th, 96, and has less than 100 matches. Yeah, we're getting close to the end for her here. So, I don't know if it's an injury, I don't know if this is a Megumi Kudo, you're not good enough kind of thing, or what. Um, But, yeah, I she wins a lot of matches, so I'm guessing it's an injury thing, more than a you're not good enough thing. Possibly. Gaia, they ran Cork and Hall on February 16th, for a 16th, 1850. They had the Neo Energy Queen History League tournament going on here. Sudoku Kato over Waiki Dabao, your opener. Meiko Sonomura over Toshi Sato. Toshi Yamatsu and Shahara Nakano over Shikai Nagashima and Tomoko Kazumi. 
Igor Sawai, Juno Yukari, and Michiko Nagashima of Ishiguchi Nagaya, Bama Hikari, and Sunoko Kato. And in your main event, Karu over Combat Toyota. And I presume Toshi, uh, bleh, Toshi Sato is Sugar Sato? Yes. Okay. Now, Mexico's not a lot this week, so we're going to add them to this section, make it one big international section. AAA, the second part of the trios tournament, took place on February 16th. Mexico City, where Heavy Metal teamed up with Letty Lover and Cien Caras to uh, win the tournament, beating Petoff, Cibernetico, and Jerry Strong in the finals. The Heavy Metal team beat Ray Mysterio Jr., La Parca, and Frisbee in the first round. Then beat Vegas, Yeti, and Tequila in the semifinals. The win gives them a match against the first tournament winner last week, Los Vianos, to become the first AAA trios champions. Yeah, they never had a promotional trios champ title, I should say, before this. No, they did not. So, uh, so yeah, so this is a uh, new ground for them, so to speak. Yes, although the results we have here says it's the America's Trios title. Well, that yeah, basically that's what it was named. Alright, so uh, first match here, Cibernetico, Jerry Estrada, and Petoff over Angel, Satanico, Mr. Yak, and Rotador. El Mexicano, Hakon Dorado Jr., and Volador. Over El Bronco, Gallego, and Jorge Santana. Angel Martal, of course, a normal partner would have been there, but he was watching from the crowd, out of action, due to a gunshot wound on New Year's Day. That's and he got attacked. Nice. And he got attacked. So there you go. Um, Cien Caras, Heavy Metal, Latin Love over Frisbee, La Parca, and Remisier Jr. Then we have the Killer, Vegas. Bix, who was Vegas? Vegas is, let me think for a second. Black Warrior is Bali, but is Black Warrior also Vegas? No. Okay, so... It, see, this is one I know, so it's driving me crazy. Uh, just tell it. Tell me. Mr. Mexico. That's right. And the Yeti. Who's the Yeti? Oh, who's, yet, who's Yeti here, as opposed to Yeti? Yeah. Um, no, Black Warrior was Vegas. Not in this incarnation, you Let me it. see what timeline we have here on LunarWiki. Um, okay, it was very short-lived. <laughs> so, okay, so this, yeah, this, this is Mr. Mexico, but still, you, when you, you didn't say he, it used to be him, you said it wasn't, it, you get what I'm saying. Um, okay, so Yeti? Yeti, I don't know. Massacre. Oh, they beat, okay. uh, Super Muñeco, recently deceased, uh, recipe, Super Muñeco, Super Pinocho, and Super Raton. Oh, no, this is not, no, this is not Mr. Mexico. Uh, Mr. Mexico was Vegas in 1996, early 1996. Well, Lucha Wiki says 97. Let me see. Is this wrong? Okay, no, they have black power. Is this Vegas? It's funny, funny that you say that because I'm looking at a totally different thing. I know, I'm saying it, but I'm, where else am I going to look? I'm looking at Lucha Wiki. What are you looking at? Lucha Wiki. <laughs> okay, wait, 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 wait. You went, whose page are you looking at? Mr. Mexico's. Uh, I just looked at it. It said 97, Chris. 1996, to, uh, January, 1st, uh, January 1st to March the 6th, 1996, Vegas. I'm looking at Mr. Mexico's Lucha Wiki page right now. Under name history, it says Vegas, third, triple A, August 97 to September 97. Well, somebody needs to change one of the pages. 
Are there two Mr. Mexico pages? What the? Hold on. Okay, send me the yeah, send me the link of what you're looking at here. I just sent you a screenshot. Oh no, you're looking at wait, you're looking at Lucha DB, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, you said Lucha Wiki. Well, same difference. I mean, it's the same people keeping it updated, but okay. Wait, so this is his name history, and it has him doing it in early '90s. Okay, well, you're assuming this is more recently updated. Yes. Oh, yeah, DB's updated more, way more. Yeah, I was gonna say it doesn't seem like there's been as much updating to Lucha Wiki of late. Although that's why I don't, that's why I don't go there. It's all I mean, good someone's keeping this up. There are there are changes from November on Mister Mexico's Lucha Wiki page, but I didn't realize there was a gimmick history page actually on Lucha DB. Mm-hmm. Okay. But anyway, uh, uh, also, how many gimmicks did Masakre have in AAA? Good lord, a lot. All right, so we have uh, Cibernetico, Jerry Strada, Peroff over El Mexicano, Jaco Dorado Jr. and Volador. Then Cien Carlos, Heavy Metal, and Latin Lover over Killer, Vegas, and Yeti. And then Cien Carlos, Heavy Metal, Latin Lover over Cibernetico, Jerry Strada, and Peroff in the finals. All right, now the only angle of the tournament involved in Martal, who's been a bachelor before Christmas. We were shot in a street fight. Martal made his first appearance as a shooting, sent it ringside, showed waving a triple A banner. During the second match on the card, UW Arudos, Rockets down on Bronco, joined in with Mortal's former tag partner Gallego to attack him at ringside and beat him immersively where he juiced heavy into the stretcher job. Well, I guess he feels feeling better from his gunshot wound. I would hope so. <laughs> so, uh, dedication on uh, Anhel Mortal's part. So I guess this All is right. to set up for when he comes back, uh... Rocky, Bronco, and Gallego versus Mortal, Marabunta, and... Mr. Condor. Yeah, I was going to say, I can remember for some reason off the top of my head the other uh, Diabolico. So old, basically kind of an old Diabolicos versus new Diabolicos kind of thing. Pretty much. Now, an incident took place on February 18th in Acapulco, where AAA apparently was banned from the city forever, mm-hmm. however long that is in wrestling terms. They did all the run-ins and table-breaking, and the crowd rioted. They're using women wrestlers Janeth in a similar role as Natasha, Barbara Blaze on the Tijuana show. It's large from ECW where she interferes a lot and then gets DDT'd or pile-driven by Conan or one of the other technicos at the end of the show. At one point, Perov DDT'd referee Pepe Casas, which is not part of what they do in Mexico, and the fans rioted at that point. However, when the t- local television news covered the event talking about how horrible it was, when interview fans live leading the event and tried to get them to say how horrible it was, they all said one after another how exciting they found the new wrestling to be and that it was dangerous, but they had fun with the show. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. We also got almost got him banned. Good lord. All right. Sayaya, Salaya on uh, the 21st from a thousand fans. We have mm-hmm. Super Muñeco, Super Nyoko, Super Raton over Rocco Valente, Tony Arce, and Volcano. Bronco, Gallego, and Jorge Satana over Angel Matal, Marabunta, Mr. Condor. Los Payasos, Coco Amarillo, Coco Azul, and Coco Rojo over Heavy Metal, Latin Lover, and El Torero by disqualification. And then our main event. What a main event this is. Angel Blanco Jr., Fishman, and Petoff over Conan, Moscato Sagrada, and Octagon. How is a show with that much star power doing only a thousand people? Maybe in a weather-related thing. I don't know. That's weird, right? Because think about it. They yeah. have Trio Fantasia versus Destructores as the opener. They've got the, you know, Diabolicos thing. You've got 
you know, name, you know, Torero's not his big name, but still you got Heavy Metal, Nat and Lover taking on Payasos. And then, you know, you got Fishman, Pieroth, Conan, Sakrata, Octagon in the main event. I mean, even on Hill Blanco Jr. to a degree, like, that is a star-studded show to not draw particularly well. Uh, something happened. I don't know yeah. what to tell you. So, there's that. All right, let's move on to CMLL. The main event on February 16th for the Renacal Sales saw Dos Caras, Sadandi, and Il Santo, Bibli Panther, Emilio Solis Jr., and Apollo Dante's by disqualification, win the Rudos Triple Team Santo for the DQ in second fall, seeing the build a match around Santo and Emilio. Semi saw Americo Rocco and Ringo Mendoza in a Caballero Coach Caballero match, where Mendoza missed a plancha and Americo beat him with a half crab. In the other key match, El Tejano, Atlantis, and Hector Gaza. Defeated Dr. Wagner Jr., Bestia Zavaje, and El Satanico when Garza made Wagner submit to the upside-down rocking horse to keep their program alive. And uh, the other result here that's not mentioned, Mascara Magica, Mr. Niebla, and Shoker over Asheray Jr., El Sino, and Felino by disqualification. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty good show here as far as, far as a CMLL at this point in time, you know, with names and stuff. So, not bad, not bad at all. Tijuana, AAA held a show there on February 16th, head-to-head with a rival show. AAA with Sacosis and Halloween against Del Negro and Rocha Man in the Cage. And no big names from Mexico City other than Mascaro Sagrado Muñeco drew 1650, while the rival show and Mil Mascaras, Tineblas, and went up against Mascaro and Universal de Smil drew less than 1,000. The rival show, I presume, would be a Rey Mysterio senior show? It's possible, but... Because uh... they're the main rivals. Well, yeah, because we're a month away from... Racine, you're exposing the finish of the uh, Psychosis Ultraman Dos Mil uh, mask match. So I would think that's who that is. But not good no matter what. You know? Yeah, and also to put those teams in a cage after what they had done a month and a half earlier with the barbed wire cage match and to not to not draw that that seems like a sign that what they're doing ain't working. Yeah, I think they yeah, I mean there there's like I guess a backlash or something. I don't know. Don't know, but there you go. That's the first half of the show. It's now halftime. So some great 1996 commercials will come back and we'll talk about a Patreon show, we'll hit the plugs and then we'll come back. And we'll talk about a very interesting thing going on in uh, the sports world regarding Tommy Morrison and what that can mean for all combat sports. Very interesting discussion here. And yes, Brian Pillman debuts at the ECW Arena. All that and more after the break. When Val Goldman said, I'm getting married, his fiance's father said, Has he been tested? His father said, So this is hell. And his other father said, <laughs> Now it's up to Armand. Teaching you to act like a man. To straighten out their act before dinner. How do you feel about the Dolphins? Fourth and three play on their 30 yard line with only 34 seconds to go. How do you think I feel? Betrayed? Bewildered? The Birdcage, a Mike Nichols film. Wrong response? Rated R. Starts Friday, March 8th. Just for the taste of it, just for the chill of it, come get the thrill of it, Diet Coke. This is the best of it. 
the agony. Get to the Pay Less Street Sneak Sale. Fun fashions for men, women, and kids start at a very comfortable $7.99. Leather starts at just $14.99. Imagine life without Pay Less. No shoes, fun, fashion. I don't think so. Doesn't it feel good to pay less? What would you do if your child were kidnapped? Calm down. I'm sure it's... Mm -hmm. Mom! Mom! I cannot find Kyle or Chris! By someone you know and love. Just give me my son back! Tracy Gold and Kate Jackson. Tell me where he Inspired by actual events, a kidnapping in the family, Monday. Tonight's movie, The Bodyguard, will continue in a moment. You know what's great about my new ABC show, The Faculty? I'm finally playing someone who isn't bulimic, alcoholic, or schizophrenic. I don't kill or kidnap anyone, and not once do I cry in the shower. I just get to do comedy. Meredith Baxter stars in The Faculty, coming to ABC in March. What can you get for $2,500? A big screen TV or a home computer or at Hank's. You can get a sofa, loveseat, three tables, two lamps, headboard, dresser, mirror, five-piece dinette, and another headboard, footboard, dresser, and mirror, plus two sets of bedding. An entire house full of furniture for only $89 a month. Two bedrooms, living room, and dining room, all for $24.88. Take your choice. One item or four rooms completely furnished for $24.88. Only at Hank's. True discount fine furniture. Warm, dry weather sparks numerous grass fires. Join us at 10. My life is busy. I'm not the hermit crab. I go all over. But MCI Friends and Family's calling card discount only covered my calls to home. So I got AT&T True Reach Savings. It's the only way I can save 25% on every type of call on my AT&T phone bill, no matter who I call in the U.S. AT&T True Reach Savings. Save 25% when you spend just $25 a month. I never stop. Why should my savings? AT&T True Reach Savings. That's your true choice. AT&T. I just wasn't satisfied with the way my headache medicine was working. And then my doctor told me about a medicine called Arutus. Of all the prescription pain medicines, 82% of doctors surveyed have prescribed Arutus. And now it's available in a non-prescription strength. Potent new Arutus KT. Just 25 milligrams is as effective as 400 milligrams of Motrin IB, 440 of Aleve, or 1,000 milligrams of extra strength Tylenol. Now I've got Arutus KT. New Arutus KT, the potent medicine for pain. Critics are calling before and after. Controversial, provocative, and riveting entertainment. Jacob's innocent. A probing and haunting drama that commands the question, what would you do? There was blood in the car. It's been taken care of. It's superb. Four stars. You'll be pondering it long after you've left the theater. What if you've destroyed evidence that would prove he's innocent? Meryl Streep, Liam Neeson. I just want my boy back. Before and after. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday at a theater near you. 
This is ABC 33, KSBR Springfield. All right, well, let's go to an interesting subject now to talk about. And um, it was something that kind of uh, rocked the sports world when it was announced on February 15th, which is uh, the first day of our week of the show here. Tommy Morrison tested positive for HIV. And Dave Meltzer wrote a big thing about that. Tommy Morrison, of course, being a uh, well-known boxer, plus was in uh, you know Rocky Five and uh, Tommy Gunn, and you know the guy that was known. So this, well, is, this is a big deal. And Chris, who was his stunt double in at least in the street fight scene in Rocky Five? I don't remember. That would be Dick Slater. Well, there's a lot of similar hair there at the time. Yes. So, yeah. Well, because also, yeah. who's one of the stunt coordinators? Terry Funk. Yeah, because, well, Stallone. So there you go. All right. So uh, in the wake of Boston, Tommy Morrison tested positive for HIV. There may be significant repercussions felt both within American pro wrestling and in UFC. While the odds of, that Morrison contracted the disease from a bloody Boston match or transmitted disease in one area, such as ARE, but who, who knows what that means, uh, no doubt rather small, it caused the expected media and public panic on the subject. Commissions around the country are racing as to which can implement mandatory HIV testing to boxers the fastest. Since pro wrestlers also bleed, some states could potentially include them in testing and all those commissions, many of which receive much of their funding from taxing pro wrestling events, generally steer clear of any true regulating of pro wrestling except in states and provinces where corrupt commissioners appear to attempt to throw the regulatory book at new groups in order to protect existing groups. It's more likely that if the subject of blood and wrestling is brought up that states could ban blading, which is illegal in some states, including Pennsylvania, where it's been routinely used, which many feel has outlived its usefulness. As recent events have shown, however, if done after a long absence, as it has been in recent months at WCW and arguably once in WF, it seems to increase interest. ECW, a company which in many ways was built on the blade, was the first company to react as Booker Paul Heyman made it clear that blading will no longer exist in his promotion and presented a blood-free show on February 17th at the ECW arena in Philadelphia. Heyman said he felt if ECW continued to practice in the wake of the Morrison publicity, the dangers of both being shut down by commissions, particularly New York and Connecticut, and having it then spread to Pennsylvania and even more so, problems of getting insurance would be far more of a threat to kill the promotion than if a few customers who came specifically for the blood decided to search elsewhere for their entertainment. While the company's main cult following was due to being both bloody and violent, using the term hardcore as a description as compared to WF and WCW, he felt that now he could compete by providing superior storylines and introducing untapped talent, as he's done over the past year. Both WF and WCW, as their profit slash loss balance wane, switched to more violent styles, with WCW bringing blood back to the forefront since Starcade in late December. WF has an official ban on the blade. However, they promoted blood heavily in order to garner a rating from Monday Raw, with a tape of Bret Hart, Deborah Smith from In Your House, which drew the best Raw rating of the season. UFC, which like boxing because it's a contest, what were blows to the head and the eye here, is inherently going to have bloody matches. On ESPN Sports Reporters television show on February 18th, Philadelphia sports writer Bill Conlon, who uh, later on would be uh, revealed as a major pedophile, talked about USC event two days earlier where Sam Atkins, a former sparring partner of Morrison, bled heavily from punches to the face in his match with Don Fry. 
and questioned what the odds of HIV transmission would be in a U.S. scene, which he called a blood sport. John Patton, the Miami Herald, tied the Morse's story into wrestling, quoting an unnamed major company wrestler saying, Tommy Morse's out-of-the-ring lifestyle consists of a lot of women and unprotected sex. That happens a lot in wrestling. Television creates superstar, and when you travel a good bit, different women throw themselves at you, and the temptations are there. And then you go get the raid next night with someone in the same situation, open to the same temptations you are, with the possibility of either planned or unplanned bloodshed. The wrestler also said he believed Morrison wasn't a drug user, while drug use is pretty commonplace in his profession, signed the drug test to be unbeatable, and talked about wrestlers recklessly sharing needles. Now, WF or WCW test for HIV, although WF hinted in the article that it may have to adopt a policy. This is a sport like boxing, where bloodshed is an everyday occurrence, said Dre Adronico of the WS Media Relations Department. Guys get hit and bumped all the time. With the whole Tommy Morrison thing happening this week, testing is probably something we ought to look into. Dave's had a lot of thoughts over the years on the subject of blading and blood and pro wrestling since terms like HIV and AIDS became part of almost daily life. You know, um, about two weeks ago, according to Fort Patterson. <laughs> Fort Patterson, former heavyweight champion uh, in boxing and uh, cha- uh, chairman of the commissioners in New York State Athletic Commission. On the surface, on the surface, the act of cutting one's forehead with a razor blade uh, gets to get heat comes off as totally barbarian when it first fought. The idea that there are people who get off on it on the surface would repulse most people in American society to no end. However, on a lot of subjects, Dave's had to learn to ignore the base emotional reaction and try to look at things logically. There are so many things done within the confines of pro wrestling matches that are inher- inherently more dangerous when it comes to injury risk and death risk and blading. Dave suggests the odds of someone being paralyzed by an errant tope or a screwed up rocker dropper are more are much higher than the odds of being injured seriously from an errant blade job. Between sharing needles and unprotected sex with a variety of partners, Dave probably thinks blading is anywhere near the top of the list of legitimate risk among pro wrestlers of spreading HIV, or in a bloody match even with the virus spreading the ringsiders. Now, over the past several years, Dave's been in contact and had letters written here, me and which have been printed for doctors, including one well-respected epidemiologist, warning about the risk of double-juice matches. In that time, we've seen a basketball superstar contract HIV, a diving superstar contract HIV, many famous actors die from AIDS, an ex-NFL star or two die from AIDS, several famous male figure skaters die from AIDS, and perhaps even one wrestler rumored to have died from AIDS several years ago. Chris Colt. Uh, yet, with the possible accession of an incident in a soccer game years ago that many are skeptical of, there's no record of any HIV virus being spread during a contact sports event, be it a boxing or pro wrestling bloodbath or a football game or whatever. This is not a defense of blading. Dave, he wished the blades would be put away for good, but that's not nothing to do with HIV transmission or threat of such. It simply doesn't leave Dave with a good feeling about the business. That's hardly the only thing in wrestling that he could say that about. Excuse me, Dave can't come up with a strong enough argument to justify that his personal feelings should be the feelings of others and that blade should be abolished. Just he doesn't like it personally. If there was a legit threat of such that could be shown tangibly with proof of a legitimately dangerous risk as opposed to rhetoric of what could happen, seeing all how dangerous that argument could be and is, Dave would be 100% against it as an unnecessary, unnecessary risk. Don't throw the steroid argument at Dave as if that is the opposite viewpoint of his views on that subject. He's seen too many cases of liver cancer, brain tumors, which are not medically linked to steroids, but he's personally seen a strange amount of them among users, and heart attacks among very young men who abuse steroids during their lifetime, both in pro wrestling 
and the local gym scene, not to mention other injuries that medical experts have directly linked to steroid use and specific individuals known to have abused them. There's too much that has happened for Dave not to believe that practice is a legitimate health risk, even though he believes many in the medical profession have exaggerated the risk there as well. Blading does work for business when it's not overdone, even if it is to a small niche group of the wrestling audience. And based on little or no evidence of injuries and or infections from the practice, even with shared blades, which in this day and age has qualified as just plain stupid, is far less risky than any other practices done within a pro wrestling ring that are done in order to draw money. Right now, in the major promotions in the world, both All Japan and WF have an outright ban on the blade. WCW had banned it for a long time, but brought it back, and blood appears to have, in some ways, contributed to a greater interest level in the product. New Japan uses it, but it doesn't overdo it. And New Japan's only promotion that has standard IHIV testing for its wrestlers. Bet y'all didn't know that. Triple A and CMLO both used the blade liberally, and even though Dave can remember running from his chair as Heavy Metal's blood was spurting in his direction, figuring the number of potential lifestyle risks he's taken, Dave best for pre-human risk, but in the rain, the blading hardly ranks high among the lifestyles and ring styles of young wrestling superstars in Mexico. <laughs> Heyman addressing this uh, subject. Okay, okay. Oh, let me finish. Let well, me finish. Okay. I just want to ask you, do you think that is... Do you think that's just a drug reference? Do you think that is a promiscuous Seth reference? Or do you think that is also a implying that there's an Antonio Pena casting couch reference? No, I'm just saying, well, heavy metal, it's the lifestyle. Well, he said, I'm talking about what he said more generally, though. Not just about uh, costume. All the above. All okay. the above. Heyman's addressing the subject in this manner is probably a lot less due to legitimate health risks and legitimate business threats. As we've seen with USC, emotional issues gain momentum regardless of whether they can be logically backed up with evidence. And this issue is as prime an issue as faces wrestling in USC that can snowball to ridiculous proportions. The idea of men cutting their foreheads and sharing blood in this day and age is an emotional firecracker that goes to any moment right now. Dave agrees that for those reasons, as opposed to legitimate risk reasons, it's probably a good time for pro wrestling and at least all the major offices to ban uses of the blade and to HIV test all the wrestlers. Dave also thinks for similar reasons, USC needs to HIV test their fighters because there's inherently going to be some blood spilled in any USC event. And even if the infection risk is minimal or non-existent, USC has already faced problems due to emotional reactions and having bloody matches and not testing is inviting another emotional reaction they don't need right now. All right, there is a lot here. Um, Tommy Morrison, Bix, you found out something on Tommy Morrison a few years ago that... uh was very interesting regarding the timeline of when he may have actually had HIV. So go ahead and talk about that. Yeah. So the origin of this is a little weird as we start with that. Um, as I'm trying to pull up the stories I wrote for Law and Crime at the time. Oh, great. The tag doesn't work for Tommy Morrison. I'll find it. Um <sighs> His widow, because he died when? 2013, I think? Uh, sounds about right. His widow sued the Nevada Athletic Commission. No, September 1st, Nevada. 2013. Okay, yes. You know, the former Nevada State Athletic Commission. Now, I don't know why they took the word state out, but sued them, sued former executive director Mark Ratner, sued Dr. Margaret Goodman, um, you know, long-time Did Flip get sued? I don't think so. the the specific names I remember. I have the document somewhere on my Google Drive, but the uh, the specific names I remember were Margaret Goodman and uh, Mark Ratner. His 
widow files this lawsuit years after he, you know, I guess at least a year or two after he died. I forget when she initiated it. Basically saying that there is no proof that he had HIV other than that one test and the test kit that they use says you're not supposed to use it specifically to diagnose HIV. The whole thing is thorny and weird and stupid because it seems like she and, you know, to some degree Tommy in his later years were on the unfortunate conspiracy theorist HIV denialist side of the spectrum, which is way too weedy to get into here other than that, as you can kind of figure from how I just described it, it's bullshit. Even so, though he had it. Well, yes. That they're saying that maybe that you can't diagnose someone with it, and they're like, I don't know if they were saying it was defamation. I don't remember even what they what her specific claim was. It went surprisingly far for something so weird and someone representing herself because I don't think she had a lawyer throughout the whole thing. Um, but it went to discovery, so you know the commission and the related defendants get all these records, and it turns out. He had told tons of people that he had actually had HIV since 1989, that he was first diagnosed in 89 with, yeah, that's a better way to put it. He was first diagnosed in 89, first tested positive in 89. I believe it was stemming, I forget which source in the lawsuit said this, but stemming from, uh, I believe, a physical he got for a life insurance policy. None of this says how he hid it, because... Nevada started requiring HIV testing in, I think it was 88, right? Something yes. like that. Yeah, around that time. And he had multiple fights uh, of note in Nevada between yes. 88 and 96. Well, it, especially 88 and 96, but also 89 and 96. So, yeah. from talking to people around fighting, the impression I got is that the only way that he could have been HIV positive and otherwise testing positive on HIV tests at his doctor and stuff and to have avoided detection for so long that really makes any sense is that because they don't make you go to like a special lab really you could find a friendly doctor who would use someone else's blood I mean that's the only thing that really makes sense right well I mean yeah but here's the thing too that you know looking at his record yeah. He didn't have any fights in Nevada after 1993. So if that he, was the case, he, he fought, didn't. He fought, yeah, he fought mainly in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. which, you know, their athletic commission is going to be lax as hell. Uh, he fought in Biloxi. He fought once in Atlanta, twice in Atlantic City, mm -hmm. New Jersey State Athletic Commission. But he, mainly he's fighting Oklahoma. And, 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 and you know, and, you know, I mean, their athletic commission probably ain't shit, and and if there was, they would look past it because he's Tommy Morrison from Oklahoma. Yeah, although so, I don't think I don't know if they had a requirement for any kind of HIV testing, did they? I don't know. I, I, you don't see a whole lot of high profile fights in Oklahoma. That's what I'm saying. You get a um, a bullshit. That's Oklahoma's one of those states where you get you get a lot of mismatched fights and stuff like that. It's 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 a funky state to deal with in that way but here's the thing though you know thinking about this so if we're going on that timeline that he tested positive in 1989 yes he's filming rocky to, to positive for hiv yeah <laughs> think about that now all of that said you know we were going to get to this later but might as well mention it now too 
I think we can pretty much all agree at this point that there was probably never much of a risk of transmitting HIV in a combat sports setting. I've never heard of it happening. I, I tried I mean, Googling that soccer thing, too, and I couldn't find anything. Hepatitis, yes. But, well, uh, hepatitis uh, stays alive longer after touching the air, too. And the most recent high-profile case of hepatitis was Abdullah and Hannibal, mm -hmm. where Abby used the blade on himself and then used it on Hannibal. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's an outlier. Now, as Dave mentions yeah. here, wrestlers had shared blades and stuff, but still... It seems like, H, you know, one of the small favors with HIV is that it really does not last long once it hits the air. Yeah. Um. So that kind of risk, like, I don't know what would happen if there was a Magic Johnson thing today. I mean, you know, stopping play if someone's bleeding is probably good anyway for basketball. But I got to think that. Well, they, what, get, they, they get them off the court immediately. Pretty right. Much. I don't know. The reception would be different, but I don't know if the practical concerns would be that different with Magic Johnson. With combat sports, I, you know, and even wrestling with blading and stuff, like, it seems like you'd have to have some very specific circumstances for HIV to be transmitted. Different types of hepatitis, like you said, that's different. But for HIV, probably not. And probably not, you know, in an accident on a film set doing stunts either. And stuff like that. So yeah. that that's one of the big things looking at this. Anyway, now, I was trying to pull up the original article I wrote, which mysteriously is now gone from lawandcrime.com. <laughs> I guess I'll have to reach out to some people privately about that, because I have a feeling how that happened. And if it's what I think, that's not good. Uh, so... And the other article I wrote later was when they did a follow-up, like, an emotion. They said they don't care what lab people get tested at, which is, like, I get that legally. But it's, like, from your perspective, you're also saying public in the literal public record that you know someone skirted the law or the rules or however you want to put it to box while HIV positive. And you probably have a good idea how he got around it. And you're not and you don't seem to be putting any safeguards in place to prevent that. But. It, yeah, so it was, I want to say, his ex-wife testified to him repeatedly talking about it, sometimes even bragging, that there was an ESPN interview he did where they kept having to stop filming and she had to get his lawyer on the phone because he was, I think, bragging about having unprotected sex with women after he knew? It sounds about right. I don't think I remember that, yeah. yeah. Okay, here's my, here, okay, here's my bullet point list, okay? And it... As far as the different examples the commission defendants found. Oh, it was also, they also sued Quest Diagnostics, too. That was the thing, that his wife did that. Okay, so here's what I wrote in 2016. When Morrison went into rehab in 1999, the counselor doing his intake wrote that, quote, He claims that he was first told he was HIV positive in 1989. He hid this from nearly everyone until 1996 when it was discovered and made public. At that time, he was forced to stop his professional boxing career. He believes he got his HIV from injecting steroids. Then on August 20th, 1999, his psychiatrist wrote a letter to his attorney, to Morrison's attorney, saying that, quote, he has been HIV positive for 11 years and had not been receiving treatment for this. So then his ex-wife, Dawn Brady, is deposed. She said he had told her in 2000 that he tested positive for HIV in 1989 when he got checked out 
as part of the screening for a life insurance policy, quote, it was almost like he was bragging about it in a way. Um, he added that, excuse me, she added that his mother told her that, quote, he had come to her around 1994 and said he thought he might be HIV positive, which fits with your timeline as far as when he last boxed in Nevada in 93. Mm-hmm. How late in 93 was it? Uh, September? Let me look, see. Uh, no, June se- June 7th. Okay, but still, she's at around Dude, 94. When he, when, he, when he beat George Foreman. And then when was his next fight? Uh, August 30th in Kansas City. That's his other home base, too, is the Kansas City area. And, and, and not a... And Kansas City's not a major boxing mecca. So, yeah. yeah. And these days, they have a pretty good smaller commission by smaller commission standards. I don't know about then. Um, and later in the deposition, um, asked if the rehab counselor's intake report and the psychiatrist's letter were consistent with what he told her. She said yes. Um, okay, so here's the ESPN interview thing um, at their home. He was talking to a reporter there and kind of like bragging that he knew about it since 89 and he was kind of laughing about it. And she says, quote, kept telling him to shut his mouth and he just kept on. She calls his lawyer. He, quote, got on the phone and said, you know, you're opening yourself up for a lot of lawsuits by telling people you knew in 89, you know, all the women you slept with, you could open yourself up to a lot of lawsuits. And that snapped him out of it. But, quote, he kept telling other people. Um, and when the ex was asked if it was fairly common that he tell people this, she said, quote, I remember telling him, you know, that makes you sound like a monster if you knew then in 89, then he chose to still sleep with all these women and put them at risk and not tell them and not use condoms. And he just kind of laughed it off and he never told her why. So it's such a weird layer to the looking back at the story for 96, isn't it? Yeah, and then there's the fact that, you know, he actually fought again uh, years later. I mean, he fought, I mean, he, he still has last fight. And he, here again, he his last fight was November 3rd, 96 in Japan. So he tested positive in February and then fought in Japan in November. Yeah, that's his last real quote-unquote fight. And then, he fought, the so, and then he fought in 2007 in, at, a, at a casino in West Virginia. And then he fought in February 2008 in, in, in Mexico. That was his last fights. What's the, what are the records of his opponents in those fights? Um, I mean, I, I don't see a record where I'm looking at right now. You're not okay, you're never, looking at Wikipedia, not BoxRec. Yeah, I never heard of him. I mean, I go to BoxRec and look. But it's not, it's not an understatement at all to talk about just what a shock this was to, especially the combat sports world. And just how much it shook everything up. Again, ECW dumps blood for most of 1996. Uh, the fight in 2007, the fighter was four and two, and then the fight fighter in 2008 was three zero and two. And what are their career? Well, okay, I'm looking at. Let me see. Are you looking at Boxrec or are you looking somewhere else? Yeah, I'm looking at Boxrec. Uh, the, the 2007 guy that was his last fight. Uh, and then the guy in 2008. He fought four times after that and went and three and one. But the record you gave at first was their record at the time of the fight, right? Yeah, record at the time of the fight, yeah. That's what it says on box rec when you see the opponent's record, right? You have to click on their profile yeah. to see their full record, right? Yeah. Um, 
Marcus Road. Yeah, I remember. I remember he, yeah, I remember that. The guy he fought in Japan in '96. What do you think his career record ended up being? Oh yeah, he's one of those guys that had like lost a shitload of fights. Thirty-five, fifty-one, and two. Yeah, he was a name guy that would just get. He would be an opponent and a name Somebody quote get, unquote opponent. Yes. Yeah, well, he lost a lot of fights in a row towards the end of his career. Now, on box rec, when there's not a green check and there's a yellow caution sign, that means what? That they haven't verified the full record? Something like that, yeah. Or they haven't... Oh, or, or, Well, excuse me, I guess it's not of the fight, maybe? The fight that it was not in a commission state? Because box rec is the official commission database. So maybe something like that. Um, just, ugh. Like, it's, it's hard to divorce it from the context of what we know now, though, you know? Mm-hmm. Because it, I mean, obviously, in, in terms of what he was doing, all that unprotected sex is a much bigger issue than him boxing. Well, yes, positive. That, that was Magic Johnson. And what we know now. But like, it's still, based on what people thought at the time, it's incredibly reckless to box HIV positive, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then we and and then we have Dave, you know, and Dave Dave's feelings on on this type of stuff. And again, like we said the other day when we talked about with Dave's feelings on uh, deathmatch wrestling. I mean, here's Dave in nineteen ninety six talking about he, he just doesn't like blades. So he he's always been consistent, folks, with his feelings towards this type of stuff. Always, you know. I mean, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of re- I'm wrestling for years and years and years ago. I mean, there's always been blading and wrestling, absolutely. But it's when you, he's going overboard in his mind is when you know it, go- it goes to another another level, right? Well, and also like we know, like I believe AEW does blood work on everyone before they even use them in any match. Is my understanding from something someone told me recently, as far as like about extra work even. So I'm sure that anyone who's going to do this testing, I've never asked specifically, but I've been under the impression that they were, you know, since they're the, you know, as far as the major promotions were, are by far the bloodiest right now. I I think if you're, if you're making sure to test and knowing that the risk especially for HIV in that, you know, scenario is so low, I, I don't have a problem with juicing anymore, but it's in the, it has to be in the right context. I, I get nervous with death. I know I know a lot of deathmatch guys try to keep blood work up to date too, but still, it's like it's. I just don't want to see it in a con unless it's in a context where I'm fairly sure that the people are taking care of themselves and their opponents. I guess. Well, the thing is with with, with deathmatch wrestling now. I mean, hell for the what they use as weapons. I mean, it, it, there, is there really a need to blade? Oh, I don't even necessarily mean blading specifically with the. <laughs> But I yeah, I mean, if breaking light tubes and using some of this other stuff to use, the real barbed wire and stuff like that, hell, you don't even need the blade. Well, you get the real blood that way. That's a whole lot. But yeah, ECW, though, I mean, I, 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 they went the blood fairly, bet the blood fairly quickly. It was a while, though. It was it was at least a few months. As much there was a decent part of the year. I seem to remember blood back in I mean in the summer of ninety six. I mean I could be wrong on uh, that. The one thing that sticks out 
is I forget the scenario, but there was some match somewhere where Cronus got cut real bad. But if I remember right, that was from an accident in a hard way and wasn't a blade. Yeah, but I seem to remember Raven or or doing something. Well, the there him bloody with the title and stuff in the barbed wire match, but that's that's right around the end of the year, I think. There's something like I, I'm I'm blanking right now, but it's but not a big part of ECW in 1996. No. Relative to other years, especially. No, no, no. But, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting moment in time in combat sports, you know, with all this going on. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Well, let's go to ECW now, and uh, a lot going on here. Brian Pillman showed up at the ECW arena on February 17th in part of his quest to convince people he's completely lost his mind. Pillman was in character from the time he showed up in Philadelphia, showed up at the building wearing a La Parca mask to hide he was there, and pretended to be only able to speak Japanese backstage. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, he didn't angle in the ring where they turned the house lights off. When they came back on, Pillman was in the ring and received an enormous babyface pop, which continued when he called the current WCW head Eric Jerkoff. Pillman then called the audience smart marks in a derogatory uh, and moment and then did an obscenity lace interview that got most but not all the audience to turn against him and most after the fact said it was a fantastic angle. Finally he was going to pull out his Johnson and piss all over the fans in the front row. At this point after a nice lengthy pause Paul Heyman, Todd Gordon and Shane Douglas who's part of the decision making team which is well known to everyone came out with Heyman saying to Pillman that wasn't part of the deal and Pillman doing his Booker man line to Heyman. Eventually, Pillman did a work to tackle on a fan, pulling out a fork, and ended up being hauled out of the building by a local security force while Douglas, looking for a piece of, of, a piece of him, never laid a hand on him. Pillman was then in character for the rest of the night, the hotel swearing at fans. Uh, Big Show, want to talk about who the fan was? I forget his name, but he was a student at the house, at the house of Hardcore. Yeah, I can't remember his name either. Red hair. Yes. Um, what's his face? Uh our dear friend what's his face our dear friend joe sposto it just took me a second for some reason uh mentioned on his podcast recently i mean a few instances of stuff like this about how it was just it was too much of a mood killer at ecw that especially that all of a sudden it's like oh there is a tall fan with long hair that we've never seen here before <laughs> i'm sure he's not a wrestler and, and he had like this huge amount of red hair yes and he, I don't think I don't know if he ever works a match though. <laughs> no, and he ends up in the front row of all things too. Yes, you mean yes, the front row where you have to get tickets months in advance. Amazing. Yeah, because that's why this is the same people always sit in the front row all the time. Hat guy and Club his ECW. friend, yeah, and and you know white zombie guy and side guy when he was there. I mean, the same crew. But uh, yeah, so Pillman. Uh, was officially, or at least public, very publicly fired by WCW on Thursday. Although there are claims he's still on the payroll, as there are indications the company's going to great and even laughable lengths to try and get everyone to believe this is a shoot. The big danger in this is that wrestlers by nature never trust management to tell them the truth, usually for good reason, but often it becomes a case of extended and out-of-control paranoia. This only going to confirm and justify in the minds of those who don't trust anything they should trust even less and will eventually make nobody believe anything manager tells them, and this creates a worse working environment. As the stories go, and this is on WCW Hotline, Pillman is going to hire the same lawyer who represented Pete Rose to get him back in the WCW. Currently, it's only confirmed for two more ECW dates, the weekend of March 7th and 8th, probably to work against Douglas. 
The pelvis sore was the subject of wrestling conversation in the past week than any wrestling angle in the history. More wrestling conversation. There was more reaction on both the hotline and the internet than to the Shawn Michaels angle or the Luger Medusa's jumping WCW, largely because the people not being sure whether it was a shoot or a work. Dave's just not sure how that translates into making money in wrestling other than from Monday night, Monday through Wednesday, or last week on the hotlines. We talk about this in depth on patreon.com slash between the sheets. On our show we did about Brian Pillman last year, the 20th anniversary of this. Arguably, it's been a full year. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I say if you want to hear us in depth on that, go listen to that. Five dollars a month. But, um, anything that you want to add to this? Some small things that, uh, you know, at least let the people that's listening to this know, you know, have something. I'm just trying to think what else really there even is to talk because about, especially we, if we're not watching it. Um, yeah, we went we went hard on it, you know. Then so, yeah. Um, okay, so I forgot about the WCW hotline thing. Pete Rose is a lawyer. Uh, I mean, it was a very memorable angle. I mean, there's one thing you can say about this. I mean, it it got a lot of buzz. It, I mean, it, they play ball, but here's the thing. What, what did we talk about last week? Who who are extremely close friends at this time and talking on a regular basis? Kevin Sullivan and Paul Heyman. Who's booking WCW? Kevin Sullivan. Who's booking ECW? Paul Heyman. So put put two and two together. Yes. One thing I'll say, though, too, and I... It wasn't necessary at all. I sort of get why they did it to try to set up the Douglas stuff. The whole thing with Douglas and Gordon running in to yell, this isn't part of the deal at Pillman. When he starts threatening to piss in the ring was uh, completely unnecessary. Too much. I absolutely agree with you there. That's when it got hokey. Yes. Also, the Joey Styles reaction is legit one of the worst, most rehearsed look looking and sounding yes. Joey Styles reaction to everyone's like, who are you? <laughs> when, the, when the lights are about to come back on. Yeah, I mean, you go back and watch that and yeah, I mean, Pillman's promo is going to be great no matter what, but you go back and you see some of the stuff that goes on there and it's like, God, this is so hokey. And also that moment might be the peak of uncomfortable uh, ECW fan homophobia because that is the... Uh, the night of the initial, and I don't know if it was the only one, but this is the first time, where we get the loud Bischoff takes it up the ass duda chant. <laughs> well, it is a bunch of dudes in, in you know in a wrestling show, so yes, there's going to be uh, there's going to be that type of reaction. Yeah, um, it's also just like we said earlier, though it's weird going through this stuff and like. Presumably, he has this this real termination notice that he got to try to put over the storyline, thinking that he could then try to negotiate elsewhere, but no one's biting on it to report it. It's just weird. He, and like we just said earlier, he's got this notice, but he doesn't want to leave. Right. Right. He, so, he, if he was using it for the purposes of negotiating with WWF, his intent was only to get leverage to get his WCW money out. Yeah. We, we talk about all this on the Patreon show. Mm-hmm. 
Patreon.com slash Trini Sheets. Go there and listen. I mean, we go full in depth on all this stuff. So Lex Luger money, brother. Yeah, exactly. We go we go into all the reasons why this was going on. But anyway, all right. So let's talk about the rest of the show. Cyber Slam. Cyber Slam '96. Yes, the first Cyber Slam branded show. I think the second internet fan convention. Something like I that, think yeah. I think it was was it Heat Wave '95 that was the previous convention. I think. Um, possibly. Okay. But anyway, um. Sabu and Tuco Scorpio stole the show at the ECW around February 17th. Uh, where they reported, a show that reported your 1,300 fans, Bex, at ECW Arena. Reported by who? <laughs> Which, by the way, I, I know I've said this before. That might be my biggest pet peeve with old newsletters at this point. When someone says reportedly and doesn't indicate who it reported it. Or where. Or when. Or how. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the two went to a 30-minute draw in ECW TV title match, which should air on television about a week or two. The highlight spot was Sabu running across the ring, jumping onto a chair, then onto the top row, doing a flip dive off the top on the Scorpio through a table that was in the crowd. Forced to go on the match range from four to four and a half stars. It's part of the internet convention, which was considered a success, even though weather forced cancellation of a February 16th show in Newark, Delaware. Um, Yes, this Sabu-Scorpio match is... Uh, one of the best matches in ECW history. It's fantastic. Fantastic. So, go watch this match. If you haven't watched this match before. And go watch all Tuco Scorpio in 1996 you can, because he was probably the best wrestler in North America that year. And also, I mean, they always had good chemistry. This is easily their best match. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> well, because also, it's just, it's, Scorpio's a good opponent for him, and this is one of those nights where Sabu hits everything perfectly. Yes. Or at least perfectly this, enough as to still be Sabu. Yes. So, yeah, everybody go watch this. All right, Um, the show opened with the bad crew, Dog and Rose, and Judge Dredd, so it's fa Favors Night, uh, beating the Dirt Bike Kid, Dino Sendoff, and Donnie Allen. After the match, Sandman ran in and caned everybody. So... There you go. That's just uh, just for that. That's what, why we had this match. And also, your 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 old uh, Jason Harrison dirt bike kid. You fly yourself in from England. Well, he worked a few times in ECW. So. I know, I know, but the other times were much higher profile. Like when he had the singles with Mikey for his, you know, British light heavyweight title or whatever the hell it was called. Yeah. Yeah. This this is a bit. Uh, this is a bit different that he's teaming with Dino Sendoff and Donnie Allen. I forget. Do we know who Dino Sendoff was if he used another name later? I don't know. Because remember, his his he's one of the various making fun of those local promoter names because of Dino Santa. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's that. Newcomer Spiros Greco. Somebody was a fan of Spiros Arion. Who's Rico Federico? Oh, oh. a Malik student from Florida, beat a Puerto Ricano. Obviously, he doesn't last here very long. Um, Taz beat Joel Hartgood, you know, a spoof on Joel Goodhart, which has been used for years with a Taz mission, basically a Cobra clutch, and kept it until Menace came in. He then dumped the guy off the stretcher. Finally, had a showdown with Mikey Whipwreck, 
But Whippet was also put in the choke. That's big, the biggest reason meaning that 911 left was because Heyman wanted Taz to choke him out to get over the idea that the choke works against anyone, regardless of size. Oh, absolutely, that's why he left. But how about how about this? It, in this one little time span here on this show, we got Dino Sandoff, Joel Hartgood, and Mikey Whipwreck. <laughs> yes, Mikey Whipwreck being... I don't even know what the issue that Paul had with uh, Dennis Whipwreck from MCW was, but yes, Mikey's another one of those. And also, like Mikey, Joel Hartgood would use that name for the rest of his like journeyman indie career. He did yeah. keep the name. Amazing. All right. Um, the Bruise Brothers, Ron and Don Harris, came back, replaced the gangsters, and then beat the Headhunters in a brawl which went all over the building. There was fighting among the fans, at least Ron Harris, during this match. Shocking. Uh, we've heard varying accounts as to what happened, other than those four huge men were running around a building that was beyond belief with no more floor space, and people were in the way. As we were told, for whatever it's worth, a fan punched Ron Harris first and opened up his eye, and he punched him back. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why are the gangsters not here? Well, Mustafa was there. However, New Jack, and it's spelled in New Jack, wasn't there as he was in prison in Cobb County, Georgia. The old boss man home. No word as to why, although Paul Heyman indicated he continued to use him since New Jack let him know about the situation ahead of time so he could get the Bruise Brothers in for replacements. Didn't he start smelling New Jack the other way long before this? Yes. What's going on then? I don't know. Also, I feel like Dave eventually got better at this, but no, prison and jail are not the same thing. <laughs> yeah, he was just he was, he was in county jail, not federal prison. No, well, you can have county prison too, or state prison, I should say. But yeah, it's state prison. But I'm talking about county jail. Big. Yes, there's no Cobb County prison. Yes, Cobb. I guess there could be Cobb County State Penitentiary theoretically, but no. there's well, there's there's not. I know. I said theoretically. Yeah, but yes, there is no Cobb County prison. But anyway, and. uh <laughs> Yeah, that's that's why New Jack wasn't on this show. So there you go. Funny story. I love this Bruce Brothers Headhunters match on TV. I thought it was outstanding. I, there's these these two teams, you know, with with their looks, just brawling all over the place and stuff like that. And the Bruce Brothers had been in ECW before, so the fans, you know, knew them well and stuff. And yeah, this was this was fun. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Did they also have a match in Queens? The Bruce Brothers. Yeah. With, with and the Headhunters? I don't remember if they did or not. Because I, I, I remember one that was like a shockingly, more so with I Hindsight Excellent did. Brawl. But I can't remember if it was this one or Queens. I think they they did. Because I remember it being a Lost Battalion Hall match. But yeah, these, these two teams, uh, despite what you would expect from the Bruce Brothers working a pair of Dominican brothers, they had excellent chemistry. All right, I'm looking here. Let's see. So, Bruce Brothers. All right, so we have this match. And... No. No, they do not work... Um, this is the only time they work in Headhunters in ECW. Okay, so it's this match, then. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a really good wild brawl. Like, it doesn't have the pitfalls that... Especially, I don't know the last time I watched it, but it, it, there's not a lot of, like drag your opponent by the hair down time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I better go check that out too. Also, what fan would punch Ron Harris? <laughs> Especially in 1996. A drop fan, Bix. I don't know. Yeah. All right. All right, so let's continue. As I scroll down. Joey Styles interviewed Tommy Dreamer and Beulah. Dreamer said he separated his shoulder in New York. Raven, Richards, Meany, and Kimono Wanalea came out. The Bruise Brothers and Shane Douglas followed. Douglas got Beulah out of the ring because he's her protector. The Bruise Brothers were allies with Tommy Dreamer, you know, two, two years earlier in ECW. So Dreamer's got his boys with him. Raven told Dreamer to prepare to die. So, of course, the Bruise Brothers attacked Tommy Dreamer, ran him spread eagle to the ring pose. Douglas came out as Dreamer sold the entry. The fans chanted, where were you at Douglas? While he was stretched, while Dreamer was stretched out. He was doing his job. He was a beautiful, yeah. yeah. But still, he was still friends with Tommy at this time. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if I say friends, friends, but he was helping Tommy out. He still has his agreement with Tommy. Yes. Yes. And then he really, he doesn't start itching more towards being a straight heel until after the Beulah Kimono reveal. Which was so odd. That whole, that, that whole, the, the way the aftermath of that thing was Shane. Yes. Well, because also that they... Because was it coming in? That's the thing. Kimono was Shane was Shane's valet at the time. So was he mad at Tommy because, I mean, Kimono went with with Tommy instead? I mean, that was the weird... No, the, wait. There's, she, there's no story tie Oh, that's right. She was briefly Shane's valet after the reveal, right? No, she was Shane's valet before the reveal. Cause she but was she's just with Raven, couple. isn't she? Well, Raven, her and Raven got broke up. I don't remember this part. Yeah, and she's and she would come out in gold in franchise colors. Okay, now that I remember, I remember the I remember the look. I don't remember, I don't remember her turning on Raven to go with Douglas though. No, Raven turned on her. Well, whatever. Still, but but yeah, I mean, that was a thing. Anyway, it's so yeah. You know, there was no. Oh, story okay. So that that is how in storyline. Okay, so we have one shred of logic to this. That's how in storyline Douglas knows about Beulah and Kimono. Yes. Okay. All right. So anyway, Pitbulls and Francine beat the Eliminators of Stevie Richards in a dog collar match, with the highlight being Perry Saturn doing a somersault leg drop off the top of the stage to a lower part of the stage. And this. If I remember right, this is also easily the best match of the Pitbulls Eliminators feud. Uh, yes. Isn't this also the one where they do the assisted moonsault off the Eagle's Nest here or the stage? Yeah, or whatever? and I think and I think Stevie just like kicks Francine's head off in this one. It's one of them. Isn't just... that like the opening spot that he just super kicks yes. her? Yes. And she's out of the match pretty much the whole time, and I think Stevie gets involved a little bit, but yeah, yeah. It, this this like. Refresher my memory, this is one of the best top-to-bottom ECW shows, easily. Oh, yeah. Shane Douglas pinned Cactus Jack in a match where Mikey Whipwreck interfered and hit Cactus with a chair. Douglas went nuts after the match. Brian Hildebrand, the former Smoky Mountain ref, was brought in for this show, with the story being that he, Douglas, and Cactus all started together at Dom DiNucci's school in Pittsburgh, which is true. And wait, now, how is, uh, well, I guess, I guess he's not a chiropractor then, that's why. Um, I was going to say, what, how is it that he's mentioning all these guys in Dominic DiNucci's school, but we don't see the name Dr. Mark Keenan or Cody Michaels? But I guess at this point, he'd just be Cody Michaels. But Now, Dave doesn't go in depth here about Douglas going nuts. Torch does. 
When the cameras were off, Douglas told a girl who had her mouth open the entire match he had something big to shove in it. His fist? <laughs> he also challenged a fan and told security not to hold him back. The fan told Douglas to come get him. Douglas jumped at the railing and the guy backed off. He got on the mic and said the door to East Seven Arena is always open for Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, and Vincent Mann. <laughs> the heckling fan came back, and after the guy took off his shirt, Douglas said, last time he saw a person with tits like that, he fucked her. And by the way, that's clearly some uh, Chris Forbes or whoever losing the syntax in the quote. Clearly the line is supposed to be, last time I saw a person like that, I. Yes. Another guy yet with Douglas, Douglas, Douglas challenged him, and Todd Gordon came out and got Douglas out of the ring. The fans chanted, let him go, let him go as security. What is going on? Shane's a baby face. <laughs> I, I, this is after the Pillman things. I guess Shane was worked up for the Pillman thing and all the other stuff going on, but yeah, it, very weird. Also, I am a Shane Douglas fan, but that whole, like, Bubba Ray Dudley, I am going to tell security not to hold you back. <laughs> where you're, where they're clearly not actually calling off security is just, I, I've always hated that. that it comes yeah, off yeah. like you are trying to bait a person into hitting you so they can go to jail. Yeah, pretty much. Or so you have a reason to retaliate or whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, again, wouldn't that be self-defense? For the fan? Well, if he, but he's doing the whole, you can take a free shot, I won't get security, you know, that whole thing. Oh, for the fan? Yeah. But the fan's not the one hitting first, I think is the idea. No, if Or the fan is the one hitting first, I mean. Yeah, the, the fan wants to come at him, and he's telling security to let him go. You know, he's baiting the fan to assault him. Oh, is it self-defense on the fan's part at that point? Yeah, if he's being ba- well, I'm gonna say self-defense. He's being would, would, it, 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 would it be considered fighting words in the places where that's part of the law? I mean, yeah, yes, quite yes, possibly. I would baited, think. Yeah. Baited into it. yeah. Now, I'm not at all familiar with where that is a thing. Well, okay. But anyway, so from there we have Raven, along with his. Entourage beating the Sandman with Missy Hyatt to retain the ECW heavyweight title. Sandman spit beer in Richard's own Richards as he was up on the ring apron. Raven and Sandman traded blows in the to start of the match. Sandman held Raven up in a suplex by 30 seconds, dropped him on his neck. Richards told a fan, You know this is a work, so don't throw stuff. Or something to that effect. Then the fan they threw a can at Richards and he was tossed out of the building by security. What a night. Raven nailed Sandman DT on a chair. Missy had the referee distracted. Richards and Super Kick Sandman. Sandman kicked out of the cover. At this point, Kimona and Missy brawled in the ring when the referee was down. They both were separated and escorted to the dressing room. Al sat there another rep, but the Bruise Brothers sat at Sandman, but he kicked out again in Raven's cover. Sandman and Raven followed the top row. Raven drove Sandman's head into the chair on the mat. Raven DDT'd Sandman's head on the chair for the pin. Afterwards, Blue Meanie was walking Sandman, poured beer on him. Sandman got up, came Meanie. Raven and the Bruisers attacked Sandman. Missy came back out, drank a beer with Sandman. A good but short match. Not the same level as their last two matches against each other. Sandman is making comebacks on all this shit. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is... I mean, the Raven-Sandman feud is, is getting hot and heavy now, and it's going to last throughout the entire year, 96. And Missy just kind of disappears when Sandman goes full babyface, right? Yeah. So... Should the assumption be that because it was a Missy project is why, like, all the stuff that 
they were hyping like the women of ECW calendar and all the related like media for that didn't happen. Probably. You're probably right. Do we think Sal would have been involved in that back then the way he was with wrestling vixens? I mean, it's possible. Sal Hamley, but those don't know. Yeah. WWE and Sal, yes. yes. Who knows? Might have been. All right, so this is from The Torch as we continue. One of the contributing factors to the wild ECW atmosphere at this show, led to a conversation between wrestling fans, was that fans brought beer into the arena, Bix. BYOB. What's this, Al's Diamond Cabaret now? <laughs> Letting them bring their own beer in the building. Well, okay, <laughs> keep reading this before we... That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it also, is. Yeah. security at the start of the cards was very strict. But as car progresses and energy is drained from security, some fans are liquored up enough to cause more trouble than is welcome. Jesus. All right. Good Lord, Bix. What... Why this night? Is it the out of town fans? I guess so. Hey, you're that's the only thing that makes sense, right? You're coming from out of town. Bring your own beer. We don't care. Jesus, I, I I can't think of any other reason that this would just happen here and not other times. For those who don't get the reference, Al Di- Al's Diamond Cabaret is a strip club that's in Pennsylvania. I don't remember the town. But it was you brought your own beer that way the dancers could dance fully naked because they could, could, if they had a liquor license they couldn't do full nudity they couldn't do full nudity yes and they wanted to have their and they wanted the people to come in there and drink so they took they encouraged them to bring their own beer it was a stern all stern had you know would always talk about them and all that stuff they had a lot of exposure on stern show so. Because is is New York like that, Bex? Does New York have that where in the strip club? Specific liquor license versus full nudity law. I'm trying to remember if we have full nudity. I mean, I'll, I'll say this: when I was at uh, Kevin Matthews' place of business, the lovely Rick's Cabaret, uh, with Joey Janela and friends after the Hammerstein show a few weeks ago, it, it was a clearly a topless only facility. Well, there you go. So maybe they do. Alright, so... I don't know if it's tied to the liquor license, though, specifically. You get what I'm saying? Like, there's a difference there. It could just be that there's no bottomless strip clubs in New York. I don't know. What a shame. Alright, backstage at the Arena show, Brian Pillman cordially shook hands and greeted a lot of the wrestlers. Didn't try to work them, but wasn't eager to admit what he was doing was a work. He still wants most people to believe all, or at least some, of his act is a shoot. Oh, my goodness. ECW is still looking around a several thousand seat building in Manhattan, although not instead of, but now in addition to, the Queens location. Several thousand seat building in Manhattan, like those exist. <laughs> like, like I said in my fanbite article about the Hammerstein GCW show and like the history of wrestling there, the reason that Hammerstein has become that... You know, if you know, if you need to run something bigger than a regular indie venue, but smaller than you know, Hulu Theater, or I guess is the current name at the Garden, you have to run the Hammerstein. There's nowhere else. Certainly in Manhattan. Um, I don't know, like what the capacity of the armories and stuff were when people ran there. You know, like how remember ROH was originally going to run at uh at like a an armory in Washington Heights. 
before they decided yeah. to move to the New Yorker Hotel in Midtown and never actually ran a show there. Which also, yes, the Kabashi show was originally going to be in Washington Heights. That would have been interesting. Um, but yeah, it's like there's nowhere else to run. Like there's nowhere bigger or comparable size that, you know, as at least, you know, now it's more expensive until all, what was it? Was it, I forget, was it Sinclair buying ROH that made Manhattan Center jack up the prices? Or was it, um, was it that Impact didn't know what kind of deal they were supposed to get and they ended up paying them a lot and then they jacked up the prices? It, one or the other may be related, I forget, but yeah, there's just, there's nowhere else to go. Like, especially, can you, you could also imagine how much the, who the theater bus cost then. Since we know that, you know, it's not a secret that the Hammerstein costs at least a hundred grand to turn the lights on these days. So, I'm assuming though this is talking about Roseland, right? Probably. Because that was the big rumor in this era that the, I forget when it closed, but, you know, with what was for years in this era, I would say the big, like, mid-sized, like, mostly standing room concert venue in the city was the Roseland Ballroom. I guess if you want to see it, the most notable view of it is in the concert scenes of the No Doubt Don't Speak video. Yes. All right. So Paul Heyman had his thoughts on how the... 17th of the show went, SummerSlam. Okay. He and he, this is directly to the torch. He agreed with the assessments that the show was an example of the promotion maturing in the sense that there was more of an order to the show. I was really happy with the pacing, he said. I wanted a classic match from Sebu and Scorpio, and we got that. I saw the greatest high spot ever, and Scorpio even topped himself with a full double flip off the ropes. The heat was exactly what I was looking for when Raven retained the title. The fans were hot because they wanted their hero to get the felt back. The ramifications of the Beulah programs was forwarded, and it brought back an angle that hasn't been done since 1987 when the Bruce Brothers posted Tommy Dreamer, I, a la Tommy Rich and Austin posted Jerry Lawler, which, of course, he was in Memphis at the time. Paul, you dangerously. Uh, I don't have, we had a double dog collar match. I don't have any standout negatives, and I haven't heard any negatives on the show. Other than the fans, but she doesn't talk about that. <laughs> but you agree with the assessments. The show was maturing, Bix. I mean, they're maturing as a promotion. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We didn't even have any blood. Yeah. Anyway, at the convention... Shane Douglas toned down his criticism of WF, but still knocked it, although there was nothing either overly controversial or inside that stood out. Well, I mean, he wasn't, in, he wasn't uh, on the mic in the building. He was with a bunch of, of fans, you know. He was, he was, you know, more, he was Troy Martin there in a way. He, he was a Shane douglas version of Troy Martin or a Troy martin version of Shane Douglas, depending on how you yes. Yes. How you want to put it, um... It's, it is interesting looking back, seeing them embrace these internet fans. Well, it's the right thing to do. Because, the I mean, you embrace you embrace this type of fan base, and you're, you're going to get that goodwill from them, and they're going to look over your faults because you've inherited such goodwill with them. 
we're seeing that today with uh, AEW. You know, I mean, AEW definitely caters to more of a select fan base. And it's paid off for them. They got their loyalty in a lot of ways, and and they got the goodwill. So if there is, you know, some questionable things, some of the fans will look past it because that you know they're so devoted to AEW. Mm. I mean, it, it is. I mean, it, it, I mean, there's. Hey, I mean, you do what you do to to to, uh, to grow. Um. I mean, and that's one way to do it, you know, and try to and hook the and hook a hook the. Hey, look, fan, uh, internet wrestling fans are going to be your most loyal fans. I mean, you agree with that, obviously. I mean, it's just a matter of fact. Um, fans that are not internet wrestling fans, I mean, hell, I, I'm curious to. I was going to be curious to know of how many fans that watch WWE and AEW are not. Internet fans. Um, inter- by internet fans, you mean someone who would be actively per- pursuing wrestling news and or wrestling discussion on the internet. Yes, or on social media or whatever. Yeah, wrestling Twitter or stuff like that. Yes. If it's just people that tune in to watch the TV and they may look at, they may see stuff on Facebook, they may, you know, something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Not, not people that are, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, what or whatever. You know, I'm just curious to know what it would be like these days, because I mean, I mean, it's dominant. I would think now, unlike back, you know, in the 80s, even the 90s, when the smart fans were the minority. Now it's the total majority. Yeah. But that's just the way the world is. So yeah, Leon Spinks was at the show taking promos. He actually fell asleep watching Seven with Scorpio. That was a weird television moment when they showed Leon Spinks in the crowd. Weird. Very weird. And back to the torch. Paul Heyman said last week ECW worked out clearances for using the current music they used not just on TV but also on pay-per-views. Uh-oh. Which has been a possible stumbling block in the past. The timeline is still to promote a pay-per-view of it this year. Go ahead, Chris That's Champion. Bullshit. Yeah, I, I, I accidentally <laughs> pressed it twice and stopped it. But... It is bullshit. What are those clearances? Mike Esterman got a new batch of VHS tapes from the label. <laughs> Which, by the way, I forget, did we discuss when he did that interview recently? Oh, what website was it? Was it Metal Sludge? It was, was it, was it with the, was it with Web of Jerica? I forget. That's, uh, that interview that Heyman did, where he basically admitted that what we figured was true, that at least for the music videos, the reason that he kept the original music video footage in was so he could claim he was using the four promotional only VHS tapes for promotional purposes. And, and, and they they did that a lot, but they quit. They just got blatant, you know? Oh, as far as not using any of the video? Yes! Like, I just watched the first the TV from 95 the other day, mm-hmm. as we record this. And the oh, beginning the, of the, show, uh, the White Zombie video. Yeah, white zombie with the pit bulls. Yeah, and it's white, and you know, it's pretty much half and half. You know, it's white zombie clips mixed in with uh, the pit bulls clips. Well, no, no, no. But the idea was he's using the clips from the original music video, like the white zombie clips. That's what I'm saying. No, but when when are you talking about that they that he stopped doing it? Then that's what in '96. The only one that only one that he would do that that kept that way was November Rain. When in '96 though? Because there's the the 
there's when they claim they have the world premiere of the House of Pain video with Saturn and they intercut Eliminator's footage into it for Fe the Fed Up is the song. That that has the mix. I'm trying to think what other videos there are in 96. But that's not that's not a song the Eliminators use for their music. Oh, you're talking about song only songs that were also entrance music. I'm going to talk about all, I mean, all this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, because, right, obviously the entrance music is a separate thing, even if I think he's trying to use the same out. Um, 96 is when it ends, basically. So, anyway. All right. Rather than deal with state athletic commissions, reaction to Tommy Morrison's story, Heyman decided to ban the blade. The first showed up with that policy was the arena show, which you talked about in the Tommy Morrison section. All right. On the television that aired on February 20th, they aired the Pillman angle in its entirety, and it's something that should be seen. This is Dave. Pillman does about the most believable psycho bit of anyone in years. During the angle, as Pillman was out of control, Shane Douglas over the house mic in a corny way saying, He's shooting! <laughs> He's shooting! Overall, the bit was excellent, although Pillman called Paul Heyman Booker Man and Douglas with his, I'm sh He's shooting! Remark made the angle a little too forced for what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah, we did forget about, He's shooting! Earlier. Yes. And then they also, he talks about Raven and Dreamer, and talks about... Raven said the shoulder injury, which is legit, and Dreamer should be out for several weeks, was nothing. And talk about in different foreign countries, how if you steal, they cut off your hands. If they run away from the law, they cut off your feet, etc. And he said he made Raven's girlfriend pregnant. At that point, Bruce Brothers turned on Dreamer, crushed on the ring post as his punishment for making Raven's girlfriend pregnant. I forget, did they do the Lawler Idol thing or did they pick him up like for an atomic drop and ram him into the post crotch no they did th no they they did the uh the late laying down the lawler thing. idol posting yeah idol bigelow yeah. thing yeah which i part of me almost doesn't want to know what the secret is to that because i've never been able to tell how you work that if you just don't do it hard but I'm you know? saying, how do you make it look like it's going so hard? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Grant, it's probably the type of thing, too, that if the wrestler's wearing a, the right kind of cup or something, it's pro they're probably fine, too. But um, it's not like wrestlers are doing that much in that era. And I was going to say, you know, I feel like people used to think that wrestlers who wore tights and trunks couldn't have cups and have it not be visible. But I think we've learned now from, you know, the Gargano thing two years ago. And now, you know, Matt Cardona repeating it in his repeating that same basic spot in his match with Janelle at the Hammerstein. Apparently you can wear a cup in your trunks and it's not noticeable. So as a safety thing, I'm kind of curious why more people don't. Yeah. yeah well, now, Drew, uh, though, is wearing loose pants. So he, he probably is wearing a cup. Oh, well, and it's Tommy, so... Yes. Well, it's Tommy, so maybe he's not. Yeah. All right, so here's an update to the Bam Bam Bigelow saga from earlier. Bam Bam Bigelow starts this coming week. His day of contract does expire until October, so if he were to join WCW and do WCW New Japan combo deal, it couldn't start until that point. Okay. I, I love how this is buried in the Observer, and people just don't pay attention to what Dave just said in that sentence. Let me read that again. The first part of this sentence. Bam Bam Bigelow starts this coming week. His WF contract doesn't expire until October. So think about that, folks. How is ECW able to start using talent 
that is signed to WWF contracts if they don't have a relationship with the World Wrestling Federation. In fairness, he may technically be allowed to work indies, quote-unquote, and he is on the Peace Festival show So if he's in April, so if he's still under WWF contract, that's him working well, they, what's effectively well, a New Japan WCW show. Yeah, but they were going to be part of that too, but pulled out. So, I don't... You think it's possible they gave explicit permission to use Bigelow at some point? Oh, well, I, they probably just didn't care. You know? Hmm. Because it's a one-off and... Yeah. They had considered doing it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're right, though. Especially in the context here, like... When no one knows they're working together, publicly at least, no one thought that was weird? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Especially it's now right that ECW's talking about print. pay-per-view? It's right there in print! When was WF letting somebody work a high-profile organization like ECW if they weren't in bed with them? Mm-hmm. They let people work Memphis, they're in bed with them. They let people work Smokey, they're in bed with them. What does this sound like to you? And here's ECW in bed with WCW because of Pillman. So they're in bed with both major promotions. Yep. And did it even come out till after ECW died, though, that that they were working together this far back? Like, and the public enemy thing? Like, that I don't think gets reported till after ECW's gone, right? Yes. It's just like... It, <laughs> there's so much stuff that happens that that just doesn't get reported like it should. And it now, seems like it was now, then, it forever. <laughs> you know, and like, look, I'm, I'm sorry. Does anyone really? I'm trying not to say this in a way that feels like I'm tearing into Dave or Wade or anyone, but does anyone really believe that they were only being told this stuff explicitly off the record? Well, my thing is, is how are you not reading here between the lines? You're just writing this out, and not are you not paying attention to what you're writing? Think of, I mean, use I your gotta brain. think they knew. They probably did know, but didn't, but didn't want to put it out there. Because the narrative has to be controlled, Bix. By who? <laughs> Not by EC3, I can tell you that. He's trying to control the narrative now. <laughs> Good lord. Well, EC3 is a nice guy, but uh, I... I I don't know what he's trying to do with these. It, 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 hey, it, he's trying to he's trying to get buzz. So I, I, I appreciate that he's trying to get buzz and do something different, but it comes off. It comes off like the worst kind of lucha underground. Did I say underground? Lucha underground. We are trying to be real TV drama. But anyway, let's keep yeah. going. In '96. All right, now let's go to the lariat. We were told that Brian Hildebrand may be brought back to work with the promotion. Personally, Dave Shearer would like to see that. In addition to being a great referee, he's also a great guy working behind the scenes. It boggled my mind that he never hooked up full-time with ECW and ended up in WCW. Boggled my mind because it seemed like it would have been a natural fit with Shane there. It would have been a natural fit for him to hook up with ECW. But I guess that they were content with their guys. But well, still, it, also, he didn't live in the Northeast anymore. And they're still yeah, but, mostly a Northeast promotion. So he'd have yeah, to but be they're coming not running, up. They're, not, they're only running a weekends. I mean, weekends. And they're not running every weekend. 
True. So, yeah, I mean, I mean that may be the big part of it. I don't know. Who knows if, if they were that they try, but it's still an interesting deal that considering who's there, that he wasn't a guy who was there full time. I forget. Do we know who got him into WCW? Well, I mean. He was, I mean, he had connections. He was a known guy right. for a long time. So, I mean. Right. It could be anyone. Sullivan from, knew him. I, I mean, God knows Sullivan, Orndorff. I mean, yeah, he had plenty of connections. And, you know, he was who he was. So. And he was brought in, I think, as more of a day player referee and impressed everyone so much that he became full time. Yeah. All right. So, um, back to the Lariat. 911 will be working for Dennis Corluzzo in Yardville, New Jersey, on February 23rd. Paul Heyman reportedly is starting legal action over the use of the name. Uh. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. All right. Uh, still By the way, there. I did finally meet Big Vin a few weeks ago. Uh, 911 son. Very nice guy. That's good. Stay with the lair. Lots of people complain about how Hulk Hogan was never doing jobs in WCW until this past month. And how that hurts the interest in the shows because everybody knows he won't get pinned. Dave sure thinks the same applies to an extent with Sabu and ECW. Not that he's refusing to do jobs or anything, but sure doesn't think many people watch a Sabu match to see if he can win this one. He can't if he can win this one. And also add what Meltzer said about Sabu. Uh, reports are that a lot of indie promoters are shying away from using Sabu. He he's absolutely right here. Worst person you know made a good point. Um. I'll share this to explain why I agree. Although it actually kind of has an ECW tie-in. So the the, the afternoon of the first one-night stand, um, ROH ran a show at a one-off venue, the Supper Club in New York City. I want to say it was not far. It was not far from the Manhattan Center. So maybe I don't know. Maybe dozen blocks or so not not far now when, when when a wrestling promotion runs a supper club do they provide the supper i'm trying to remember if there was like real food you could order i don't i i didn't get anything so i don't remember um but it was literally called the supper club and it was a supper club <laughs> i would hope so it was a kind of a fun little venue i was kind of surprised they never ran there again but anyway uh the main event of that show was i guess it was the blow-off but it was a um, unsanctioned match between Loki and ROH champion Austin Aries. As a an unsanctioned match in this heated feud, you would think it would be worked like an unsanctioned match, right? Yeah. Wrong. And once the crowd realized that they were not doing, you know, this kind of violent brawl of a match, they were just doing a regular Austin Aries Loki match. And it was kind of a shame because like the work in the match was excellent in a vacuum. It's just, it's not what people were expecting. But the point is I've never seen anything like this at any other wrestling show. The crowd collectively realized that this was basically a special stipulation. So Loki can beat the champion clean match because Loki won't do a job and it killed the crowd for the whole match. Yeah. So, that's a bit of an outlier because of the stipulations and the that the not really adhering to what people expect of those stipulations. But it goes to the same thing though. Like if if it gets bad enough that people feel like it's thrown in their face, it's going to take them out of the matches and out of that wrestler's persona. 
Yeah. All right, so that's ECW. Let's go to Southern States Wrestling. Fall Branch, Tennessee on February 16th. Danny Christian over Chick White. Juice, not Robinson, over Alan King, not the comedian. Tennessee Equalizer over Scott Sterling. Alex Shane, not the British version, over Steve Flynn. Death and Destruction over Eddie Golden and Stan Lee. Bo James and War Machine over Bobby Blaze and Ricky Morton. Andy Bruiser over the Stormtrooper. And Bo won a battle royal. So there you go. A Bo show there during our wing. Ron and Brent West United Wrestling had their debut show on February 17th in Chattanooga. It's a TV taping. Terry Gordy, Bill Dundee, Davey Rich, and Dirty White Boy, the biggest names, and Joe Pettacino did the announcing. Debut show drew 900 fans, but it's also noted here that it was papered. Uh, results, Bill Dundee over Loverboy Lee Thomas, Mike Golden over Davey Rich, Jack Lord, which Dave said, so has come to this for him. <laughs> for those who don't know, Jack Lord was uh, the star Hawaii 5 in the 70s. Nice. Beat the War Machine. Not the same guy. Terry Gordy over Jack Lord. Dirty White Boy over Bull LaDuke. Lovell Lee Thomas over Mike Mitchell. Mike Golden over Dion. Davey Rich over Bill Dundee by DQ. Terry Gordy over The War Machine by DQ. Dirty White Boy over Jack Lord. Dion over uh, Mike Mitchell. And War Machine over Bo LaDuke. Wasn't it actually... This is Bo LaDuke. I'm guessing that's WCW TV job guy Bo LaDuke. Probably. Right. B-E-A-U-L-E-D-E-U-X, I believe. Probably. You know, or was it B-O-B-O? Who was one? But still, it was Ledoux. It was supposed to be like a Cajun name was the idea. Things get mixed up. But, uh, wow. I've never seen any of this, so. I I don't know if I've ever seen it listed anywhere, the TV. And I'm, I'm trying sure. to go through certain tape lists that you'd expect to have stuff like this, and I don't think I've seen it. Well, it's probably somewhere. So Bill also, I presume, is doing this in, as he's on the outs with the, the USWA and working for Burt and stuff like that. Maybe. But uh, so there you go. United Wrestling. All right, let's go to the USWA, everybody. Now, the weekend television show, and I never saw this show hmm. uh, in real time because... My brother did not tape it for me that week. I forgot to tape it, so it was missing from my uh, my bunch. So when I uploaded everything to YouTube, this show was missing. Thankfully, somebody ha has uploaded it since then, yeah. so we have clips. And it is the WMC version. It is, well, yes. Um, the Weekend Television Show was heavily focused on WF performers building up the WF show on February 17th for the Men's Off Coliseum. The show, which also included USW wrestlers Brian Christopher, Tom Rich, and Doug Gilbert, and was headlined by Bret Hart. Keep of the WF title beating Jerry Lawler to cage match set what may have been the all-time record gate in Memphis doing ninety thousand dollars on eight thousand paid, nearly eight thousand paid. There have been many larger paid crowds, but when it comes to dollars, Dave believes in the mid eighties, WF King Memphis did a figure near that with Hogan and Piper in their heyday. And Dave recalls in eighty five, Lawler and Flair did, did a combined NWA uh, CWA, but really was CWA, it's just Jarrett Promotions. They well, did it was called CWA. They had the CWA set in '84 on. They go go back, go watch all that TV and see how many times it's called CWA. I know oh. they don't really say CWA. They don't say CWA it's, it's much actually, until actually, '88, '89. is when it starts yeah. when they when they brand the titles. It's all, it's it's Warrior Sports or Jarrett Promotions. 
on the Memphis television show where Sonny and the Body Damas, Ahmed Jostataka, plus they take the interviews of Bret Hart. The irony of all this is that USDB television show is part of the WCW network when it comes to syndicated advertising. Oh, Jesus. Do I have to explain that again? Might as well. Do it real quick. Okay. Once WWF went national, they started what became a trend where wrestling promotions would do a thing where they added all of their syndicated shows and I forget the exact split, a percentage of the ratings from their cable shows to get a total syndicated network number with the idea of being that they were selling network ads. That's why there's all the stuff about Crockett and network ads and all that. Uh, that would air across all that. That's also why, you know, your Skittles and Castrol or whoever aired across all of the WCW and WWF shows, not just cable, Oxy. not just syndication. Yeah. All of your, you know, network sponsors or even, uh, you know, like when we look at all... Movie trailers, Nintendo. No, but I was going to say when we look at uh, like UWF tapes where we have the version that was sent to the TV stations, you'll have like your bug off or one or two other things that are the oh, network oh, ads. Yeah. Yeah. Bug off. Okay. So eventually Nielsen said you you can claim the number, but you we're not going to rank you. You can't claim a ranking. WCW, of course, tried to claim they were number one at one point, despite not being allowed to do that. Um, well, naturally. Once Jarrett started working with the WWF, they eventually made a deal where they factored in the USWA stations with the idea being, well, you know, most of this network ain't shit. But, you know, Memphis, Louisville, Nashville, you have some pretty damn strong TV ratings there. So it can only help their syndicated network and they can sell, get, you know, they'll benefit too, they'll get the ads, etc. Um, once Jerry Jarrett left, however, and jump sides to WCW, even though they're still working with WWF, the syndication became a political football, so to speak. And it was mixed in with WCW at this time. Yeah, think about this, folks. You have two the two owners of this of, of USWA. One's working with, in WWF. One's working with WCW. And in 1995, the company itself was working with both companies. This is amazing. Yes, yes. I mean, it, even, even Paul Heyman couldn't uh, do something like that. No, I mean. It, it, there wasn't really developmental yet in 95, but you can make an argument that they were WWF and WCW developmental at the same time. Partly, yeah. Because WCW, you know, that's why Scott Studd, Gambler, uh, what's his face? Mr. World Class. Um, Shipment. Thank you. That's why they were there. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, so Bix has explained that. All right, so... Um, after winning the USWA Tag Titles on Valentine's Day in Memphis, Jesse James Armstrong and Tracy Smothers saw their belts go back to PG-13 on the TV show on the 17th. Oh, when Tracy Chris, I just realized something. What? When was the last time we had a week where the days of the week were the same as it was in the year we were recording it? Uh, it's not. Are you sure? The 17th was a Saturday. Today's Tuesday, the 15th of recording. Okay, I got it wrong. I was the, wait, so the 14th show was oh, on Monday? Geez. <laughs> no. Sorry, I was thinking they were still running Mondays. <laughs> Not this show, no. They were. Okay, I thought they were still running Mondays. Okay, go ahead. I wasn't keeping that close track earlier. I, I was saying the February 17 television show. I just said that. that so they weren't running. No, they you're, right, you're right. You're Thursdays. right. You're uh, right. When Smoke hit Wolfie D with a flagpole, but he moved, and he ended up hitting Jesse James, who was pinned. 
After the match, Armstrong and manager Brandon Baxter, who appears to have played Scott Bowden since he wasn't around, which too bad since he's hilarious. Uh, Scott wasn't replaced by Brandon Baxter. He just wasn't on TV that week, and Brandon and Scott were working together. So yeah. Brandon was there, and Scott was hilarious. God bless. Started arguing and wound up with Smothers hitting Armstrong with a flagpole from behind. So Armstrong has turned babyface. It's funny because if Smothers was beating Armstrong, instead of the usual crew of USWA jobbers, and Randy Hales breaking things up. They had all the officials like Dave Hebner in their sports coats running around. Oh, we got to watch this. Well, when I watch this TV show, we'll talk about it when we play all the clips, but it made me want something real bad. So, all right, let's go to the, uh, let's go watch this first and see how this ends up. All right. How long a clip is this about? I, I said it's queued right to the finish, so it's not very, very long. Okay. Take it off mute, Biggs. I did. I don't hear anything. Okay, yeah, that's right. It's not sending any audio. Hold on. That's weird. Let me make sure that, that the audio... I mean, the audio was there when I did the... No, no it is. I'm hearing it. Hold on. Nails Wolfie. There we go. Armstrong covers. And now the referee sees the cover. Starts the count. Two. Foot on the rope. Wolfie D has his right foot on the bottom rope, and that stops the count. That's all that saved him from being... Uh, what, what is Look out for doing? You can see how Brandon's ha hair is just destroying itself, by the way. Oh, yes. yes. Like, have you, have you ever seen someone wreck their hair by bleaching it as quickly as he did? No, not as quickly, no. Because he's... He is, what, 18 here? 18 or 19, yeah. He's got powder in his hand as Smothers gets rattled out of there. And Whoopie takes Jesse James up. Tilt the world cover as J.C. Ice gets him down. The referee over getting Whoopie, trying to get him back to the corner. And Brandon Baxter being caught by J.C. Ice. And Jesse James Armstrong holds him. And the powder nails Armstrong. The cover with J.C. Ice. Count of one, count of two, but Smothers breaks it up at the last second. Powder all over the ring. Baxter grabs a hold of that Rebel flag standard. Throws it up into the ring, and Iceman intercepts. Goes after Jesse James, but he's nailed from behind by Tracy Smothers. What the, the hell Rebel just happened? He's lying right there in the ring. <laughs> Smothers is out of the ring. Wolfie D's got him back. Someone was supposed to feed into something that did not go right. No. Again and nails Jesse James yeah, there we go. Brandon comes off the top. He got it! We got new champion! It backfires on Brandon Baxter not once but twice. And PG-13 has regained... The USWA Tag Team titles. A very upset Tracy Smothers. He is not happy at all with the way... Tracy and the Road Dog pants is freaking me out. Brandon Baxter... Oh, he, yeah, he almost... ...for this run. ...and win the match so that these guys would remain tag team champions, but it didn't work out the way he wanted. It backfired. Like the old saying, Dave, when you got friends like Brandon, Brandon Baxter, who needs big enemy, I'll tell you. He messed it. Look at Jesse James. Armstrong's not happy either. 
Neither Armstrong nor his mother's uh, very happy about the situation. Now Tracy trying to step in between Baxter and uh, Jesse James Armstrong. And Brandon. Brandon looks to me like he got trouble in, uh, in camp here. Uh, didn't work out quite the way you'd hoped, huh? I cannot believe what just happened. That's what I get, I guess, for hiring a man who can't do the job. You are the man who cost us the belts. You are nothing but a stupid, idiotic moron. You are a loser. You cost me those belts. You cost me those belts. He cost you the belts, too. You are nothing but a loser. L-O-S-E-R, you loser. Is that the best you can do? You shut up and listen to me. I am the reason we had those stinking belts to begin with. Now, you know my last name, boy. And you know that Armstrong means nothing but winners in this sport. Bottom line is just this. I didn't never need no 110-pound punk to help me win. I don't give a dang what kind of contract you signed me to. You smell what I'm cooking? 120-pounder? You listen to me. That money I promised you, you want it still? You better shape up. You are a loser. I do not manage losers. I don't manage losers. And to me, money ain't everything, Brandon Baxter. To me, money ain't everything. Right on top of the head, and look at Tracy Smothers. He's got that rebel flag standard just beat the fool right out of his partner or former partner, Jesse James Armstrong. And Brandon Baxter was decked by Armstrong. And then Tracy jumped in from behind and nailed him, busted it, and a check changed hands. We could see it from here, from Baxter to Tracy. That's what we do with losers. That's what we do with Please run them out as they get... <laughs> Jesse James Armstrong just shattered Dave by Tracy Smothers as he busted that rebel flag standard over him. But they lost the title. PG, the champions again. Let's take time out and we're going to be back in just a moment. Oh, I love me some Lance off mic as they go into the break. <laughs> Nailed him 10 or 15 times with the darn thing. <laughs> yeah, I, like I said, I didn't see this show. And then when the next show I got back, I said, what the hell happened? Because <laughs> Jesse James Armstrong's a baby face now. I was like, what? What did I miss? And at this time, you're watching it on American yeah. One from your brother taping it off his dish. Yeah. Because they have yeah. not been, they have not been on in TV in Atlanta since the end of the final Pedicino block. Well, well, I could watch it on a regular basis. No, yeah, because so. it was too low power to get to you. Yes, in the later yes. years, and when it was on yes. Channel Fourteen or whatever it was, Channel Fourteen, correct. So there's that. All right, Sunny. Yeah, how about that? Last week we had Sunny in the studio. Sunny's in the studio here. A full year earlier. 
Well, she came out and told uh, announcers Lance Russell and Dave Brown that they were out of shape and the body Donnas are going to beat up on the hometown boys. So let's watch old Sonny here in her body Donnas attire and uh, see how different this appearance is. It's going to be the King Jerry Lawler against... I just heard y'all call my name. Is that true? Well, yes, we did. But you know, we'll respect you a little later. I'm sure everybody knows I am Sonny and I am from the World Wrestling Federation. I do manage the premier tag team of the World Wrestling Federation, and that's the Body Donnas. But you know, I heard a little something about you two. You know 1996 Tammy is special when even Dave Brown is very obviously checking her out. Well, I mean, 97, she still looked, I mean, she still looked good, good. No, this is a whole different person here. No, but I'm also talking <laughs> about a, but like also just the way her personality comes across too. Yes, totally different person here. But like, it, like he is. You watch, yeah. You he, can watch Sunny as the years go by and watch how the road has uh, owned her. Just in, in, in from ninety, from ninety six to ninety eight alone. Well, that's when things really started to get bad. And you know everything I heard is completely correct. You guys are well, something else. We you are fat, way. you're out of shape, and I think you need a little body on a workout. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. We don't need any of that kind of conversation to start a show. We got a great show coming up yeah, here yeah, today. Yeah, you got a great so show, please, but Sonny. how did the announcers expect to take the whole show if, if, if you look the way you do? If you're in the shape you are. I think both of you need to get up. I think both of you need to do a little bit of jumping jacks. Oh, yeah. Maybe some push In your dreams. Floor. <laughs> sure everybody on TV land thinks the same thing too because they're the ones who have to look at you every week. Well, I'm glad this is a special appearance because I know if myself and my boys were here every week, we would tear the house down, get everybody in shape whether you liked it or not because I don't even think I could stand to look at you. And you know what? Not even just you, but each and every one of you fat, ugly, out of shape, Memphis, Tennessee, hillbilly. You think you are a good representation of our country? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Look at the legs. Look at the legs. One of your thighs and as big as my entire body. I think, you know what? Forget about USWA wrestling today. I think we're going to have a body Donna workout show today for the next hour and a half. Just in case you do not know, this is Sunny with the body of Donna's out here. She comes out and insults not only Dave and I, but she starts picking on the entire audience. I like how Lance, who's clearly not watching uh, the WWF product, has so much trouble with body Donnas. Body Adonis. Because it is patently the most ridiculous name that Vince McMahon has ever come up with. I mean, it, it, I don't want to belabor this because it comes up every time, but like, that's not how words work. No. And like, to the point that Lance Russell is tripping over it. Excuse me, did you interrupt me? Do you have any yes. Oh, well, gee, I am sure sorry about that. You didn't have any problem interrupting us, I'll well, say that. Well, let me that. tell you one thing. I don't care how much you're going to argue with me. I know I could probably never get you in shape anyway. You're way past the point of getting in shape. But I had you have to tell everyone something. That later on today, you'll get a chance to see the Body Donnas in action like you've never seen them before. And I think they're going to whip the butts a couple 
for your hometown, boys. Well, we'll just find out later on. Let's take time, and we're going to be back here with action in just a moment. With Please me. don't come out and interrupt I'll anymore. I'll do anything I wanted to. Yeah, I'll bet you will. How, I mean, how refreshing was that to see? And, and I'm going to bring this up more as we go along. Watching somebody that's, you know, WF talent, you know, working that type of production in this small studio setting, cutting loose. Mm-hmm. Like Sonny was here. And she was a natural at it. I mean, she had this yeah. experience, of course, in that. But this is different. It's in the small studio and everything. So, I mean, good Lord. Also, is it me or does it look like whoever does the news anchor's makeup did her makeup? Because she looked yeah. different. Like she, she looks very news news anchory. That's yes. what I'm saying. Like <laughs> brighter colors and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, her hair's different too. Yeah, it's curlier. It so like, it looks like, yeah, it looks like the uh, TV five ma- hair and makeup people uh, did her up for whatever reason. But she, I, it's insane how good she is here. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. And also, right. you know, to go, good lord, like the young managers they. <laughs> I mean, I know she's in for WWF. She's 23. She might actually still be 22 at this point. Yeah, because, I mean, you look, I so, so Brandon Baxter, we'll get the, the, the right age here. Mm-hmm. Brandon, let's see. He was, so he's 19. Yes. All right. Tammy just turned 23 on December 7th. And Scott, and Scott was 23. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next, we get Jerry Lawler and Bret Hart with their promos. Uh, Lawler in studio, Bret on pre-tape, uh, hyping up their uh, their match that night the Coliseum for the WF title. So let's go to the King! Jerry Lawler. This afternoon at the Mid-South Coliseum, right here in Memphis, Tennessee, here comes the King right now. I mean, line it up. Oh, big sign over here, Lawler's Fan Club. We need that right out there. Lawler is God. The King going against the hit inside a cage this afternoon, Jerry. Well, you know, we saw a little piece of uh, video earlier. We saw what took place last Wednesday night down at the Coliseum. The Hitman, the Undertaker. You know, you get certain feelings in a in a match, Lance, and and you know when things are going your way, you feel like there's there's certain opportunities when you think this is my opportunity to take this match, and man, that's when you go right in for the kill. I had Bret Hart set up, as you saw. I finally, I waited till the time was right. Bang, I caught him in the pile driver. And just as the referee was coming over to count one, two, three, what happens? The Undertaker snatches the referee, picks him up, and gives him the big choke slam. That ends the match. We won the match, but not the way I wanted to. And then you saw all of these guys coming in and pulling Bret Hart and I apart. Well, that's not going to happen this afternoon. There'll be nobody inside that steel cage to pull Bret Hart and I apart. We're going to get to go at it as long as it takes, Lance, and it may take a while. But the unique stipulations on this WWF cage match is, ordinarily here in the USWA, you put people in a cage to keep keep them inside or to keep outside interference out. But in this situation, once you're in the cage, you try to get out. That's the only way you can win. The first man that is able to get out of this cage and put both feet on that Coliseum floor is going to be handed the World Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship belt. Now, everybody remembers back in 1988. You know, it's been a dream of mine, Lance Russell, every time from the very first time I stepped foot in a ring in Memphis, Tennessee, to someday win a world title. You know how many opportunities I had, how close I came for years 
this close, but never was able to, to land that big one. I went against Jack Briscoe. I went against Dory Funk. I went against, I went against Terry Funk. I went against Harley Race. I went against Nick Bockwinkle. And so many times I thought I had a world title, but it always somehow eluded me. Until finally, 1988, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, the AWA World Heavyweight Champion, came to Memphis. Jackie Fargo, the special referee, Lance, it's indelible in my mind, just like it was yesterday. And I walked out of the Mid-South Coliseum, the AWA World Heavyweight Champion. And my dream at that time was to call in and challenge all the federations at that time. There was the USWA, there was the AWA, there was the WCW, and there was the WWF, and there was world-class wrestling. And I challenged all their champions. Let's get together. Let's have a big tournament. Let's see who truly is the world champion, the one true king of the hill. Well, as you know, Lance, they all didn't answer the challenge, but Kerry Von Erich, I got to admit, was man enough to put up the world-class world championship against the AWA title in Chicago. And as you know and everybody else knows, that's how the unified title came about. The unified title that Double J Jeff Jarrett is wearing right now, I unified by beating Kerry Von Erich in Chicago. And what I'm going to tell everybody right now is when I, beat, when I beat, and not if I beat, but when I beat Bret Hart, this afternoon in my backyard, the Mid-South Coliseum, I'm going to once again put out the challenge. I'm going to see who is the one and only true king of wrestling. I'm going to see who is the one and only true champion because when I get that World Wrestling Federation belt, it's going to be open to all comers. And I want anybody and everybody to come and challenge the king and we'll find out who is the man in wrestling. Bret Hart, you've made the mistake of your life, pal. You've come into my backyard. And everybody right here knows the king don't lose in Memphis, Tennessee. Jerry, stay with me just a second. We've got uh, some comments from Bret Hart about the meeting with you this afternoon. Let's take a listen to the Hitman. Well, I'm standing here now with Bret the Hitman Hart here in Memphis, Mid-South Coliseum. Yeah, How do you feel? You came out a loser in the bout with the king and double J. How do I feel about being a loser right here in Memphis? Well, let me tell you something. I'm no loser. The loser's Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler's got the nerve. He's got the referee in his pocket. He's got another referee in his pocket. He's got all kinds of people backing him up that don't even know what they're thinking. You know, I didn't lose that match tonight. Undertaker lost that match by, he, you know, Undertaker had it up to here with the referee. Because what do you expect? I think the you had it up to there. in the backseat of Jerry. You know something? This Saturday. But don't worry about today. Today is over. Today's a, a, a day that's gone. Let's look to the tomorrow. And tomorrow is the future. And the future for Jerry Lawler is very, very dim. 15-foot high steel cage match. I've never lost a cage match, Jerry Lawler. And I don't care who you got backing you up. I don't care who's there cheering you on. I don't care if there's signs. I don't care if people are disappointed when the hitman, Jerry Lawler, and destroys him once and for all. Jerry Lawler, you will pay. I promise. Tonight was just a little sample of what you're going to get this Saturday. 15-foot-high steel cage match. Sherry Lawler, you will be history. Well, there he is, and the statistics say he's never lost a cage match. That's right. He complained about the referee being in my pocket. Well, let me tell you something, Brett. As you know, in this cage match, there'll be no referee in the ring. There'll be no excuses. There'll just be you, and there'll just be the king. And when it's all over, Bret Hart... 
There's a first time for everything. You've never lost a cage match, but you've never had one in my hometown of Memphis, pal. You hear it from the king, the tour de force this afternoon at the Coliseum. Back in just a minute. There you go. I mean, uh, here's Brett being heel Brett again. And, uh, you know, yeah, just it's it, it just a, a, a fresh coat of paint on people mm-hmm. and a different environment. So, uh, yeah, good stuff there with uh, with heel Brett. Yes. All right. And he always had fun with it, too, despite his feelings on uh, Tennessee wrestling. <laughs> yeah. He was getting kind of aggravated with, with Mr. Corey there. That's the way he was uh, interviewing him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so our TV main event is Too Sexy, Brian Christopher against Tatanka. Sure. Refereed by Earl Hebner. So um, so that, we got two clips here. So let's go to uh, the first clip, and uh, which is uh, the end of the match. And then we'll have a second clip, uh, which is cut back from the break after the break. So let's go to the clip. Now, I have a question, though, before we go to the clip. Is this Tatanka or the Native American Tatanka? Oh, I just know Tatanka. Okay. I don't think he was the Native American Tatanka as a heel. I think he was just the Native American Tatanka as a baby face. Well, he's Tatanka. To the Mid-South Coliseum, because I'm going to have all them fans are too sexy right there cheering me on. And there's Tatanka. Oh, I forgot. Tatanka and Brian Tatanka and Brian Christopher aren't wrestling each other. That's right. I'm sorry. Tatanka was wrestling a, a, a squash match. Is that yellow jacket? Uh, uh, looks that way. And yes, Earl Hebner, like I said, is the referee. Uh, it's very crazy watching this. And then we'll have the the brawl coming up. So well, it's because everyone's the fa- in town, I guess. And the fans are doing the Tom Hot Chop. So there's that too. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we can change that today, Dave. Well. He's uh, he's got one victory today, but uh, going to be looking to make it two straight. I know you I have other ideas. I don't think that's going to happen. That ain't going to happen, Dave. I plan on showing this Native American. Not, it's not going to be Southern hospitality when he gets down there to the Mid-South Coliseum. We're going to see uh, the real Brian Christopher in action is what you're telling me, I guess. Did he just mouth fuck you with Christopher? Yeah, Probably. Now, wait a minute. Or a fan, I'm I guess. over this way. Uh, You're so tough, right, Christopher, huh? Come on, Brian Christopher, huh? It's going to be me and you later on today at the Mid-South Coliseum, so you just hold your horses. We got just a few short hours before it's me and you squaring off. Eye-to-eye, that's fine. Come on, man. Gets into a shoving match. You're not going to find Brian Christopher backing away from it. Come on, you want to go now? You want to go now? Let me tell you something, boy. 130 is very close. You get ready. 130. Oh, the referee. Tell him we ain't got to wait to tuck up. We can go now. Uh, yeah, better to wait. Come on, guys. <laughs> got him apart. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Yeah, let's second. take a break. We'll be back. 
Alright, well let's go to the thing clip. Wait, I have a question first. It was a 1.30 p.m. house show? Mm-hmm. Being promoted on a show, TV show that ended at 12.30? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Or wait, were they 11 to 12.30 at this point, or 10 to 11.30? Well, you gotta remember, it's 11 to 12.30 Eastern time. If I'm not mistaken. Yes, what, Memphis was is it? Eastern. Memphis is Central, Bix. Oh, it is? Yes. Okay, but still, it's all in the same market. Doesn't really matter. It's in the same city. Yeah. So, I don't know. But go ahead. Let's play the next clip. Isn't Memphis further... Well, wait. Oh, no, wait. It's more west. Yeah, never mind. Yes! Yes! <laughs> it's far, the furthest west of Tennessee. Yes. He's in between both Skip and Zip. Okay, yeah, let me set this up. So, yes. All right, so uh, Brian, the TV main events is Brian Christopher and Jerry Lawler against the Body Donnas. So here's Tom Pritchard back in Memphis with in the Zip gimmick, and uh, yeah, that's your TV main event. So uh, here's the ending of that, and Tatanka's going to get involved. And yes, Arrow Headman's refereeing again. So we have all this WF folks in in a studio setting. So here you go. Lawler comes in, slaps a chokehold on Zip, Skip fired in, and right off his feet by that flying foot of Brian Christopher, the super kick, the cover, but Earl Hebner, the referee, over trying to get Lawler out of the ring, and Brian Christopher missing an opportunity to get the pin. Here comes, look at this, Tatanka. Tatanka comes rolling in, and the referee calls for the bell. Tatanka going after Brian Christopher as Lawler being double teamed by the Body Donnas. And the King firing back. And look at Christopher on Tatanka. We've got to get out of here for a break, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Watching this stuff makes me want a WF Studios show in the 90s so fucking bad. Imagine how fun that would have been to have a studio setting, you know, I mean, a studio, not, you know, Manhattan Center Raw or shit like that. A proper, like, TV studio setting with a, a fun crowd. Man, that'd been a hoot to see how a, a totally different presentation of a WF product. Yeah. And I'm glad you made that distinction because. Raw at the beginning, though not a studio show, was formatted like studio wrestling to a degree. Yes, doing it. Imagine doing it in an actual studio. Yes, which oh, that that's something I'd like to try to pick the brain of maybe a ja one of the Jarretts on because it sure feels. And we said this before. It sure feels like Jerry Jarrett getting involved is the only reason that really makes sense for why early Raw is the way it is. But I don't think he's even booking yet. So no, he's not. I'm I'm curious what the catalyst is that they all they redo the main cable show to, and suddenly it feels so much like Memphis. Yeah, but still fun as shit. All right, Jeff Jarrett suffered a serious back injury on February 17th in Memphis, taking a bump wrong against Ahmed Johnson. It's funny that Ahmed Johnson's not the one injured. He was carted out of the ring and hospitalized. He's out of the hospital, but no word on when he'll be back. On February 16th in Nashville, which also drew a big crowd, no official numbers at press time. Ahmed won the match by DQ when Jared hit him with his unified title belt. 
Undertaker, Razor Ramon, Hunter's Helmsley were supposed to be in Memphis, but they no show. So they put Yokozuna instead of Undertaker in the IC title match with Goldust with the walkout finish. They also had a triangular tag match where they allowed locals Tommy Rich and Doug Gilbert to go over. Both the Goblins and Body Donnas. It's kind of funny for Memphis fans to see Tex Slasinger on Wednesday and Phineas Godwin on Saturday in the same arena as two different people. <laughs> that is something, isn't it? All right. Uh, the Torch has the full run down the card here. Before the card, there was an air of excitement in the Mid-South Coliseum. Reminiscent of the glory days of the promotion. That feeling was lost, though, when the ring announcer said that because of bad weather in Northeast, that Razor Ramon and Hunter Sumsley would not be present. Crowd booed vociferously, being Pennywise a dollar foolish, not to mention discourteous. No refunds were offered, Bix. Always a fun time. Uh, All right. Wrestling. Our results, the ringmaster, Steve Austin, management Ted DiBiase, B. Savio Vega, lots of rest holes at the initial flare of action. Austin won with a roll-up at 11-24, just fair. After the match, Austin kisses me in the belt, and Savio Drake kicked him with the belt into his mouth. Then Brian Chris over to Tonka. In 923, Brian wasn't as over with, with his predominantly WF crowd as he is with the USWA fans. A few minutes into the match, when Tatanka held Brian a chin lock, a Go Brian Go champ began. Brian rolled up Tatanka with a surprise small package to get the win. And by the way, uh, this is Pat Wade uh, doing the torch report, as he did at the Coliseum in that era. Okay. Yoko's going to beat British Bulldog at 626. Yoko's going to get a good big face reaction. Yoko leg drop and, and bonsai splash Bulldog to delight the crowd and scored a clean three count. Bulldog had to be held to the bat by two referees. Ahmed Johnson beat Jeff Jarrett by countout in 3.30. The match ended prematurely due to Jarrett suffered his fluke back injury. Jarrett got a mixed reaction because he's a heel in WF and a bay face in USWA. Oh, Ahmed worked at a match in the studio as well on the TV show. Um, and had a little deal with Jeff. Nothing good, really, anything. Jarrett did the Fargo show at the beginning of the match for a good pop. Ahmed charged Jarrett the bell. A few minutes later, Ahmed attempted to knock Jarrett over the top rope. When Jarrett ducked, Ahmed flew to the floor. Jarrett did jump off the apron towards Ahmed. Ahmed got up. Jarrett didn't. He collapsed to the floor. And Jarrett was counted out. Crowd was silent. Referee quickly called for help. Ahmed told road agent Rene Goodlay what happened. They eventually got a stretcher, strapped him up, and rolled him out. Twelve minutes elapsed between Jarrett's collapse and being stretchered. Jarrett didn't move the whole time. Yikes. So, it doesn't seem like he took a bump, though. I feel like it would have said that. It seems like he just went for a double sledge or something off the apron and just landed wrong and his back went out. Yeah, basically. What's that to me, too? Guessing, like, maybe a sciatic nerve thing or something? That's all I can think of. Because, Like, if it was a spasm or something, you'd think we'd be hearing about him screaming in pain or something like that. Not just that he can't get up. Yeah. Uh, next was a triangular tag match where Tommy and Doug beat the Godwins and Body Donnas at twelve fifteen. Fans didn't react at all to the the Hog Farmers. Godwins were the first eliminated when Sonny distracted Phineas as Skip needed from behind and then rolled him up for the pin at two thirty. Rich and Gilbert then attacked the Body Donnas. There was a good action, typical of the USWA style. All four brawl for a few minutes. Body Donnas executed a double suplex on Gilbert as Rich tried to end the ring. The referee kept them out. Godwinson came out again, went to Sunny, which got an ovation. Doug finally hot tagged Tommy. Tommy clean house KO and both skip and zip. Disoriented body Donna's looked for Sonny, who was being carried away screaming on Henry's shoulder. Tommy then rolled up skip as Gilbert knocked Zip out of the ring to score the win. Body Donna's powdered in the ring. Well, that was nice of them to put Tommy and Doug over. 
Yes. So. And Doug, okay, so let's see, Doug is what? Doug is 26 years old here? Um, He's older than that. He's 20, he just turned 27. Okay, and Tommy Rich? Oh, Tommy is, is 38? He is 39. 39, so close. Yeah. And they're heels here. They've already done the turn. You know, with Lawler and stuff, but on this show, their faces, and they do a big face interview on television too, pumping it up. Dusty Drosy replaced a no show. Raised Ramon beat one two three kid in four fourteen. Crowd boo when Drosy came out. Wanted to see a bigger name replace Razor. Kid had tremendous heel heat with the fans. Drosy gave Kid the tilt the world trash compact to score a pin. Fans did chair a cheer. They instead called out for Razor. Kid sold the chant after the noise of the fans calling for Razor. Not good. Not good. Shawn Michaels pinned Owen Hart in 11.30. Michaels received a deafening ovation, bigger than any ovation in that building in recent years. Owen watches Michaels play to the crowd, finished all Owen to the sidekick. Michaels ducked, caught Owen with a weak little super kick for the pin. Michaels celebrated his win with two young fans. He then shook fans' hands for about 10 minutes. Well, this is the, the best version of Shawn Michaels right here this time, Pierce. There you go. Goldust beat Yokozuna by his qualifications. Now, Yoko did double duty on this night. In 90 seconds, match was scheduled to feature Goldust against the Undertaker. Paul Bearer walked to the ring, so he was there. Announced Undertaker was stranded due to the weather. The fans went berserk again. No refunds were offered, despite chance of refund, and give us our money back. It came across as a slap in the face that WF didn't have the guts to admit Undertaker was a no-show earlier in the card. Yikes. Goldust raised his arms if he won, but Bear said he wasn't going to get off that easy. Yoko's music played. Instead of popping for it, the fans continued to boo. Shortly to the match, the ref tried to stop Yoko from splashing Goldust a second time, so Yoko shoved the referee, causing for a DQ. I mean, good God. This is a total disaster. Not only do you you, you don't spring you spring this Undertaker deal up as a surprise, then you you have Paul Bear there, and then you do a 90-second DQ finish. Oof. Oof. I forget, is this the blizzard or was that a few weeks earlier? I don't know, but still, not good at all here. Mm. And then we had the main event. Bret Hart over Jerry Law in the cage match to retain Dario Tal on 939. Like Jarrett, Lawler received the biggest reaction. Bret came to the ring to almost a negative reaction. They brought the start, ramming each other's heads to the cage. In six minutes, Bret executed a backbreaker on Lawler and tried to escape, but Lawler grabbed him. Brett almost then reached the floor, but Lawler grabbed him. A moment later, Brett dragged Lawler in front of the doorway by the hair. They fought to the top row trying to escape. Brett kicked Lawler in the groin. Lawler crumbled to a heap on the canvas. Brett then had a top row elbow, climbed the cage. At the top, Lawler grabbed Brett, but Lawler collapsed against on the groin shot. As Lawler crawled towards the door, Brett finished climbing over top, landed a good five seconds before. Lawler escaped through the door. Lawler ejected and got a smattering of applause as he returned to the locker room. Yeah. Thoughts? This is at least the second cage match between the two at the Coliseum in three years. I mean, less than three years. And let it know in the promo that Brett was undefeated in cage matches. He never lost a cage match. Okay. That's, I mean, that's that's what they said, and that's what he said. So there you go. But anyway, any other thoughts on this show? I mean, this is, I mean, good Lord. It's interesting to read the reactions of the fans. Because it tells it tells me that a lot of these fans that were at the show were not watching USWA. Even though it was technically a USWA show, yes. 
No, it's WWF. This is a WWF. Wait, this is one is a WWF show. Okay. Yeah, but but I put it in the in the USWA session because of what's going on. But yeah, it's a WWF show. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. I was a little confused about that a few times. Yeah, it's a WWF show. So yeah, wild. It didn't draw well though. <laughs> It did a big well. I mean, it did eight thousand fans? Wait, okay, then I must have been looking at the wrong thing earlier. I thought I saw it eight thousand fans and broke the city record for gate. <laughs> Hold on, I'm not sure looking look at. at that. I opened okay. No, when I was opening up the torch to check what do I still have that open? I opened up the, the there's notes here for a reason. Uh, no, 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 no. I wanted to see who the guy who the who the correspondent was because that's not in the text that's version on the torch website. But I think I saw. I must have scrolled real quick because, oh, I was looking at the, I scrolled quick and I saw the USWA attendance from that week and not the WWF. That's why. Okay. Like I said, there, there's this, this listen long, read I know, I know, but it's just, it, it, if it scrolls past, it's going to enter my brain whether I'd like it to or not. <laughs> anyway, um, so there's that. All right, um. It's interesting that even though WF ran in Nashville on the 16th, doing a $66,000 house, close to $6,000 paid, when USWA ran their weekly Nashville show on this night, so you ran a show in Nashville after this, they drew a much better than usual crowd of about 900 Hmm. Interesting. And the Torch notes that there were some behind-the-scenes problems between Jerry Lawler, Jerry Jarrett, and WF regarding their combined shows and the dividing of revenues and expenses. Oh. Oh, I'm shocked. Well, that's something. Isn't that something? So we are considering these combined shows in some form. Well, in, in a form, but they were WF-branded shows. In fact, on television, Lance was promoting them as a WF show. Well, also, is this the first time WWF's run the Coliseum for a WWF-branded show? In this era, no. at least? Uh, Weren't they usually running the Pyramid in the 90s? They ran the Pyramid, yeah. I mean, it could be. That's what I mean, at least after they first started working with USWA. But, yeah, the, I mean, they had ran in Memphis, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the Jeff Jarrett angle. No, I know too. that, but that was at the pyramid. Yeah. So, anyway, all right, so that's Memphis. Let's go to Burt Prentice's North American All-Star Wrestling. Okay. They've apparently uh, Oh, well, no, I just got my answer. Because I remember Jason Campbell's site has a non-Jarrett, Goulis, etc. shows section for his Coliseum results. Yes, this is the first show... WWF show in the building since 1990, and the last WWF show in the building as well. well there you go. All right, Burt Prentice's North American All-Star Wrestling has apparently bared the hatch with USWA as they were using USWA wrestling in their shows when they were booked. On February 21st, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, since USWA isn't running Memphis, Prentice is using Jamie Dundee, Jesse James Armstrong, and Tracy Smothers. The Spiders are back full-time. And of course, that's the and North American All-Star and USWA will also plug each other's towns on their respective television shows in the same markets. This was needed. Yes. It, it, at this point, what does it do? What's the downside? You're making sure everyone gets extra work. Just do it. You're not paying this anyone is, much. And this is what leads to the return of Bill Dundee. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. And now let's close out with the World Wrestling Federation. Lots going on here. In the ring and out of the ring. The Bayface side WF leading up to WrestleMania 12 is in something of a state of flux to disarray with the expected leaving of Razor Ramon and injury to Diesel, the arrival of the Ultimate Warrior, 
and the emergency, repl emergency replace the work of Roddy Piper. And of course, Dave has all their real names here. While nothing is official, Hall's expected to join WCW at his contract and legal commitments are, and or sitting out period ends with WF in late May. In a situation spoken with with some disdain by WFCO Vincent Mann, Hall sent a telegram to Vince on February 21st, officially giving his 90-day notice he was leaving the company. On the same day, Hall was suspended by WF for six weeks for reasons theoretically having nothing to do with him giving notice, causing him to miss his scheduled appearances this past weekend. The suspension suspension would take him a few days past WrestleMania, which Hall, no doubt, was counting on as his last big payday before leaving. With him gone, the WF will step again match with Gold against Roddy Piper for the vacant slot, and they are planning to work in that direction on the February 26th Raw show. While Hall will be eligible to return on April the 3rd and work out the remainder of his notice, the general belief is that he'll be sitting out from now until he can join WCW. So what was the official reason for the suspension, Bix? Um, I believe it was in the torch at the time. I believe it was a positive test for marijuana. <laughs> so there you go. Funny how that works. Yes, and Scott Hall has pretty much, in, for the entirety of the past 26 years, without fail, he's always been very consistent, in saying that based on when the last test was, there's no way that they didn't already have this result. Yeah. Which... So it's screwing them out of mania. That's what and, they're doing. Well, and also, mania. the holding people hostage stuff is newer. Don't think all of these tricks and bullshit with punishing the wrestlers in ways like this is new, because not only that, doesn't... Vince also holds back the pay-per-view money that he's owed after he's le after he leaves too. Mm -hmm. To the point that Hall had to get a bit contentious about it, and mm -hmm. I think maybe even get a lawyer involved. Mm -hmm. Like all this stuff gets forgotten, but think how many times stuff like this has come up: the Waltman release, the Flair release, all this stuff with Scott Hall, where it's like you're punishing the guy for giving you his notice. Yeah. How dare you? How dare you, Lee? We're pushing you. Also, in this era, especially, like, in this era, I, I don't know if there's a procedure now. Giving your notice doesn't inherently mean you're leaving. You need to be able to give your notice to have the option to leave, even, and to be able to negotiate elsewhere. Like, and people yes. did that. That's what happened with happens with Davey in 96. Well, wasn't that what Brett did? Brett, I think it was up. In 92? Oh, in 92, that's what he was planning on doing, but he missed the window. Yeah, that's it. So, Just just ridiculous. And then, uh, marijuana, which also, you know, Scott Hall is also the one who tells the story. And again, I think, I'm pretty sure it's something he's been very consistent in. You know, this is more of a thing that started with shoot interviews and all that, but very early in his WWF run, may have even been one of his first couple tapings, he sees Brian Knobs arguing with Vince. Because Brian Knobs had tested positive for marijuana and was being fined, and I forget if he was suspended, but still, Brian Knobs is going off on Vince, like, you know, what fucking business is it of yours if I want to go to my hotel room and relax after the matches? And the way Hall tells it, and I've never seen anyone refute this, is that Vince's reply was, well, I guess you'll have to drink more and take more pills then. Marijuana had a stigma. I mean, it, it was a much bigger stigma for I marijuana. Know. 
than just about any other drug. Even I would say sometimes that marijuana had more of a serious stigma than fucking cocaine. And think about how ridiculous that sounds now. Well, especially since it seems like everyone in wrestling kind of knew that it was the most benign thing they could go for in this kind of scenario. You know? Yes. Yes. Like people in wrestling knew. Like even people who weren't using it. I I can tell you what I can tell you what it is. Hmm. Why? One of the reasons why that stigma is what it is is I think because you're smoking it. Yes, we don't have this whole dispensary industry and all that in 1996 or whenever. It's like crack. You're smoking crack. You're smoking weed. Cocaine. You're snorting. Well. The crack thing, I think some of it is smoking it, some of it is also just the way that the whole thing was racialized. Well, of course, but still, weed, I mean, weed it had just as negative stigma as crack, you know? But yes. yeah, also, it, well, it, we're, getting, we're, getting, we're, going, we're going way off. Well, though, just to close the loop, though, 1996 is when California passed the Compassionate Use Act. Though. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting way off track. All right, so let's get back. WF will no doubt attempt to claim the Ramon name and character as their intellectual property. Oh, they sure will. <laughs> Which means WCW could not use him as Razor Ramon, nor probably as a Latin character. Oh, no. They would never do something like that. He's believed to have earned approximately $270,000 in 1995, well down from what uh, he earned in 1994, which believed to have been well in excess of $400,000. It had been no secret he had been unhappy with WF for the past few months, but because the office didn't adhere to his wishes that his feud with gold thus be vetoed in favor of working with either Hunter Hussemsley, who the click wanted Ramon to drop the IC strap to and feud with, or 123Kid, who was a member of the click, and also unhappy with the baby ball and diaper angling to most the recent pay review with Kid, which we'll talk about later. Ramon also missed some house show dates of late because of family pressures. The combination of guaranteed money, perhaps offered long-term by WCW, combined with an easier road schedule, which means more time at home and less road expenses, which theoretically would ease family pressures, probably led to the decision which wasn't expected by most in wrestling. Uh, unexpected, excuse me. However, there, were bitter, there was bitterness with him in WF for how Hall handled his departures, as he was on the road with the entire office crew from Sunday through Tuesday, giving me no indication he was leaving. And but prominently above tag team title tournament, where he and Savio beat Kid Tatanka in the first round match taped on February 20th, and scheduled for Aaron on March tonight, and an angle's leading to a planned street fight gimmick match against Goldust. The latter was planned that the record take place live in Miami on a downtrodden street and be being live via Sally on Perry as part of a WrestleMania show. Well, it's most likely the angle had the angle taken place that would be similar to the Dustin Rose Blacktop Bully match from a year ago, and it'd be taken several days in advance and be inserted into the show. Then, when the office crew at the booking razor in a strong position for the future, arrived back in the office, they had a telegram from him giving him giving this notice. At press time, we'd be given no indication as to if the match in the tag terminal air is planned or if there'll be a change. It was announced all weekend house shows that Razor wasn't appearing due to a six-week suspension. On Raw, there was no mention of his name. I gotta think, this might be the last telegram of note in wrestling history. Yeah, but you know, I mean... I get... I get their anger from them. If he's with them, you know, and just it doesn't say anything. Then when he comes back home, he sends a telegram. I can see some people being pissed, you know, because we started we started this creative direction, and now you want to give notice. I could get the, I could get the bitterness. I could yeah, get but it. The, yeah, but the blow off is almost two months before he has to go. 
I mean, I could get the bitterness, but still, I mean, well, the tag Toronto tournament deal and all that other stuff. I mean, I, 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 I get, I get the bitterness, but of course they handled it the wrong way. Yeah, I think we can do that no matter what. Um, so adjusted for inflation, he made a little over three quarters of a million dollars in '94 and a little over half a million in '95. So for whatever reason, he made less money. There you go. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, is he? He's well. He's not a champion for much in '95. No. So that's probably part of it. And yes. I also wonder if, even though that's his buddy, I do wonder if there was any resentment over not trying him as the champion instead of Diesel. Yeah, I'm sure there was there's probably something to that, although he wouldn't say that publicly. No, but if you weren't looking to hotshot, I remember Wade Keller saying this at the time, Razor was actually the best choice. He was. But, but I also think part of this, too, is... I think he sees the writing on the wall with the click. Mm-hmm. If they couldn't get their way with, you know, getting Hunter in that in that spot and get, and get an icy title, then maybe we don't have the power like we thought we had. And who and and and, and, and Kevin is with Scott on this and in, in that thinking, and they're the two that leave. And it's also, by the way, we should trust. It's a, it was pretty much a complete coincidence that they were able to leave so close together. Yeah, like that that's just happenstance. It's based on when they came in and when their contracts were up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, big a big blow here, and the shit you know really hits the fan the week after. After our week is when Nash does his thing, when he gives his notice. Yeah, when he gets his notice. So yeah, I think it's something now. Just wait a week, boys. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with, with, with Nash. And notice how different they treat Nash than Scott, though. Nash isn't punished. Nash presumably didn't have a drug test result they could throw at him. But he's also Kevin Nash. Well, he and prob- also... He probably played polit- the political game a whole lot better than Scott did. He probably did, too, but also part of the reason he could do that on top of being Kevin Nash is that he... He's the key figure in the business turnaround, arguably, because while it's it's his three-way feud with Bret and Undertaker that really picks up business, the fresh element is newly tweener Diesel. Yeah. So he's in a spot where Vince can't really mess with him, if even if he wants to. Yeah, because he's got a big match with Undertaker WrestleMania. Right. And they ain't screwing around with that. Aren't there stories that they actually did tape the Razor Goldust match before Hall got suspended? Uh, no, it didn't happen. Okay, it didn't. Where, what am I thinking of? Then? They did promos. I know, but yeah, but then that that the, there was never a no. They didn't get no. that far. Okay, no, because they started the Piper thing the week. After, I mean, the Monday after our week. Right. So yeah, the, I mean, they started that immediately. Alright, so there's that bombshell. In your house. Let's talk about In Your House, which Razor completed on. There's latest In Your House review show on February 18th in Louisville Gardens is basically a show designed more to build to WrestleMania than a standalone show on its own. While the show was generally well received, Dave was in a minority on this one. Shawn Michaels and Owen Hart had an excellent match, but from a wrestling standpoint, it was a one match show. 
Brett and Diesel's main event cage match was terrible up until uh, the creative ending where Undertaker came from underneath the ring to pull Diesel in the ring and allow Brett to escape the cage. As expected, Brett once again came out of the match devalued as a champion going to the biggest show of the year. The show was largely designed to set up Michaels expected title win over Brett by giving Michaels a strong clean win over an established star. The Diesel Undertaker match and Vader Yokozuna match was built up. All three were well accomplished, but in doing so, two of the top three matches on the show itself suffered. The show drew a legitimate sell of 5,500 fans to the Louisville Gardens, and the show did sell out a few days in advance, although not the weeks in advance sellout that was, pro- was proclaimed during the show. Well, of course, Dave. All right, our dark match. Well, this, one, this is a free-for-all match. That's right. Jake the Snake over Tatanka with a DT at 536. Jake got the big pop coming up, but even his loose ring top couldn't hide that he was terribly out of shape. He blew up fast, and judging for comments here, a large percentage of the fans noticed. Dud. Then we have Vader and Jim Cornette doing an interview where Cornette basically said that Vader would get involved in the show. Actually, it was stronger than that. It teased that Vader would be added to the card at the last minute. This aired during the pregame show. It would be added in a match in, as a sleazy last-second attempt to get buys. So then what WCW did last year, making a last-second tease that a Hogan-Vader match would be added to a pay-per-view show that neither was booked nor wrestled on. Oh, yes. For all legitimate complaints of Vincent, and that was uh, Great American Bash. Yes. For all legitimate complaints Vincent Mann makes about WCW, when it comes down to the core things, he's guilty of a lot of them himself. Oh, you oh, don't he say. Sure, he sure is. Yes. Oh, and for what it's worth, here's what the torch said about the drug test specifically. Coincidentally, the same day Hall gave notice, results from a drug test he took several weeks earlier came in. And according to WWF sources, he tested positive for marijuana. Understandably, the initial assumption was that WWF was mad at Ramoning for giving notice and conveniently pulled out an, out an old t- drug test and called him on it, bringing into question the legitimacy of the drug test and the consistency with which they are enforced. Talks about Tully Blanchard. How did you miss this? We have quotes from Vince. <laughs> because it's after our week. Our week ends with Hall. I mean, uh, Hall gives notice on the 21st, Bix. Our week ends on oh, the 21st. Oh, the drug test is after the 21st. Okay. Well after. I didn't understand. Yeah. Oh. Or nobody give, gave notice on the same day, I thought. Yeah, but that's not the reason. They, I mean, they suspend him, but the reason doesn't come out until after the fact. Oh. I'm not, I never quite understand what your rationale is for if you consider that part of our week or not. Anyway, but it was Vince said— Because it didn't take place during our week! That's why. Yeah, but <laughs> anyway. So what Vince said was, there's nothing I can do about that coincidence. What, do you want this show to be even bigger? Well, I'm just—it's a Vince quote. Uh, people draw their own conclusions. Nothing I can do about that. I'm a sitting duck. Anyone can say anything they want about it, but one thing's for sure. No one has anything to worry about if they don't test positive. Well, there you go. Yeah. All right, so... Um, Speaking of Razor Ramon. Yeah. Razor Ramon pin one, two, three, kid in the big bottle match 12-01. Kid came out with a stroller and Razor Ramon teddy bear. Kid looked smaller than usual, like in the 180-pound range. Even with the size difference, they had a good match. Ted DiBiase threw baby powder in Ramon's eyes. To give Kid the advantage, Kid used a lengthy sleeper, which neither Ramon nor the announcers had a clue how to effectively sell, and went over the head of most of the crowd as well. Finally, Razor broke the hole by crotching Kid on the ropes. They went to seven their falls for DiBiase to stretch the ref and threw a baby powder bottle at him. Threw a baby powder bottle at Kid. Kid poured the powder in his hands, but when Ramon turned around, he kicked Kid in the hands, and the powder went in the Kid's eyes. Razor used one Razor's edge and refused to pin the Kid, but then did such a second one. He put the baby ball in Kid's mouth, threw powder in DiBiase's eyes, put a diaper on Kid, poured baby powder all over him. When Kid revived in the ring, he started crying. Three stars. Well, 
let's go to the post-match, shall we? Yes. I, I don't remember the last time I've seen this, so I'm curious how Vince calls this. Tim White's doing the Tim White's facials and giving him the bottle and diaper and powder. Oh, no! Oh, my God, look at that! (laughs) The baby body! The baby bottle, rather, stuffed in baby body diapers. I think we're going to use a little powder. Well, they say anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation. Let's see how (laughs) big that razor is. Come on, big man, this is embarrassing. That's humiliating. What do you mean? Why are they playing Look the music? That. Well, we're going to see how good. Oh, yes, what it means. I know, I'm but it feels out of place. Looks like he's done this before. What do you say, King? To celebrate? I don't know. On one side. Tap on the other. Got the liner in there. There you go. And I raise your amount. No, no. Oh, that's one way to powder a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing for someone, either Razor Ramon or the one, two, three kid. Let's go back, take a look at some of what we saw. The kid now coming up, but here we go. Take a look at this. Right in his face, the kid was going to nail the bad guy. That should have been the disqualification on Razor Ramon right there. Yeah. Well, Wait till the kid realizes he's got a diaper on. The kid just coming back around after those devastating maneuvers by the bad guy, those Razor Edge, Razor's Edge, rather. It's basically a makeshift cloth type, by the way. And uh, the kid, I don't, has, don't think he has any idea where he is, really. One was bad enough, the bad guy wanted to put an end to this thing once and for all, and gave the kid an extra razor's edge. I don't think the kid knows where he is. He doesn't even know he's in Louisville. And I'm sure he doesn't know he's in a diaper. Kid! Look, he's, he doesn't even know the match is over. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, look at man. that diaper hanging down on him. He looks kind of a... The kid... He's doing his karate poses, but like selling like he's doing them concussed. Him any moment. What has happened to him? Thinks he won. Ted DiBiase's trying to tell him he's wearing a diaper. And that's exactly what he's wearing. He's wearing a diaper. He's wearing a diaper. No, don't cry. Whatever you do. The kid is crying. I think the kid is crying. I think the kid is crying. The kid is. Look at this. He's trying to get the diaper off. Wrestling with a diaper, and the kid throws out a loaded diaper to the outside. Here's how great a re- performer Sean Waltman is, pretending that it's difficult to unsnap that. Yeah, but a uh, one diaper. Let's go back to Ray Rougeau and Sonny standing by. Oh yeah. my goodness, the kid is so upset. All right, back to the WWF superstar. Line. Let's not. Yeah, this this would have a uh, impact on Sean Walker. If I remember right, he was not happy with this. Even even though it was fine for the gimmick, it's just it's not the type of thing they do in the WWF, and that it felt like a burial to him. 
Yeah, he got, I mean, he got pretty emotional about, you know, the whole thing, you know. Uh, kind of, I would say, embarrassed her in a way. You know, it just, yeah, I mean. This is what, I'm going to like the timeline shoots or something you're talking about? Or? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those deals where, I mean, this is what you do with a man, with, well, I don't think it's that. I mean, I've just heard him say it other places. Um, it, like, I don't know if, I don't know if I remember correctly him saying that this, you know, caused him to go stop a depression. But I mean, he was going through some things at this time. But this is the type of shit you do with, with you know, the managers. This is like a cornet, Ronnie P. Gossett, you know, Southern thing. Not really doing it with a guy with a one, two, three kid stature. And someone who has been a serious wrestler the whole time and has only been a heel less than six months in the company. Yeah, it was a weird deal here. But all of that said, it's very obvious whose idea this was. Yeah. That would be new creative team member James E. Cornette. If it feels like punishment. I wonder if maybe he brought the idea up and then it was seized on, perhaps. It feels like I mean what it feels like is it, it feels like, you know, the clique is kind of being punished. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean it, I mean it's, he's being punished for the clique, in a way. You know? It's like what what happened with, with Triple H, you know? Yeah. You go for the, you know, a lower guy on the totem pole to send a message to the other guys. Little did he know what message they were about to send them. Well, he knows there are two, two of them have their contracts about to be up. Hunter hasn't done anything. Well, he's, well, he's about to on this show. Well, Altman rubs yeah. some people the wrong way. But you get what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's yeah. It, if, if from their perspective, it makes sense that he's the one to send a message. Yes. All right, so let's talk about one Triple H. Hunter Helmsley, he beat Duke to Dumpster Drossy in 938. Drossy has lost even more weight than the kid. Helmsley came out with another model type. It's harder to tell with his outfit. What Drossy could have lost 30 or 40 pounds in the last month, or it wasn't as he was looked cut, but he looked just like a much smaller, shorter-haired brother of himself. He showed good fire, but in spots almost came off geeky, showing the fire by posing with his new body that is an opposing body but isn't a very good wrestler. Helmsley's improving, and the match was significantly better than a rumble match. After a power slam, Drosy used his new finishing maneuver called the Trash Compactor, which was a spinning power slam. He then left the ring to get his garbage can, threw it in the ring, actually hit Helmsley in the mouth, and appeared to split his lip open, and tried to bring the can in. As the ref stopped him, Helmsley got the lid, hit Drosy with the pin, star and a half. Then we got Yokozuna going over David Boy Smith by Nikki in 505 when Jim Cornette hit Yokozuna with his tennis record three times. David did about as good as one could do, given Yoko has no conditioning, came to a singles match. Now it's Bay face. Yoko's going to spoke for the first time. Mr. Fuji seems to disappear. Dave guesses somebody else can win this win his award. <laughs> uh, what would that be? Worst manager? I don't know. Yes, worst manager of the year, which at this point, I believe only Mr. Fuji has ever won. There you go. Uh, Yokozuna didn't say he needed a racket shot stalk corner until Vader came running in. Vader and Davey did double team on Yoko, with Vader finally pulling out handcuffs and cuffing Yoko to the corner. The two continued to be on Yoko, who made several combats before being beaten down until finally all the ages, including for the first time on a pay-per-view, the former George Animal Steel. And the noted Clarence Mason ran in to break things up. One star. Yeah, if I remember right, there is, it, there is a very short window where uh, road agent Jim Myers is ever visible doing pull-apart brawls. Because he's done within the next couple of years, too, isn't he? 
Yeah, but he was he was a road agent for for many years. He just never was on camera because because right. they felt like George Steele was. was right. George Animal Steel was too much of an expose to. But not this time period. Nothing to come out there. Yeah, which was interesting to watch. That you know, interesting to see how that, how that happened. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, next match: Shawn Michaels pin Owen Hart fifteen fifty seven. Shawn danced on the roof of the house set and used a. To rope, excuse me, to come down for his ring entrance. The two had expected an excellent match, although nowhere close to the Brett Davy match from December. Sean, in the early moments, did a twisting plunge on top rope to the floor from Owen. After Sean superkick suplexed Owen to the floor, he came off the apron, and Owen turned the crossbar into a power cell on the floor. They continued doing well time excellent spots. Owen used sharpshooter, but Michaels meant to the ropes. Owen blew his nose on Sean. Finally, Owen hit the instigator, which was the key storyline point, knocking Michaels to the floor. Owen brought Michaels back in, but Michaels kicked out. The pit attempt. British saw Sean go for the super kick with miss. Owen went for the integrity and miss. Finally, Sean connected with the super kick for the pin. Four stars. Hell of a match. Yep. So, they always had very yeah. good chemistry. It's just that when it came time to do the big program, uh, politics got in the way. Uh, yes. A lot of them got in the way. A lot of politics got in the way. Mm-hmm. All right, then we got Brett over Dees on the cage match retaining WFL 1913. From reports live, it appeared Dees were received about 70% cheers. Although some attributed to the USWA television show there at the weekend in Louisville, where Brett was on doing several interviews for his match in Memphis with Jerry Lawler. Dave doesn't think it portrayed the portrayal of Hart as the guy who's lucky to be champion doesn't really deserve it in this day and age helps. With the exception of the debut match in December, which is the perfect match to get over the champion since he wins clean. Challenger, since he looks so great, Ben, you expect, while losing, and Belt, since the obvious king of promotion holds it. However, from a storyline standpoint, Brett looked into the belt in the match where Diesel should have won because he but was too nice a guy, and an Undertaker should have beaten him twice, but Diesel saved his ass both times. Which the last thing fans want to see happen involving the Bayface champion against a popular challenger, because a natural reaction to begin with is to want to see the title change. Anyway, the first 15 minutes of the match were boring, as Diesel was just so limited what he could do in a match where the object is to climb, and he's not climbing. Even forgetting the confines of the match, Diesel looked slow and unimpressive as Brett, Ed Brett let fire. It picked up in the last few minutes, had a great finish, as Diesel was about to go out the door to win. Undertaker came from under the ring, grabbed his foot, and dragged him under the ring. The special effects of smoke under the ring went through it. Brett didn't escape the cage to win, but came out of the show once again as a second-tier star underneath the Undertaker. Diesel, Michaels, and Vader. Diesel then climbed back from under the ring with his pants torn, climbed the cage, running away from the Undertaker to show he was afraid of him. Ironically, the large being cheered during the match, Diesel was almost 100% booed afterwards. Star and a half. Well, let's watch this. Let's watch uh, how this played out here. Climbing closer and closer. The door is open. The door is open. Red Art has Diesel in a kick out. Diesel's going to make it. And Diesel's going to come out the cage. Diesel's going to WrestleMania. Trying to kick out of it. And yes, he does. Jesus going to WrestleMania. I gotta stop for a second to point out that holy shit, do I hate, and they did this for a long time, maybe not as much the last few years, when Vince or another announcer who Vince is producing would put X is going to WrestleMania ahead of X is about to win the title, X is the new champion. Mm. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's. That's not the important part. It is Vince's mind. Yeah, goddamn pal. 
What? 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 What in the world? What is this? What is this? What is this? What is going on? It's Undertaker. He's just not saying anything. Undertaker dragging him under the ring supposed to take longer than it did. Because it he gets him down there very fast, and then there's just this dead air after the match. Yeah. Or, or Taker's just standing there in the ring, and Diesel's walking around, staring at him. Well, at least, at least they were short on time. I mean, they ran short instead of long. Yeah. That's preferable, but it, it, I guess it's that because the crowd pops for the Undertaker thing, and then after the finish, they're just completely deflated. Yeah, not not well executed, and then also relative to expectations, is this the worst Bret Hart pay per view match? Um, mess up there. I mean, think about the chemistry these two had. Think about the Nash. In this late 95, early 96 period is probably the best he ever was in the ring. And it t- didn't click. No pun intended. Didn't see L-I-C-K. No. Yes. Alright. So there's your in-your-house pay-per-view. Now, of course, it's in your house, so we have matches after the show. Ahmed Johnson bit Isaac Yankin with a Pearl River Plunge in a pretty bad match. Isaac suffered Jeff Jarrett, who's back Locked up on a match previous day in Memphis, although he was out of the hospital and never out the next day. So there you go. There's your update on Jeff. Uh, the Godwins beat the Body Donnas, and what was reported as a good match. And Undertaker beat Goldust by a walkout countout, so Dust had kept the IC title. Told this match was also pretty bad. I know we're past it by 96 for the most part. 
but is there anything that makes wrestling like just in terms of like rules bullshit that makes wrestling seem faker than that a walkout finish yeah I mean, it's one of the worst finishes you can do, yes. Because not not just in terms of being cheap. How is that not a fucking submission? Yeah, he quit. He left of his own on accord. Purpose. Yes. Quit on purpose. And they had gotten away from it for, for a little bit, too. But I think they brought it back some for Jared, and now Goldust is doing it. And then they start really ramping it up in recent memory. We had a lot of them there for a while there. Walk out finish, especially on television. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> that's the pay per view. Now let's talk about Raw. Oh no, we're not. We're not done yet. Sorry. When the session of Possibly Michaels appeared, the most overperformer on the show was Roddy Piper. Piper did an interview segment as they were set up the cage for the main event, where he seemed to have a clue as to what's going on. And it wound up with Cornette and Clarence Spacer coming out. Piper pinched Cornette in the butt. However, when hype in WrestleMania's Yokozuna Vader match, Piper said, let the blood flow, which must have made McMahon cringe, considering a letter he wrote to Ted Turner. <laughs> uh, Bix, what was in the Turner letter to Ted Turner about blood? Uh, what what was the date he sent that letter? It was going into Super... It was like the week before Super Bowl, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Or maybe two weeks before, so this letter is like two, three weeks ago. That he sent the yeah. letter about how clearly, based on your programming, uh, the act of self-mutilation is uh, condoned in World Championship Wrestling. And here's Piper saying, let the blood flow. <laughs> uh... <laughs> sure, Vince loved that. So, oh, God. Uh... I mean, why wouldn't Piper think it's okay unless he was told so, though? The last match he had in the company, his opponent gigged and didn't get in trouble for it because he was able to cover it well. Yeah. Um, let me just double check. What's the actual date? Because I think I have it in this tweet. February 8th. So the pay-per-view was when? The 18th. Ten days. Yes. <laughs> Piper also did a show, uh, interview after the show, this time backstage announcing the Undertaker Diesel match at WrestleMania. So there's that. At the preview ended, but in the tape, they're probably on syndicated shows. Jake Roberts interview talking about the years where he was addicted to alcohol and cocaine. And so he's back at wrestling, the glorified of Lord. Y'all say this snake is no longer Damien, but named Revelation. Revelations. Yes. So, Raw. And then we got a big story here. After a false start in December, Titan Sports once again unleashed the Ultimate Warriors return with a promo piece on the February 19th Monday Night Raw television show. Jim Helwig and Mr. Man were negotiating in December, but it fell through reportedly due to money or disagreements, as well as Helwig rep- reportedly wanted to use a testosterone patch, which, while legal, would render the basics of the Titan steroid policy as practically worthless. Helwig falls on a long trail of 80 stars being brought back in recent weeks. Piper, Road Warriors, Elizabeth, Jake Roberts. The return, and it should be mentioned that it was never directly said he was returning, also would be ironic and hypocritical coming on the heels of Titan pointing their finger on television at WCW on the subject of steroids and threatening to expose them more in the future on that subject. You mean a legitimate drug test for steroids? The whole proof of a legitimate anti-steroid stance, which neither company has or probably ever will have, would be to avoid the use of chemical freaks that can make them money because they are sincere in their stance, Rather than finding ways to allow the guys who can draw money based on nothing but physiques built on by chemicals be pushed. Because of that, nobody without a full sincere stance from pro wrestlers the right to point their finger at another promotion and yell steroids, as Vince Amanda a few weeks back on television. 
because he has a strong test of policy and WCW was so flagrant just a few months back that the heat's on. WCW was probably cleaned up. Some, including Dave, were almost able to just to justify McMahon's actions. They were a positive for the business because the end result was WCW may have somewhat cleaned up, but the temporary that permanently only time will tell. Besides taking Helwig at this point, with this track record regarding the ster- regardless of steroids, appears to be yet another sign of desperation. Another thing leading Chris why Warrior would be brought back is eternal fear that several top baby faces, not just Diesel and Razor, could be leaving. Hmm. And that's why he's brought back. One reason. Yep. Now, uh, as far as drugs and stuff, though, not only does he look like the old Warrior, he looks bigger. Yes. that That's the thing. I mean, that they... They go in this anti-steroid spiel and do this and the other, but here comes the warrior looking like he's cut out of granite. And, uh, you know, it just totally kills your your whole your whole argument. You know, it's deader than dead. Yeah, I mean, this is... Before he looked like, I guess, as much of a bodybuilder... I should say it the other way around. Much as much as an active pro wrestler could look like a bodybuilder, here he's still cut, but he's so much bigger. He has before anyone else really did. He has that like two thousand one WWF like cut and like oh, what's the, and hard like horse steroid look. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like you know how sometimes you'll see pictures of guys from like two thousand one WWF, and it's like Jesus Christ. Test. Well, where do you get the name, Chris? <laughs> yes, I know. So, yeah, so now we're about putting putting Warrior out there on television, so that's getting everybody pumped up for his return. Yeah, and you know, it was a difference maker. Yeah. For the three months he was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Um, trying to think, do I have... I mean, I have his contract. Let me see, when does it actually get signed? That's the earliest thing I have from this one, from the lawsuit stuff. This was signed. Okay, there is a... Okay, the last draft revision is in our week. It's on the 20th. But this isn't... Oh, no, excuse me. Okay, they they finished drafting on the 20th. I was reading the date wrong. They were using a previous master contract from the previous April... This one might actually have not actually have one. It was signed. I don't see a signature, and it, yeah, it looks like this might have been redlined a little or something. So he's he, he he's either about to sign, or they know he's. You know what I mean? If he hasn't signed already, he's literally about to put pen to paper when they air that video. Yeah. And before we move on, we should note one of very few wrestlers in WWF history ever to actually get like. Not just negotiated money, but a ton of negotiated terms in the contract. Like, you can look it up. Compare his contract to other contracts from that era. It is very customized. Anyway. Let's move on to Raw now. And uh, highlights of the live Raw on February 19th for an estimated 8,500 fans at the Cincinnati Gardens. Saw Razor Ramon over gold dust via walkout countout finish in the IC title uh, match. Also, I'd love to know paid versus paper on that because... 8,500 either way for TV in early 96 is fantastic. Yeah. Cincinnati was, was a, a decent market for wrestling. And they, they, they did houses. So. I know, but still, like, 
I mean, think about that. How often do they draw? Do they put eighty five hundred people in the building for TV today? Yeah. Well, times are different, and yeah. and and costs are different. <laughs> well, arenas um, and other things. Yeah. Tickets. Yeah. Well, tickets too. Yeah. After the match, Razor told Goldust he wanted his ass, and asked Roddy Piper to sign a rematch. He said that he likes kids. That's not the best thing to say. And does think Goldust something kids could see. Based on comment, the commentary, the impression was given that Razor doesn't care about the title. So maybe a non-title gimmick match at WrestleMania, like perhaps a lose leave town if Razor decides to go to WCW, which is a distinct possibility right now. Raw was written before. Uh, I mean, this this report was written before the Scott Hall thing. So yes, well. This, it, what Dave's saying doesn't even make sense, though, because if they were to do Loser Leaves Town, it wouldn't need to be non-title. <laughs> yeah. Aldo Montoya and Barry Horowitz were in the ring for a tag match when Vader ran in and destroyed both of them. The ringmaster, with a shaved head and shades of his charisma as well, pinned Marty Jannetty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Well, okay, so Undertake- has he done the... Ringmaster has a stone cold personality promos yet? No. That that's what the next TV. Um, no, I think the next set of tapings is when he gets the name change. Um, um, no, okay, I just looked. This is the match where McMahon first refers to his personality uh, as Stone Cold. It's, it's coming up in the notes. Okay, that's on the Superstars on. tape. The promo was on Superstars then. No, oh, it doesn't say. It doesn't specify. Well, okay, because the. History of WWE mentions this as the reference from Vince to his personality being Stone Cold. Okay, well, yeah, the torch, which we'll, well, I'll go ahead and read it now since we're talking about it. Let me scroll all the way down to the end. Um, from McMahon's commentary on TV, Austin's character is cold-hearted and Stone Cold and likes to torture opponents. So, yeah, so it didn't specify when that comment was made, but there it's it is. It's during the match, yes, and... We should know, too, one of the things I've always found funny about his success as Stone Cold Steve Austin is that the name stuck because Stone Cold Steve Austin has such a nice ring to it, but the yeah. character that got over was not Stone Cold. It was the opposite. No. Yeah. And, and Wade had, I remember now when I did a notice, Wade had that sentence like in the middle of a paragraph of a bunch of things. In one of his little you. run like new, like uh, notebook rundowns? Or, yes. Okay. Yeah, like whatever you know, stuff going on. He just happened to just casually mention that that happened. So which which at the time, who I mean, like he would have known. So <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, um. Well, also since it's not in the observer recap, but we want to play it. Next on the show is the is the mankind vignette. Well, go ahead and play it then. Yes. It's weird how much he skips over in this era. Stuff he doesn't see. Think that's interesting, I guess. Okay. Eighth day. Find out. God created mankind. Why was he having such a bad day? Why did he create all of you normal and forget so many important parts of me? He made the teeth that I swallowed, the ear that was ripped from my skull, a face that no longer exists, and the fingers that no longer the music normal you think you're normal deep inside you are merely a mirror image of all my atrocities the ugliness that exists outside 
lives inside every one of you. Yeah. On the eighth day, God created me. Maybe he should have slept that day too. <laughs> okay, wait, I need to hear the rest of that. So he just says unbelievable as a segue? That's it, yeah, I mean, but yeah, way, way, like, uh, he gave, like, a uh, full rundown of everything was said in the promo. Talk about it was uh, great imagery and execution. But yeah, that's how that's how Vince sold it. So that's how they sold it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, what thing? What one other thing we missed too that Dave didn't mention, which happened. Uh, we had Sunny singing "Happy Birthday" to Mister President while running her hand up her thigh. Oh, because it's President's that, Day. That was after uh, the um, Vader attack on Aldo Montoya and Barry. I don't Holtz. think we need to watch that though. But no, 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 we don't want to hear Sunny sing. This is the era where they're overdoing. I guess is the right word. All of these, look at how sexy Sonny is, like bumpers. Yes, yes, they were, yes, exactly. They were trying to, uh, they were definitely you know, pushing her hard as like uh, their sex symbol. Yes. So. Yes. Now, as far as mankind, as dumb as some of this stuff was with the sewers and the rat, and I believe that's Cornette's pet rat, and I'm not kidding when I say that, um... And the childhood piano prodigy abused by his parents, blah, 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 blah. You take it down to the bare essentials of what the gimmick was and what ended up working. Holy shit, does Mick knock this out of the park, I should say. Oh, yeah. And I think one of the reasons it worked, besides that they got rid of all the extra hokey bullshit by the time he debuted, in the you know, debuted in Arena, was that... The kind of, like, great cerebral promo version of Cactus Jack hadn't really been, like, a scary heel yet. No. You know? Like, he hasn't he hasn't been a heel doing, like, that version of Cactus Jack in over three years. Because, you know, the ECW Cactus Jack is a lot different. He's a heel, but he's not supposed to be this big scary heel. And... That it, no, he's a heel not, because he doesn't want to hurt. He doesn't want to hurt himself in violent matches. Right, exactly. That's a heel. That's being a heel. And while he had already become a really good promo by the end of '92, beginning of '93, he wasn't. He wasn't this great yet, and he wasn't really being pushed as scary. No. So he's just doing an excellent job tapping. Hell, into, Bill, Bill. Go ahead. Bill Watts made him Michael. Bill Watts made him Michael Hayes. <laughs> Turned into a manager. That's something we never talk about. Well, we okay. About in fairness, though, in fairness, though, Mick is hurt for much of that manager run. Yeah, but he turns him into a manager, though. Managing Barbarian and Tony Atlas. Yes. And he turns in babyface. But, but yeah, there you go, mankind. All right. Um, next, as I look here, Undertaker Pentatonka in a terrible match. During the match, Diesel took an axe and destroyed the Undertaker's coffin. Which apparently is now his home as well. <laughs> I don't think we need to watch that, no. do we? Well, I'll tell you what we do need to yes. watch, though. <laughs> so let's go to Billionaire Ted. And 
This is what Way had in his raw report about being entertained real quick before we talk about it. And Dave has some more detail. This is how Way says it. After the latest Billionaire Tits get aired, Raw went off the air. <laughs> That's it. Now, he had a, um, I think he, I'm trying to remember if he had, yeah, he, he had a full rundown in the WWF section of the torch. Okay. But the Raw report, that's all it, all it said. So I guess that's why, but anyway. Yes, because he did let's that sometimes to, with the Billionaire Ted stuff. Yeah, so let's go to Billionaire Ted and his latest uh, adventure here. On Larry Fling Live. Mm-hmm. He's been called the most ruthless predator in the business world. His stated goal, global dominance. I like how the instructions from Vince to the actor playing Larry Fling were less Larry King and more Jew. <laughs> like, he is going hard on the Izzy Slapowitz there. <laughs> His latest target... The World Wrestling Federation. Billionaire Ted. My guest, ahead on Larry Fling Live. The only Billionaire so- News Network presents Larry Fling Live. He only sounds and, uh, slightly more Washington, like Larry King than Billionaire Larry Ted Fling. does like. First, I'd like to take this moment to say hello to Margot, Angie, Heidi, my five girlfriends, my four ex-wives, and Sheila the masseuse. Now my guest. He owns networks, <laughs> he owns movie companies, sports franchises, a wrestling organization, just about everything. He's Billionaire Ted. And don't forget I own you too, Larry. <laughs> I will, I'll say this, outside of the bit they do the next week about the women's shoe stuff and a hot coffee on Nitro, the Billionaire Ted owner just about everything Chiron is easily the funniest thing in all of these skits. <laughs> This, I mean, the Larry Fling stuff I thought was was funny. Yeah, the the Larry Fling ones are overall, I mean, but yeah, I mean, they're by far the best of the Billionaire Ted skits. I mean, now I'm assuming we're going to get, you know, some of the weird lithium references in this one. But other than that, they seemed less mean-spirited. But let's see what we get here. Yeah, right. Uh, by the way, billionaire Ted, you know, I was watching In Your House with Bobby De Niro. I gotta tell you, I just loved it. Oh, thanks a lot, Larry. Yeah, we, we, we loved it, too. Yeah. It, it great, is great, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah. You're great, I'm great. Yeah, now let's get right to the phones. Stuff. All right. First call, Randy from Sarasota. Hello. Oh, yeah. I got a problem with thinning hair. Sorry, pal. This isn't the Rogaine yeah, like, infomercial. I'm like a moron. Uh, Idiot. Must yeah. be calling from Atlanta. Yeah. Hey. Uh, uh, all, right. all right. Let's go to our next caller, Terry from Tampa. Hello. Hey, brother. Billionaire Ted. Oh, hey, Larry. It's it's the Huckster. Yeah. All right. Listen, brother. I need next Monday off real bad. I've been hit by a lady's high heel shoe. A size seven. Oh, yeah, that's, that's no problem, Huckster, because, yeah, everyone knows those, those size 7s are a public nuisance. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's go to our next caller, Jane from Hanoi. Hello. Hi, guys. Is this really Hanoi Jane? Oh, that's yeah. Golden Pond. Yeah. Honey, I just wanted to say Sears called and your suits are ready. Yeah, I'm, uh, sorry, honey, it was an accident. 
Now, let's get serious for just a moment. Billionaire, you are one of the most well-dressed and outspoken yeah. men in the world. Yeah. Why you even own networks to deliver your own message. Yeah. And I know <laughs> there must be a very good reason oh, yeah. why you have refused to talk to the media, a lot of which you control. Oh, yeah, yeah. About the alleged personal vendetta against the WWF, the alleged monopolistic activities... The predatory practices, suggestion that tens of millions of dollars in losses in your wrestling company have not been disclosed to your very own stockholders, and that the huckster's salary is not charged to your wrestling organization, but rather to other profitable divisions. Why haven't you responded to the Wall Street Journal report? What's the story on the FTC investigation? And is one of your financial advisors in the Time Warner merger a convicted stock swindler? I, 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 oh, I, I can't talk. I, 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 well, as you can plainly see, billionaire Ted has a legitimate case yeah. of chronic laryngitis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of that's been going around oh, these yeah. days, oh. especially in your wrestling organization, Ooh. Ted. Uh, that's probably uh. where you got it in the first place. Oh. I. Hope what? you don't catch anything else from them. Don't. Next week, next week, my guest will be the huckster and the nacho man. And we'll try to ascertain the outcome of their geriatric match at WrestleMania 12. Oh, hey, I, I'm a special guest referee for that match. I, oh, oh, Thanks I, for I, watching, I, everybody. I, 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 See you later. Breathe, breathe. Yeah. Take a little sip of water. It'll be good for your throat. We're back now, ladies and gentlemen. And the Undertaker and Paul Barra obviously surveying the remains. And that's the end of the show. I... I love how they segue from being, because usually being your tent ends the show. And then we go right to the Undertaker, like nothing ha happened. It, <laughs> well, and also when it doesn't end the show, Vince usually segues out of it with like a ha ah, ah, kind of thing. But here he couldn't do that. He had what to talk about what happened to the casket of, as he pronounced it, the Undertaker. What a segment that was. I mean, that Larry Flank segment. Yes, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> glad there was no lithium stuff in that, because that was... In in a series of mean-spirited and weird skits, uh, making light of Ted Turner's mental health issues that he was open about and took medication for is really fucked up. Yeah. Um, now, all of that said, I have no idea what the Wall Street Journal article he's talking about is. <laughs> well, I mean... Because I just searched Vince McMahon, Ted Turner in 1996 on ProQuest, which does have Wall Street Journal and there's nothing. I guess I'll search for Ted Turner now. Now, but go ahead. It's every time we talk about the, you know, the, these skits, and it still boggles my mind how they put this on television. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, this is they're like they're wrestling fans. Even I mean, what percent? There's got to be minuscule percentage of, of their fans that are watching these shows. Knew what the hell was going on here, right? You know, I mean, who who the hell knows about Ted Turner and his 
the the consultant in the merger who's been a convicted felon. I mean, what does that have to do with wrestling? You know, that's the thing. I mean, this of all the things that Vincent Man had ever has ever done, this is the most self-serving television to Vincent Man's ego ever. This era right here, the Vinnie Ted skits. Absolutely, it's for audience of one. That's it. An audience of one. Nobody else. I'm also kind of curious who helped him write these that they did get at least better executed as they went on. Well, I mean, the production on this stuff is is really good. I mean, look at that set they just they, they have for that. Yeah. yeah I mean, they, they, they do some, some – there's a ton of much money is spent on just production for some of this stuff. Okay, so at least in 1996, going up to the point where this Raw aired, which is, what day is that? That is the 19th. Yes. Okay, there are, how many? Okay, there have been, okay, I found it. For some reason, it just wasn't coming up in, uh, when I searched for just their names. Okay, there is an article from a week earlier. It was on the in the February twelfth Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, let me pull up the text here. It's by uh, Mark. Uh, what is this? Rubichaud. I don't know if there's anything much uh, in there of note. Uh, but uh, you know, they talk about the basics of what Titan's been accusing them of. Although it does say, though, you know. Um, Okay, so this is talking about the Vince's F- FTC complaint that he filed, which I really need to remember to try to see if I can get a copy under FOIA. Uh, now that theatrics have turned more serious, a Titan petition to the Federal Trade Commission alleges that Turner has, quote, engaged in a systematic plan to destroy the WWF, end quote, among Titan's most pointed chargers, char- that charges, Turner has told some, some TV stations who want to buy news from its popular CNN service that they must also buy world championship wrestling programs. Titan's timing could be painful for Turner. FTC investigators are busy combing over Time Warner Inc.'s merger agreement with Turner. Antitrust lawyers at the FTC are known to be taking the wrestling petition seriously, concerned that the combined company could use its vast share of programming content to bully rivals and manipulate cable operators. In Atlanta, Turner spokesman... Also interesting, they went straight to the parent company. They did not reach out to WCW. Uh, Michael Oglesby said Titan's petition is, quote, without merit, unquote, and declined to comment further. Titan also alleges, among other things, that Turner, quote, offered enormous amounts of money to TV stations, end quote, to drop WWF for Turner's wrestling. According to the FTC petition, quote, Ted wants to be the king in wrestling, and he wants to put us out of business, end quote. Mr. McMahon says... Uh, also, and then it talks about the skits and, uh, okay. So do we think this is a WWF plant? I mean, they, I don't think we've heard stories about them feeding stuff to the wall street journal before. Have we? No. So if the wall street journal is saying that the FTC was taking the WWF complaint seriously, I guess we should take that at face value, right? I would think so. How is that never talked about? <laughs> it's in the freaking Wall Street Journal. 
like, even if the coverage was in the newsletters previous to the ones you used here, you would think Wade or Dave would have mentioned it in the Rory cap or something. But, okay, so what else do we have here? Hogan's pay. Okay. As we can best guess from the WCW pay records and what we have of Hogan's contract, his later contract, his 98 contract, my best guess, and I really don't see any reason to doubt this, is that his pay-per-view pay was not on WCW's books. That partially as a consequence of the Turner Home Entertainment pay-per-view stuff, he was getting paid by Turner Home Entertainment for that. Because all of, I think we mentioned this when we talked about his contract several weeks back, when we did that 98 show. All of the payroll totals we have for him from 96 through 2000, they're always under his pay-per-view minimum. You know, even if we go 98 or just 99, because which was, I think it was 4.05 million a year. So clearly the pay-per-view is not on there. So I f I've figured that the payroll is his payoffs for Nitro's, Thunder's, House Show's, TV tapings, you know, whatever. Because then licensing and money are separate. I have something to read. Okay. Alright, um... Ronald Jordan, who I, I can't remember if we've mentioned him on this show or not. Mm. He was a syndicated columnist um, based on North Carolina, but he was syndicated in the places where he talked about wrestling. Mm. And on Friday, February 23rd, so technically not in our week, but that's when it was in the newspaper. So obviously, this happened before Friday, February. I mean, the twenty second. Well, also, it's, so it's so it covers the twenty second because the twenty third is the day after our week. Basically, yeah. yeah. He 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 talked to Jerry McDevitt about these skits. Oh, okay. I'm right. curious to see. This. So I'll, I'll I'll read this. What's the name of the Shortly columnist again? Ronald Jordan. Okay. Shortly after the World Wrestling Federation began airing billionaire Ted skits on their Monday Night Raw television show, Eric Bischoff telephoned WF executive Vincent Mann to encourage him to keep showing this booze. He actually called McMahon's office and goaded him into continuing to run them, lawyer Jerry S. McDevitt said of Bischoff, the executive vice president of World Championship Wrestling. McDevitt, who serves as legal counsel for WF and his parent Titan Sports Inc., said Bischoff told McMahon, we really love these. Keep running them. But later, Bischoff wrote to McMahon that the skits were defamatory and disparaging to WCW and his wrestlers, and said the matter had been referred to WCW's legal counsel. What have you at that point? It's a, what you have at that point is a man with more media power than you could imagine, a man who controls what we hear as a network, threatening legal action against anybody that happens to speak back at him about the practices that his organization has been engaged in, said McDevitt who contends that Eric Bischoff is acting on behalf of his boss, cable mogul Ted Turner. McDevitt responded to Bischoff's comments in a four-page letter last September in which he said Titan would welcome a lawsuit by WCW. Be advised that such threats only demonstrate further the misuse of media power by the Turner organization. McDevitt wrote in the letter, If such an abuse of legal process were initiated, the initial piece of evidence we will offer would be the statements made by you in a telephone call you personally made to Mr. McMahon. McDevitt wrote, we would then prove that before McMahon and WF exercised their free speech rights in the billionaire Ted skits, the WCW engaged in a systematic campaign of disparagement of anybody and everything associated with Titan as part of this marketing strategy for his Nitro program, McDevitt wrote. 
The letter was the latest in the stream of communications WF has had with WCW since last May, alleging such things as trademark and copyright infringements, disparagement of WWF and its wrestlers, and unfair trade practices. What up to that point had been pretty much considered a private battle between the two companies has become a public war, particularly since WCW introduced his weekly Monday Nitro show on the TNT Network last September, which runs head-to-head with Monday Night Raw. For the first few weeks, subtle comments Bischoff made about Raw during his live Nitro shows, including revealing the outcome of some of the WF matches, went ignored by WF, whose shows were mostly pre-recorded. It was not until Nitro began to regularly edge out the WF in the TV ratings that the WF started its own form of verbal attacks, which subsequently led to the introduction of the billionaire Ted Skits. The skits feature a conniving businessman that resembles Ted Turner, who is anxiously seeking ways to destroy WF. The skits also portray two aged, over-the-hill wrestlers called the Hulkster and the Nacho Man, which are obvious tickles of wrestlers Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage, but both used to wrestle from McMahon. McDevitt said the skits are aimed at pointing out the anti-competitive conduct of Turner and questioning their motives in a funny kind of satirical way. He said the skits are directed at Turner running the Bischoff because Turner owns the company and he sets the tone and tenor of the organization. <laughs> huh. So, have you heard of that before? Those specific McDevitt quotes or the Bischoff flip-flopping thing? No, McDevitt, the McDevitt stuff. I don't think so. I haven't. Well, that haven't last part especially, I don't remember anyone representing the WWF actually explaining why Turner not Bischoff, do you? Mm-mm. That's very interesting. Huh. Well, thank God for newspapers.com and the North Adams transcript. <laughs> yeah. The North Adams transcript. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I'm trying to the think, North- were there any other specific things in the Billionaire Ted skit that are, should be dealt with here? Or? No. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just interesting to go back and look at this and, and, and see you know, stuff that happened that's not reported in the newsletters that was in maybe some newspapers about this. And that's interesting, just to do a search on it, and boom, there that is. I've never even heard of this before. So. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, if we want to look a little further, um, nothing right from our week on ProQuest, but there's a Broadcasting and Cable article there from the, I think it was the 26th, you know, well, dated the 26th, cover date the 26th, plus, some, you know, plus Mike Mooneyham's February 11th uh, column. Which addresses the New York Times. Yeah, but let me yeah, see we, real quick. We, I think we talk, actually talked. About, I think we talked about the Mooneyham thing because we did the New York Times. Yes, well, yeah, we uh, did because we did we did it with the New York Times. I'm just looking to see if there are any quotes uh, in the broadcasting cable article. Um, okay, you'll like this. With the exception of major spectacles like WWF's annual WrestleMania. Many of the pay-per-view events staged by WWF and WCW now enjoy similar buy rates, said pay-per-view analyst Barry Gold. Turner officials today described WC, excuse me, the WCW as, quote, a solid profit center. Uh, and they talk about the FTC complaint. Okay, nothing really new in here. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. When is the Lakeland Nitro where the lights go out, Chris? Uh... I'm asking this for a specific reason, which you'll understand in a moment. 
But you've done that before. But then, and then I, I never know because you, you've you asked me this. Well, I'm going like to get Okay. The Lakeland Nitro February, February 5th. 5th. Okay. What is the line? I know, I know it was the Madden Hotline stuff that got them in more trouble over it. But yeah, we talked about the, this in the show. That's what I'm saying. What was the line Bischoff said on the air, though, that understandably got WWF hot? Desperate people do desperate things. Chris, what do you think a WCW spokesman said to Broadcasting and Cable that ends this article? Desperate people line. do desperate things. Well, there you go. This fucking company. <laughs> yeah. Well. You just falsely accused them using the same exact verbiage, albeit vaguely, but easy to understand, on national television. And now in the trades that you know they read... Your spokesman is using the same line in a way that makes it clear that desperate people do desperate things is referring to the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah. The incompetence of All WCW right. will never cease to amaze me. Well, no. All right, so um, let's read what Dave said. Billionaire Test MSL Airplane is a Larry King of the Billionaire News Network. If you Ted, very well produced, and made fun of Savage's thinning hair, Hogan being knocked out by a size, seven women's shoe, and asked for Mondays off. When Fling started asked question about the FTC complaint, TBS stockholders finding that record of tens of millions in WCW's losses, and Hogan's salary being put on the books on a more profitable sister company, Ted pretended to have laryngitis with them saying he must have caught it from all the people in the wrestling company have also have laryngitis. Spoof of the Turner-imposed gag order on WCW in record, regard to all these subjects. Okay. And said he hoped Ted wouldn't catch anything else from the people in the wrestling company. When they said that next week they had Nacho Man Huster talk about their geriatric match from WrestleMania, Ted suddenly spoke up and said he's going to referee this blow in the laryngitis gimmick. Oh, okay. That's what I was one was going to mention that I forgot about. What day was the Tommy Morrison announcement again? It was, it was the 15th. Okay. Do we think that given the letter he had just sent... That we hope that you don't know what or what the line about not catching stuff from people in your wrestling company is a reference to self mutilation and the Morrison thing being in the news. It's possible. I just don't see what else that can mean, right? It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly more subtle than the rest of the segment. If that what it is. But anyway, so there you go. And other highlights of the tapings which is reported to uh, the observers overall being very weak taping. A newcomer called Herman the German was given a tryout. Jake the Snake, Ben Isaac Yankum at 325, had a dueling review with Brett and Sean regarding the match of WrestleMania. Dave believes the match will be a marathon match with no DQ, and the winner will be the one who scored most falls in 60 minutes. Sounds like a classic on paper. Ahmed Johnson beat Shinobi, who was out Snow in their mask. Told Snow was not going to do that as a gimmick regularly, but it was just used since they needed a good worker for Ahmed, but this still wasn't good. And yes, this is his only appearance as Shinobi in the World Wrestling Federation. Yoko beat uh, Davey and Owen by counting handicap matches, which Vader came out and they tripled up on y- Yoko until Jake and Ahmed made a save. Sean beat one, two, three kid in a two and a half star match. Kid's still pissed off. Justin Bradshaw. John Hall doing a total Stan Hansen gimmick and will probably be added to the Branding Iron gimmick down the road as well. Pin Hakushi. In the best match of statements, it'll be two and three quarter stars. Brett me Hunter Hus Hemsley clean. Talk about all these. These will be Bob, <laughs> will be Bob Holling. During the match, Undertaker came to the ring and then lights went out and he disappeared, but appeared on the video wall saying he's the king of the mind games. 
King of the Mind Games is right out of talking about wrestling. Whatever that means. Duke Drossy be Helms in the cage. I, I think he's saying it's a Cornette kind of verbiage, and Cornette is booking now. Yeah. Finale was Diesel and Sean against Jake and The Undertaker. That's a match. Undertaker and Diesel brawl to the bat for the match ever got started. I mean, this match as Michael scored a pit with a super kick at 258 of a dud. Michaels and Jake shook hands after the match. Huh. Now, those were for other Raws and whatever. All right. February 19th, Raw uh, won, won the ratings war with a 3.1 rating and a 4.4 share. Tonight shows 2.9 FR.1. Replay doing a 1.0 and a 3.1. Combined 6.0 would have been the largest total viewership for a Monday night on cable in history. About 3.9 million homes. The funny thing about that whole article that uh, I just read, the Jeremy David thing, was notice how it was snuck in there that the WWF didn't have any problems with WCW until they started beating him in the ratings. Yes. <laughs> that you know they were letting it slide the Bischoff was giving raw results out on the air but until they started winning now it's a problem there you go well regularly winning yes but there you go yes and uh based on what was what the information we have generally says about viewers per home um for wrestling shows this was probably in the six million viewer range total and these shows are head-to-head, so that's the thing. The, you know, that's what... I mean, this is a watching wrestling at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are starting to pick up. Yep. All right, so let's move on. It was announced there would be a tactile tournament which started on February 20th in Huntington, West Virginia at the Superstars tapings. It will air this weekend because of the injury to Billy Gunn. First round matches were the Body Donnas against Bushwhackers, Razor Savio against Kid Jataka, Godwins against Marty Janetti and a mystery partner who become the new Rockers, and Hakushi Horowitz against Owen and Davey. Finals will be at WrestleMania on March 31st in the pregame show, which is a surprise because the cheapest the tag titles and not even had the tournament finals make the pay per view. Some highlights from the taping uh, non tape cage match on Ahmed Johnson beat Tataka, seven for Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> in the tag tournament, yeah. In a tag tournament, Razor and Savio beat Kid and Tatanka when Razor pinned Tatanka with the Razor's Edge. Whether this airs anyone's guess. Owen and Davey over Hakushi Barry Horowitz. Davey pinned Hakushi with a power slam, which airs. After a Hunter Hussabunzay squash win, Duke Drosy uh, jaced him to the bat with a garbage can lid. Sean pinned Shinobi, Al Snow, That's with a right. super kick in the match. After the match, Michaels also pinned Owen Hart and Jim Cornette. Gold does pin Hakushi with a net breaker. Owen Penn Horowitz, no heat for Horowitz as an underdog anymore. Razor and Jake beat Kid and Goldust. Razor and Goldust fought back to the back from the start, making it a singles match, and Jake pinned Kid with a DDT, put the snake on him. Don't expect this match to air. Herman the German, not, still not sure who he is, got a win over Mark Kyle, former Smoky Mountain wrestler Killer Kyle. Justin Bradshaw were fought two in 12 seconds. Yoko's going to be three guys. The Tatcher mentioned that airs coming uh, on Superstars in two weeks. Godwin's over the New Rockers, who is Marty Janay and Leaf Cassidy, a.k.a. Al Snow, and yet another identity. The New Rockers gimmick is that they're two guys out of touch doing all the 70s and 80s stuff. The idea is they'll wind up as heels because the guys will resent them. And that's kind of what happens. Roddy and Razor had a conversation that almost surely never air. Roddy slapped Razor in the face and eventually ordered a Razor Gold this match on the streets of Miami for WrestleMania. Yeah, never aired. And then Sean over Davey in a super, with a super kit and good match. Main event dark match was Brett pitting Undertaker when Diesel and Undertaker with a foreign object. So there's Superstars tapings. Yes. And 
Oh, by the way, because I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Billionaire Ted, for those who don't get the Hanoi Jane reference, Jane Fonda, towards the very end of the Vietnam War, had gone on a trip to North Vietnam, basically as like a humanitarian mission, and started speaking out against U.S. military policy. I'm reading an article from Time Magazine's website about kind of debunking the myths around it. She was really just speaking out against their military policy in North Vietnam, which was, well, in Vietnam, period, which was not exactly out of the ordinary, and and it, they say begging pilots to stop bombing non-military targets. And um, it was more that there was a photo of her seated, uh, sitting at an anti-aircraft gun that that's caused the, the issues, though. That's the thing. That's the thing. It's that picture. Yes. In terms of her, so, what she was actually doing, and she repeatedly apologized for the photo, but here's what she said in her memoir. Um, my best honest recollection of what took place, someone I don't remember who, leads me towards the gun. I sit down laughing, still applauding. It all had nothing to do with where I'm sitting. I hardly even think about where I'm sitting. The cameras flash. I get up and I start to walk back to the car with the translator. The implication of what has just happened hits me. Oh my God, it's going to look like I was trying to shoot down U.S. planes. I plead with him. You have to be sure those photograph photographs are not published, please. Don't let them be published. I'm sure it'll be taken care of. I don't know what else to do. It's possible the Vietnamese had it all planned. I will never know if they did. Can I really blame them? The buck stops here. If I was used, I allowed it to happen. It was my mistake, and I have paid and continue to pay a heavy price for it. Yeah, I mean, she she took a hit for that. but it, and, and you know what? I mean, she still worked as an actress and all that stuff, but it really wasn't until the 80s when the exercise videos is when she got back on the front, forefront again. Yes, and when she got together with Ted. Well, that was after, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'll also say, like, I believe her because... Someone who was lying there would not still say, you know, I let them use me and it's still my fault. Yeah, I mean, it was just one of those things at a time. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, wartime. Anybody that's perceived as being maybe a sympathizer for the opposite side, you know, I mean, this is the way it was. All right, ratings. Yes, I was saying back to TV. Yes. Ratings for the weekend. So Mania do a 1.5 and Action Zone a 1.8. All right, so we talked about Scott Hall. Diesel, the other half of the two, some wildly rumored all-way to be WCW bound, suffered a combination separating a fractured shoulder, apparently early in the In Your House cage match against Bret Hart. The injury may partially or totally explain the poor quality of that match compared with the previous matches the two have had. Diesel did swing an axe pretty good the next night, though, in the angle where he destroyed Undertaker's casket and also worked against Bob Holly which is on the Raw match on the 26th, in which they weren't sorted out by him being injured coming in since he had missed the weekend shows, but they were airing a tape match. He didn't work at a Superstars tape the next night, where they were scheduled to hold the first triple threat match involving him, Brett, and Undertaker in Huntington, West Virginia. Diesel said to have been unhappy with that headline program, even though it was figured to be a big draw. In that match, Diesel was pulled due to the injury, and Brett wrestled Undertaker for the title, with Diesel's interference and Undertaker getting pinned. It was suspected that similar endings were planned. For the weekend series of major shows at Continental Arena, from Meadowlands, Pittsburgh Civic Arena in, in Pittsburgh, of course, and Gun Arena in Cleveland. Diesel was expected to appear at those shows, 
be announced as injured, then get involved in the match. One would assume the finishes allowing Brett to retain the title. However, these refused to make weekend bookings, leading the gold dust getting involved in the Meadowlands of Cleveland and not finishes in Pittsburgh. Apparent booking snafu led to them having no interference and doing a double count-off finish, which left fans unhappy because it was the same finish that ended the previous Brett Undertaker match in the same city, and it was a much weaker match than the first time. Oops. So what do we think here with Diesel and his shoulder? Was it at, do we think it's as serious or is he? Because it's it's days after this is when he announces he's leaving. I are you asking me if I think it's like his heart attack? I mean, I don't remember him missing a whole lot of work. Let's put it that way. Uh... In fact, let me look. Let me, let me look to make sure. Uh, because I mean, yeah, I, I don't remember him missing anything on the build to mania. So, again, I could be wrong on that. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so, Diesel doesn't work on the 22nd, the 23rd, the 24th, 25th, March 1st, March 6th, March 7th, March 8th. Uh, oh, well, I mean, he's out for a little... Uh, his first match back is March 11th, uh, being Barry Horowitz at two minutes. Hmm. So... There's probably an issue, but the severity no, is... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A fractured shoulder. That's a pretty know? serious injury. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what I thought. So, I don't know. It is Kevin Nash. He does Kevin Nash things. So, <laughs> uh, how about him not liking the program with Brett Undertaker? Even though that was a program that was drawing big money, and that he'd thus be making money with, you would think. That's odd. He, I bet he doesn't like that he's splitting main event money three ways. Probably, yeah. All right, WF canceled their February twenty first show in Bushkill, Pennsylvania, because too many of the headliner schedule wouldn't be appearing. That's never good. Ah, oh, good old Bush kill. Businesses return from India has largely been good. Nashville in the 16th is $66,000 house, close to 6000 pay. Uh, Memphis did 89000 8000 pay. Pay-per-view did 83000 5500 sellout. Raw in Cincinnati did $73,000 gate. Superstars did 48000 and then a house show in Danville, Pennsylvania, did a you know, saw $26,000 in a high school gym. Hmm. So there you go, folks. I mean, like I said, house shows are rebounding here. Yep. And WWF benefits, I believe, were usually a 50-50 split or 60-40 split, right? They weren't sold they shows, did a, I don't think, were they? You think they broke up the raffle? <laughs> Could you imagine that? I don't, think they, did, I don't think they did 50-50 raffles, but my point is, though... Could you imagine if they did... I want to see a 50-50 raffle at a WF show. But also, like, seeing that, like, no matter how you split it, that, that high school's probably getting at least 10 grand. Oh, yeah? Not even considering concessions and stuff. Yeah, good for them. Yep. Vader signed his two-year contract within the past week or so. The deal allows him to still work for still work in Japan. However, Titan must approve any U.S. indie dates, which will include the Los Angeles show, which is Peace Festival. He expected to start full-time on the road after Mania. He injured himself, though, in your house doing a run-in as his shoulder hadn't recovered from all that surgery on February 6th. 
The reason you wore an overcoat and in your house and sweatshirt on Raw was to hide two large incisions, an arthroscopic hole, which removed part of his AC joint, and repaired a ton of the rotator cuff. Repaired a torn rotator cuff, excuse me. Um, he busted up into stitches doing the running in your house, but still did a couple run-ins on Raw. Bischoff did bring up Vader on Nitro, saying he ran away with his tail between his legs. As Paul Orndorff got through with him while plugging the Baywatch episode film that summer with several WCW wrestlers, including Vader. <laughs> Even with all this stuff we talked about, with, you know, earlier with McDevitt, here's Bischoff uh, still getting his digs in. <laughs> no matter what. But how about Vader, re, you know, re, basically re-injuring himself here? Not good. Doing this stuff. Nope. Bret Hart wrote an interesting column in the Calgary Sun newspaper regarding the David Boy Smith trial, which ended before our week, and we talked about that on uh, this show, Between the Sheets, that we've done before, covering that week. Yeah. Brett wrote, I've kept my opinion to myself because I was not there, and it'd be unfair and foolish for me to speculate about what happened the night between David and Cody Light that had the altercation. I can't say in all my years of knowing Davey, I see him to be a modest and gregarious sort of guy, not a bully. Although he beat the charge, Davey has lost emotionally and financially. Hope he can put it all behind him and focus his attention back on his professional career. As for the unfortunate Mr. Light, who suffers permanently from this sad and this here incident, I can only hope that things get better for him too. Being the public eye has been truly a wonderful experience for most of my career, but it's not all that's chalked up to be as Davey's court case exemplified. I've encountered the same thing over and over in my 18 years of professional wrestling. And that is the guy who has nothing to lose with everything to gain by taking on a professional wrestler in a public place. He usually has a blood alcohol level that's over the limit, and all he said includes a girl or a group of buddies. Ultimately, if he wins the fight, he has captured a moment of glory and can boast that he beat the hitman. If he loses the fight, he just lost to a professional wrestler and gains the sympathy and respect of the audience. Any injuries incurred are a means to score some quick cash, maybe a large settlement out of court. I have nothing to, absolutely to gain. I have absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose when in every situation ranges like a head. Whenever an obnoxious or belligerent patron of a bar or a restaurant tends to provoke me into an altercation, I alert to management and let them handle the situation. Brett also mentioned he knows there are sports celebrities who are bullies that try to entice or intimidate people, but that his brother-in-law is not a bully. Well, Dave also has this, too. Apparently, some of the Calgary Sun articles attribute the Brett Hart actually written by Bruce Hart. Knowing the way Bruce uses words, it's been obvious in some cases. But Dave believes the column that we printed here sounds more like what how Brett would write. There's definitely been discussion through an intermediary regarding Brett going to WCW, including being offered the main event Starcade against Ric Flair, although the odds appear to be against that happening. Yeah, I do think that is Brett writing that. That's, There's nothing about hanging Brett. someone by the fork skin or anything like that. I mean, I, I, just, just the way everything is worded, that's Brett. I mean... Yes, well, Bruce is obvious, because do, do you remember when, I don't think it was on the show, but when I was looking on, like, the old Stampede website from the Stampede Restart, and there was an alleged Stu Hart column that was very obviously written by Bruce? Yeah. So, Bruce has tells, and they do not appear, appear to be here. Yeah. So, what do you think about what Brett said about Davey? I mean, it's his brother-in-law. He's not a bully. <laughs> That one is uh, an interesting line, isn't it? Maybe not at this moment he's not. I mean, and I don't mean to say this in a way that, like, to make him sound, like, mentally disabled or anything, but 
Davy's thing was that he was very willing to let other people be bad influences on him. I think it's fair to say, right? Yes. Whether it's dynamite, whether it's Jim, whoever. He's he's very uh suggestible. Yeah, and then I've I know people like that. Yeah. So all right, uh, we read the man thing about Austin. Let's close out with this. This is a classic. Johnny Ace had a tape sent in of his March 4th, 1995 match at Budokan, where he and Dr. Dusty Williams had one of the best matches of the year against Mr. Hamasawa and Kinokabashi, and Titan turned him down. He wanted to come in as a, in a proposed role as a Texas gunslinger type. So basically, he <laughs> read the sheet rumors about Goldust, and then when they didn't do it, pitched that as a gimmick. Is what that reads yeah. like. Because he's yes. tall and blonde and all that. Uh, uh, D- Dusty was my mentor. Uh, don't worry, it'll pay off in about six years. <laughs> yeah, just, just go back and reading this and then knowing what happens all these years later. And here he is, running the show again as far as talent relations. Amazing. Yes. Although, like I said, off the air and on Twitter... Boy, do I wish I could see what him negotiating with Brian Wittenstein looks like. <laughs> the guy you All hired right, that well, got you sued. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, next week on Between the Sheets. That's it for this week. So let's talk about next week. We got a big show. And it's a Patreon requested show by, uh, I think, the person that's had the most Patreon requests now. And Tyler Gignac. Yes, and, and he's he'll be uh, on uh, for the WWE segment. Yeah, he, uh, I think he's, he's over Wiltricity now. So there you go. All right. So he wants us to talk about 2003. Always an interesting time in wrestling. So, uh, we have TNA to talk about. TNA, they're having issues with the cable companies and pay per view companies. So we'll talk about that. We got Impact featuring all kinds of wackiness involving Nikita Koloff and a tag team of Vader and Dusty Rhodes against the Harris Twins and, a lot more going on in TNA, including uh, an interesting story about the Sandman, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just and just a lot of TNA-ish stuff. So we'll talk about that. We have an update on uh, Bix, one one of your favorite subjects to talk about recently, uh, Ryan Houston and Wrestle Express. So we have oh, an update on XPW, no longer in Philadelphia. We'll talk about what's going on there, and there yeah. are some shows. This is the uh, late period Shane Douglas as Booker, no hardcore stuff run. Yeah. We got uh, assorted indie news and results to talk about, including uh, a little note about somebody who made quite the news rounds uh, The news rounds this week when he was in high school, though, in 2003. So we'll have that. Yes. We got Puerto Rico, where they got some interesting shows to talk about, both IWA and WC. Lucha. We got uh, Los Guerreros del Infiernos. Bro- broken up, but not because of something they did in the ring, but something that one of them did outside the ring. So we'll have news on that. Japan, we got a boatload of shows to talk about independent shows at the yin yang we got um arashi showed up at zero one bix get ready we have the debut of world japan their oh, first no. show so we'll have that to talk about we got um new japan uh they're holding press conferences getting ready for the dome show plus tenzan got married 
All Japan, we have All Japan at the Budokan. Shinya Shimoto becoming the third wrestler to win the either GB title and the Triple Crown. So we'll talk about that. And, and the biggest show of all during our week, Masawa Kobashi in, in, uh, for Noah, the Budokan. Ooh. What a match. What a fucking match that was. But we have World Wrestling Entertainment where we'll have uh, some OVW news to talk about there. We got news on the ECW tape library. Howard Stern talking about Goldust. WWE in South Africa. Linda McMahon with the rundown of the uh, financial numbers on our conference call. What the Rock's plans are. Ultimo Dragon possibly coming in. News on Goldberg, Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin... We got the aftermath of Paul Heyman being demoted as creative. And we have, and all this is going on while they're in Canada, which is why Tyler won't do the show as we have Raw in Toronto and then the pay-per-view in Montreal, which will be over the edge, if I'm not mistaken. No, uh, no way out. No way out, excuse me, no way out. Featuring the debut of, in his original crooked referee gimmick, Sylvain Grenier. Savon Grenier, yes. So we'll have all kind of news on the screw job of Hulk Hogan and how The Rock may be the smartest man in wrestling. All that and more <laughs> next week on Between the Sheets. Show page count, 41 pages. Yay. Um, and, and, no, and, and, no, and no, we will not talk about UFC next week. No. Um, that, and this is also just one of those eras where you and I are watching basically everything. Mm-hmm. So we we'll definitely have a lot to say. Oh, by the way, I have an update uh, from Vince McMahon about Billionaire Ted. I'm obsessed with Ted Turner because he makes me feel inadequate, pal. There you go. Yes, I, <laughs> someone linked me to uh, UberDuck.ai, which has some at times disturbingly accurate uh, text-to-speech celebrity uh, stuff using samples of existing audio. Well, how about that? Yes. All yes, right. Well, that's- yes. We're, maybe we are entering the deep fake world. God help us all. Well, that's it for us this week. So we'll be back next week with 2003 and so much more. So, Bix, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the preach state of Georgia.
Square One, and welcome to Between the Sheets, Patreon Special Edition number 64. I'm your host, Chris Zoller, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Spin and Bix. It's not a Patreon show, basically, in, in these recent days without us talking about a Philadelphia independent wrestling promotion. <laughs> you know? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Heyman's cursed us. But... He's not involved in this. No, he's not. Well, Todd is. Todd Gordon is, but Paul Heyman is not. So this is a Heyman-free Patreon show. But not an Andy Gilbert-free Patreon show, although oh, no. we don't get in the weeds with him, but he's there. Yeah, well, he's a prominent person in, in this uh, promotion we're going to talk about. So we're talking about Joel Goodhart's TWA, the original Super Indie. And uh, we're going to talk about how it came to fruition and talk about, you know, what happened with what they did, the shows and everything else that's going on, including the end, which was uh, quite sudden in the end as they had a big show planned and they couldn't do it because money ran out. Yep. And we're, I mean, but we're covering based on all the clippings and stuff I could get the whole, uh, pretty much the whole Joel Goodhart's story, at least, as we could find it. Well, so this is going to be interesting because that's part of his story, just as we give the introduction here. So he was a fairly well-to-do Philadelphia fan, and, you know, not going to get too into the weeds because he's profiled in the Philly Inquirer and some other papers a few times. And he started his radio show, the fan club, bus trips all over the place, travel packages to major shows in places that you couldn't do a bus trip to, wrestling stores we'll get to in a sec, and then finally this big super indie, Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, where he basically ran quarterly spectaculars at Pennsylvania Hall, smaller building connected to the Philly Civic Center, Philly Civic Center excuse me, and would run a regular indie schedule of smaller shows that were less loaded but still had names on top in between. And also ring announce at Spectrum and uh, Civic Center shows. <laughs> As Joel Goodhart of the Squared Circle radio show. Yes. Yes. WWF. I'm telling you, him. And also yeah. ends up ring announcing for Dennis Corluzo and Larry Sharp's WWA and doing some business with them before they split up, which we'll be talking about in detail later, although not, not as much when it happens as later when we get a post-mortem from Corluzo and Sharp. But, yeah, I mean, is there anything else we should do as far as preamble? Like, to, or not really, because we're going to get these details. Uh, Joel, Joel, Joel Goodhart is like the, you know, he's like the trendsetter for what we've had in recent years in the indie scene. A guy who is just a fan, you know, who had money and decided to open up his own promotion. Yeah. You know? And... You know, super indie, because so much of those major shows, at least, are just filled with flying names. You know? Yeah. He, he's booking the best available unsigned wrestlers. Easily. Most, yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's get started. 1989, the week of April the 3rd. Philadelphia Daily News, April the 3rd. He puts out Matt Welcome. Wrestling has a hold on Talk Philadelphia Fan by Dan Geringer. Sure, Joel Goodhart's Philadelphia's Mr. Wrestling, 
Sure. It's just debuting his wrestling radio call-in show Saturday mornings on WIP AM 610. Last September, Goodhart's life has been in an ending series of great moments with large individuals you don't want to aggravate. Sure. As Mega Maven and the 800-member Squared Circle Fan Club, Goodhart spends his days and nights arranging celebrity luncheons with the likes of 400-pound Bam Bam Bigelow and booking club trips on buses that show wrestling videos continuously while motoring towards matches in far-off lands like Tennessee. Observing the hostilities, Goodhart was pleased his party was going well, thus preoccupied somewhat with the upcoming Ric Flair banquet. He carries two proposed menus in his briefcase at all times, worrying about those vital culinary details, the freshness of the ingredients, the sprightness of the presentation. They can make the difference a banquet to remember and Gristlemania. He pulled out the proposals and weighed the chicken Brazilian with tomatoes and broccoli against the beef jardinier with potatoes and chef's vegetable. What the hell is a chef's vegetable, he asked, suspiciously. Sounds like whatever they got left over from the last banquet. Most fans aren't into this fancy stuff. I think we'll go with a simple Roy Rogers-type salad and the beef. <laughs> Three and a half years after he became obsessed... Early on, the radio show started in now defunct WDVT. Goodhart's company cleared just enough on the banquet to finally put the squared circle on a positive cash flow basis, even after he deducts major expenses like the food and the $1,200 gold plate at Wrestling Year, Wrestle the Decade Championship belt. I'm going to honor Flair, Goodhart said, and hopefully meant my name at the same time. It's my bar mitzvah. It's my wedding. It's my big thing. I'll let it come out with this with national radio syndication. I'll let it become the Dr. Roof of Wrestling. She makes a couple million a year talking about what she knows best. Hey, I'll sell for a couple hundred grand. Okay. The Dr. Roof of Wrestling. <laughs> so at first it says a hundred grand over the last few years in lost compensation. That implies that his main loss in these four years was just spending time on wrestling that he could have spent on selling more insurance policies and getting that's what I that's 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 what I got. For the hundred grand. However, yeah. With the scale he's got and the parts that shouldn't cost that much, how the hell would this be the thing that finally makes them cash flow positive? You have 800 members of a fan club. You should be able to scale your fan club so that it's at least that it's profitable. At least just that you have enough cash coming in just from memberships and stuff. Like how... What? How bad a businessman is this guy in a, outside of selling insurance? Maybe those people were cheap. We, very weird. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I make of this yet. Um, but also, it broke up his marriage. Yeah, that's never good. No. Um, it's been a while since I don't even know when the last time I've heard the term would be that I've had anything that was called chef's vegetable, but I think. It's usually like like an oven like well it's but usually I don't think it's usually chef's vegetable on its own it's potato and chef's vegetable it's like roasted potato and then like what is it usually like roasted cauliflower carrots and like one other thing I think your chef's vegetable yeah depends on the chef but yeah um also like you you're doing this banquet you don't need to get Ric Flair a twelve hundred dollar belt <laughs> well. Of course not, but they're Marcia Ric Flair, so they're going to do something to impress Ric Flair to get him to come to their banquet. Well, is it even they at this point? Isn't it just Joel, probably? I don't know. who. I don't know. 
I don't know what the, when, the, when the Panthers got out of it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm not sure. Either. I think they were on the radio show for a while longer, but I'm not sure about the rest. All right. Um, let's go a few months into 1989, October 23rd, Philadelphia Day News, October 25th. Excerpt from The Gods Are Good to Good Heart by Dan Geringer. Good Heart started small doing a one hour radio call in show and now the fun WDBT AM. Then moved his wrestling radio hour to WIP Saturdays at 8 AM. His Square Circle Fan Club grew from a couple hundred to a thousand members. He promoted weekly lunches with wrestling stars in Northeast sports bars. One night in the middle of the night, he sat bolt upright in the bed and envisioned promoting a wrestling decade banquet at the Civic Center for Nature Boy Ric Flair. A six-time world champion in National Wrestling Alliance, Superstar Fonda throwing his peroxide blonde head back and howling woo in an eerie wail when he's around, whenever he's around the ring. Goodhart and his wrestling radio faithful are fierce National Wrestling Alliance fans who believe the Ron World Wrestling Federation starring Hulk Hogan's a giant cow pie in the pro wrestling pasture. Funny, because he worked for them. Uh, he took their money. <laughs> Too much bluster, not enough black and blue. So Flair won the wrestling radio poll by a margin of, I guess, 15 to 1? It's IS the one here, or IS to I, I don't know, and agreed to come to the April 30th. Yeah, it's 15 to 1. That's a, It's a uh, newspapers.com OCR that I make, missed. I got most of them, but it happens. Overjoyed, Goodhart rented the Civic Center's Plaza Ballroom. Price tickets to the stiff $75 a head. And after days of careful consideration, chose, chose to be Jardinaire. Well, I'm glad we got that settled. He wanted to do something that would endear Philadelphia and the Square Circle fan club to flare forever, so he spent $1,200 on a championship-style wrestler of the decade belt. One of those huge gold-plated jobs that like armor. Wrestling insiders told him he was nuts to think he'd break even. They were wrong. 138 paid. Goodhart had the moment videotaped for posterity and for sale. The other day he stopped by with a master tape. We watched together as Goodhart told the crowd, I cannot believe this thing actually came off. When the B. Jardinaire was history and the moment the truth was at hand, Flair was clearly stunned by the magnificence of his record of the decade belt. I'm speechless, he said, to know that you think so highly of me. And then his eyes teared up and his voice failed him. That's not Ric Flair the wrestler, Goodhart said. That's Ric Flair the man. This guy has integrity. Word has got out that Goodhart has integrity too. This Saturday, for the first time ever, the National Wrestling Alliance is presenting a major review live telecast for Philadelphia. Halloween Havoc 89 at Civic Center, which will feature Ric Flair and company beating each other senseless in a 30-foot by 30-foot electrified steel cage. Bruno and San Martino, living legend, will be the special referee. And who did the NWA manager come to for San Martino's home phone number so they can ask him the referee? Joel Goodhart. I remember Bruno feuding with George Animal still back in the 60s at the old arena, 46th and Market, Goodhart says. They feuded through the concession stands, out the doors, into Market Street and back. I grew up with Bruno. Bruno was wrestling to me. And now here I am, getting my first god, Bruno, together with my second god, Ric Flair. Goodhart shakes his head in awe. You look at these guys, he says. You realize the wars they've been through. Yesterday, Goodhart met with syndication guys about going East Coast Regional and wrestling radio. If that happens, he figures his exclusive rights to distribute Caribbean wrestling tapes will pay off. If you're in the gore, he explains, there's more gore than, than North America. You see heads busted wide open and stitched up on TV, tables flying, forks being used. Forks? Forks, Goodhart happily says. Forks! <laughs> this is such a, 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 a interesting time in the smart wrestling fan universe because mm -hmm. you have 
the you, I mean, you didn't read the old observers. I mean, you have these viewing parties and tape all the parties. tape tape parties, tape trading. You know, I mean, it is a it's like the Wild West in ways, and it's just really interesting to look at how how things were back then. Yeah, compared Resi's to I mean now, a few months in too. Yeah, compared to how it is now, where everybody can watch everything at, at, at any time, and you could have you know Twitter watch parties or whatever. Everybody's you know watching live streams and stuff and commenting, but back then it was totally different, you know, and how the how it was done. Yeah, and so also real quick before I forget, does this mean the English clamshell double double C videos were all from Goodhart? It was very possible. I didn't know that, did you? No. I, I don't see what else they could even be talking about. Plus, Timeline 89, I mean, that's when a lot of those came out. Yeah. You know? So, hmm. Interesting. It also makes me wonder then, too, remember when just a ton of them hit eBay, like, God, 20 years ago? Along with, see, like brand new too. Like, I wonder if that was someone. I think they had a lot of Coliseum videos as well, but I wonder if that person bought out stuff he had. That's possible. Yes. Now, all of that said, what a fucking mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's Ric Flair. He has integrity. <laughs> okay, so let's also do the math here. So, one. 38 times 75 means he grossed $10,350. So I don't know how much it costs to rent the room. Um, With this type of thing, I'm assuming the food cost is taken out of each admission. Um, I, I mean, I if it's a success, I guess it's a success. I don't know if it made a profit or if it's just breaking even, but... And good for him, I guess. Doing it, you know, doing it the weekend of a Civic Center show makes sense, too. Um, one thing I had not realized as well, those lunch things were weekly? They weren't just around Civic Center shows and stuff? What it sounds like. That's not something I realized. It may be the week-to-week -week ones are locals and stuff, but... And it's just weird to me... Oh... Okay. All right. So this. All right. So I'm looking at uh, the Philadelphia Daily News right now from the Friday, the two days four, mm -hmm. the Flair thing, and yeah, Flair is not announced. I mean, so I mean, Flair is not booked on that show. He's not announced at all. Huh. But right up, right up under it is the rest of the '80s award banquet. Sunday afternoon, 4:30 p.m. at the Civic Center. So it was at the Civic Center where the show was held. And it was three and a half hours before the show started. Sponsored by Wrestling Radio Fan Club. Um, open to the public, $85 per person. Oh. Fan, fan, fan club member, $75. Okay. So we should probably do multiply it by $80 then, right? Includes, yeah. full, course, inc includes full course dinner, autographs, posing for pictures, and more. Reservations and proper dress requ required. Which we always know goes great with wrestling fans. They they always respect the dress codes at fancy events. Well, you know, maybe back then they, that this group did. Well, also in a, like in a 
ballroom type setting with a dinner well, it, different like well it just said the civic center it didn't say where in the civic center well no it was a ballroom thing but... i know but it just said the oh civic the ad center. only says civic center. yeah okay yeah mm. um cause I, the fans at the wwe hall of fame generally did at least wear collared shirts and stuff before the hall of fame became an arena event right yes 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 it was the switch to the arena event that really changed things. Yes. Absolutely. Um, hmm. So, but yeah. interesting. Weird, though. I, I still can't wrap my head around Flair not being on that show. Yeah, I know. Maybe he figured he was going to have such a good time at this banquet that he was going to be, not going to be in condition to perform. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Perhaps. All right. Uh, week of January 15th, 1990. Philadelphia Daily News, January 17th, except from Going to the Mat for a Dream by Dan Geringer. Yes, if you haven't already figured it out, everyone, he sure seems to have this fellow wrapped around his finger. Oh, yeah. Opinion among Joel Goodhart's peers was evenly divided. Some thought he was crazy. Others thought he was nuts. But the Flair Dinner sold out. Why are we still talking about the Flair Dinner in January 1990, Bix? That's weird to me. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.